Welcome, everyone. This is Cheryl, and I'm so pleased to be here to welcome you to Tara and Rama's Saturday afternoon program, The True Planetary and Galactic History at Herstory, and The True History Herstory of Nasara. It is our first Saturday of June, June 5th, and we welcome you with open hearts and open arms. Each day seems to be a very sacred day. And I have been, I'm in the midst of hosting the Archangel this weekend. And so I'm going to call them in to overline us and to work through us here today. Beginning with Archangel Michael, Archangel Gabriel, Archangel Raphael. Archangel Uriel, and Archangel Metatron. Take a nice deep breath as you go into your heart center and feel their presence and their love with us all. Going into your sacred heart, the portal to all that is, we call forth the full emergence with our soul, our most magnificent soul being, with our higher self, with our monad, with our mighty I am presence, also known as the planetary Christ presence, and all of our multidimensional being. See yourself in your mighty pillar of light. Filled with most beautiful, sparkling, white, rainbow, diamond energy. And see, sense, and feel it fully anchored to source. At the same time, it is anchored to the heart of Mother Gaia. Allowing us to be the bridge between heaven and earth. It is at our I am level that we are linked to all humanity, so we invite them in now. Please repeat after me. I am my I am presence. As my I am presence, I am one with the I am presence of all humanity. I am one with every man, woman, and child. I am one with all of my family members and loved ones. I am one with all that is. And just feel that connection very deeply. Very deep through your heart center, through your high heart connecting to the hearts of every man, woman, and child, connecting high heart to high heart, 
in connecting our hearts and high hearts to the cosmic heart of all that is. Breathe in that connection. Strengthen it. Strengthen it even through your intention as we once again recommit ourselves to being that bridge between heaven and earth, the anchor for the new golden age, and the open door that no one can shut. Allow your heart to expand that it encompasses Gaia and all upon her. Encompassing everyone and everything in our circle of support, including all of us. And utilizing the energies of this time, including June's graduations, all of the 2021 graduates, and all the celebrations across the nation and anywhere throughout the world. We invite in all that energy into our collective cup of consciousness to work with us today to raise consciousness, to lift the frequency and vibration of every man, woman, and child, for each being to see as God sees, hear as God hears, feel as God feels, love as God loves. And truly be a God goddess in action. We invite in all soul extensions for ourselves and everyone. All soul extensions, planetary and galactic. All of our ancestors, all of our genetic lineage, our ancestral lineage. All the generations past, all the generations forward. We welcome all of our spiritual lineage, our soul families, our soul pods. We welcome the assistance of all of our guides and teachers, our healing teams, our beloved guardian angel, our beloved twin flame, our ascension council and mission council. We welcome all the kingdoms, the plant kingdom, the tree kingdom, the mineral kingdom, the animal kingdom, the diva kingdom, the elemental kingdom, the fairy kingdom, and all of the kingdoms of nature the whales, the dolphins, the unicorns, and all magical kingdoms. We welcome all of the angelic realms from the angels and archangels through to the cherubim and seraphim. And all angelic healing teams. We welcome all of the ascended master realms, the brotherhood of light, the sisterhood of the rays and rose, the order of Melchizedek, the radiant ones, all of the enlightened masters, all of the divine mother emissaries, divine father emissaries, all of the planetary and cosmic hierarchy of light, and all of their healing teams. We call forth our friends from the Galactic Federation, especially those groups that we work most closely with, and their healing teams from our tourists, from Pleiades, from Sirius, from Andromeda, from Chiron, from Venus. We welcome the assistance of all cosmic, galactic, universal healers that can be of service. 
for both our individual and planetary ascension. And we call forth the entire company of heaven and ask the Mother, Father, God, overlight all that we do and magnify, magnify, magnify it 10 billion times, 10 billion fold in alignment with divine will and divine law and the maximum that each being can receive individually and collectively for both planetary and cosmic ascension. We call forth all of the rays, all of the flames, all of the universal laws, all of the ascension waves. And with every energy and frequency, every prayer and invocation, every blessing, every grace, every dispensation, every activation, we ask that it be received on a conscious, subconscious, superconscious level. Within every cell, chakra, meridian layer of our auric field, multidimensionally. The maximum that we can receive expanding to perfection. We ask at the sacred time to remember our wholeness. To stay in our hearts no matter what is going on. That's that most sacred place within our being. And we ask that Gaia receive all that we receive through her every chakra and meridian and layer of her auric field multidimensionally, through every ley line, every song line, through the grid system, the love grids, the light grids, the unity grids, all of the multidimensional grid system, through every molecule of soil, molecule of air, molecule of water. And through every portal and vortex and monument and sacred site and place of power, every stargate, every city of light, as we continue up this amazing spiral of evolution along with Gaia, and she takes her rightful place as Freedom Star. going to do what is called the Pillar of Lights Meditation, as we call forth the Mahatma, and do the opening meditation for the Mahatma work, in which I have been very involved over the years. So take a nice deep breath. Allow your spine to be straight, your legs uncrossed. Inwardly, look upward through the crown chakra to what is called the source star chakra. See it, sense it, feel it about six to eight feet above your head. Perhaps you simply know that it's there. You might see it or imagine it as a magnificent sphere of light or a 12-faceted white star. Please take three deep breaths in through your nose and out through your mouth as we center ourselves more deeply now. 
and visualize the most sparkling diamond white light flooding down through your crown chakra, down into your neck, down into your shoulders and arms. See, sense, and feel it pouring through your chest, down your torso, into your buttocks and your thighs, down through your legs, into your calves, down into the ankles, into the toes and soles of your feet. You feel energized and calm and take three more deep breaths. As we ask to receive this with the greatest of ease and grace and joy and peace and bliss and ecstasy, serenity and tranquility, balance and equilibrium, Archangel Metatron, 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 come in, please. Open, open, open the very heart of the source I am. Open, open, open the very heart of the source console of 12 I am. Open, open, open the very heart of the oversoul body of light I am. Mahatma, 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 I am. Archangelic kingdom of light, I am. Open, 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 and ignite, ignite, ignite the pillar of light, I am. Lord Maitreya Buddha, Maitreya Buddha, Maitreya Buddha, come in, please. Surrounding us now in a six foot in diameter, living, liquid, golden, white crystal sphere of the consciousness of the source I am. And sealing it now that only love and light may pass through, bringing all polarities within this sphere into a state of union fusion. Lord Kachumi, 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 Office of the Christ, come in, please. Please open our heart chakras now. Place within them fifth, sixth, and seventh dimensional rose pink crystal hearts of your unconditional love and deep compassion. Ignite, ignite, ignite the light I am. Lord Melchizedek, 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 come in, please. Open, open, open the very heart and councils of twelve of the universal level of pure beingness I am. Lord Melchior, 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 come and please open, open, open the very heart and consoles of 12 at the galactic level of pure being as I am. Lord Helios, 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 and Lady Vesta, 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 come and please open, open, open the very heart and consoles of 12 of the solar Christ consciousness level of pure being as I am. And ignite, ignite, ignite the pillar of light I am. Metatron, Metatron, Metatron. Open, open, open our crown chakras now as one, please. Releasing now from the very heart of the source I am. A trinitized river of living liquid crystal light. 
Brilliant diamond white light of the source I am. Brilliant aqua blue diamond light of the divine feminine I am. Brilliant golden yellow diamond light of the divine masculine I am. Three as one. Now pouring in through the crown chakra into all cells of the brain, into the midbrain hypothalamus, receptor of light into the 12 major cranial nerves down into the medulla oblongata brainstem and down into the electromagnetic spinal cord and flowing out into the entire central electromagnetic peripheral and autonomic nervous systems of the body now touching deeply into every gland every organ every body system every cell now receiving the trinitized presence of the source I am. Take a nice deep breath. Archangel Rothschild, 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 come and please. Open, open, open our pituitary and pineal chakras and ignite, ignite, ignite the Antakarana Rainbow Bridge of Light. Connecting the two and all that is above to all that is below, I am. Lord Sanat Kamara, Sanat Kamara, Sanat Kamara, come and please. Open, open, open our occipital medulla chakras. And ignite, ignite, ignite the light, I am. Lord Gautama Buddha, Gautama Buddha, Gautama Buddha, Lord of the earth, come and please. Open, open, open the throat chakra and ignite, ignite, ignite the pillar of light I am. Archangel Kamio, 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 Lord of the heart chakra. Come in please and the four archangels of the golden pyramid of light I am. Come in please. Now taking three very deep breaths. We now pass the heart chakra. into your sacred temple of your own creation. You might see it as Greek, Atlantean, Egyptian, Tibetan, Mayan, whatever form you choose. See this temple, be it a sphere, a crystal cavern, a pyramid or cube of space. See the temple walls and pillars. Walls with all the sacred statues and altars of the members of your special spiritual family of the stars. You are the star seed, and it is time for the sleepers to awaken. So within this temple of your own creation, see yourself seated upon a beautiful golden throne encrusted perhaps with faces and sacred jewels and see your naked, golden, innocent body resting comfortably upon this golden throne of vibrant living light. Across the temple in front of you, on the opposing wall, you see a fireplace of your own choosing. Ignite, ignite, ignite. 
this with your sacred breath now and see emanating from the fireplace a living cosmic fire with all of the 12 rays easily visible. Bask in the radiation of the 12, your council of 12. Now visualize as you place upon your feet beautiful golden sandals. You bend down, seated upon the throne, putting the golden sandals on your feet, and they are encrusted with precious stones of your own choosing. Place upon your sacred body golden robes, and above the left breast on the robe, you see your sacred name in golden letters of flame. And you acknowledge yourself as the I am. Place in your right hand now a golden orb of your spiritual authority. Surmounted by a sacred symbol of your choice. Be it an equal armed cross, a six-pointed star, a five-pointed star. Whatever symbol suits you. And ignite, ignite, ignite the light I am. In your left hand, place your symbol of power as a co-creator. Perhaps you see it as a shepherd's crook, a royal flail, a magician's staff, or a crystal wand. And please place where you will the multicolored crystals representing the Council of Twelve. And see descending be the descending pillar of light from source. I am. Now placing upon your head a beautiful golden crown of your own choosing encrusted with 12 diamonds. This is the symbol of your divinity. Now please breathe deeply three times, inhaling through your nose and exhaling through your mouth as you bring the throne to life and to a new level of vibration. You see Kamil standing within your body, crowned to base chakra, in a pillar of living crystal flame, a brilliant rose pink. And now before you to the left, we call in Archangel Mikael, 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 come in please in your pillar of living crystal flame of royal blue. And ignite, ignite, ignite the light I am and welcome. Clothe us with your silver armor and the spiritual protection that we require at this time. Looking before you to the right, we invoke Archangel Raphael. Raphael, Raphael, come in please. In your pillar of loving crystal flame of yellow-orange and ignite, ignite, ignite the light I am and welcome. Please invest our consciousness with the higher mind of the Sophia, the divine wisdom. Behind us to the right, we call in Archangel Gabriel. Gabriel, Gabriel, come in please. 
and your pillar of loving crystal flame of scarlet red. And ignite, ignite, ignite the light I am and welcome. Blow your sacred crystal trumpet and begin the etheric ascension and descension of the Mahatma with the whole cellular activation. And when this is complete, begin the spiritual ascension and integration of the body of light that follows in its proper time. Behind us to the left, Archangel Oriel, 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 come and please. In your pillar of loving crystal flame of blue-violet, and ignite, ignite, ignite the light I am and welcome. And Oriel, mistress of the veils, begin now to take down all the veils that have shielded our spiritual powers and awareness for so long. And so be it. Open, 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 solar plexus chakra. Open, 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 sexual co-creator chakra. And ignite, ignite, ignite the pillar of light, Cyan. Archangel Sandalphon, 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 come in, please. Open, open, open the base root chakra. And open, open, open the very heart of the mother of the earth, I am. Lady Gaia, 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 come in, please. Rising up through the breath into the base root chakra, through the central pillar, up onto the golden throne of the heart chakra, I am. Embrace, 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 and ignite, ignite, ignite the pillar of lights, I am. Archangel Metatron, anchor the pillar of lights into the very heart of the source, I am. Archangel Sandalphon, anchor the pillar of lights into the very heart of the earth, I am. Archangel Kamiel, anchor the pillar of lights in ever-succeeding and expanding spheres of rose-pink crystal light into the source cosmic heart, I am. And ignite, ignite, ignite the triple flame of source within our hearts of our pure beingness, I am. We also request Archangel Metatron, 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 Lord of Lights, open, open, open our crown chakras as one. And open, open, open the crown of the source, I am. Archangel Sandalphon, 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 open, open, open our base root chakras as one. And open, open, open the very heart of the mother of the earth, I am. Archangel Kamio, 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 open, open, open our blessed heart chakras as one. And open, open, open the very heart of the source I am. Open, open, open soul star and hand chakras. Open, open, open earth star and feet chakras. Ignite, ignite, ignite the platinum crystal pillar of lights I am. Open, open, open the platinum pyramid of lights within our heart chakras, I am. Lord El Moria and Lady Desira, 
open anchor and ignite the diamond capstone of the platinum pyramid of lights I am. Open, open, open the platinum crystal star of David and ignite, ignite, ignite the triple flame of source, blue sapphire, red ruby, and golden topaz within our heart chakras I am. Open, anchor, and ignite in divine order. The 12th dimensional platinum crystal shield of lights to protect and strengthen my orc field. As we call this in for one, we call this in for all. And we give thanks for this, we give thanks for this, we give thanks for this. Can we once again call forth the assistance of the archangels at this very challenging juncture at, at this time on earth? So we once again call in the following archangels to strengthen and reinforce all that we've done, all that we do in our personal work, as well as our planetary work. We call forth Archangel Metatron, who holds the very essence of light of the source, I am present. Beloved Archangel Metatron, we call you forth to activate your purpose through your distribution of light and to assist us in reawakening to our divinity. We ask this for ourselves. We ask this for every man, woman, and child. We ask this for all of our loved ones and all that we care for. We ask this collectively for all of humanity. May all awaken to their divinity now. Beloved Archangel Metatron, you distribute the light and love of the Creator. We call forth your color frequency of opalescence and its many colors which sparkle softly within it. We call forth the opalescent ray to fill and surround the planet and everyone and everything upon her. Bring forth the light to all the souls of humanity. And infuse us each now. Fill our nervous systems with your light. That we may hold steady in the light. Fill us with your opalescent energy. Through all 12 levels of the cells. We call forth Archangel Ratzio. We call forth this great being whose energy is a very intense step-down energy of the source itself. 
Archangel Raziel, please assist us in balancing our pineal and pituitary chakras and to actualize the rainbow bridge of light that connects the universal level to the spiritual levels of creation. Archangel Raziel, we know that you hold the focus of the Creator's vision. Awaken it in the inner sight of each person on the planet. Assist us in expanding our spiritual vision and clarify that vision. We call forth your ability to support us to see this vision, to support the Creator's vision of what we came here to do our divine mission and purpose and to assist us to expand and clarify our inner sight. The next archangel that we invite in is Archangel Zafkiel, serving as a transformer of energy. shifting at this time the mass conscious focus of attention to the feeling level of the heart. Zafkiel, we ask that this position be secured. Help us to shift the focus of attention then from the heart to the intent of the creator, source I am. Please bring us a focus of deep joy and love. Ourselves and every man, woman, and child we call this forth for. We now call forth Archangel Zadkiel. We call you forth to clear, hold a very clear focus of the ability to draw up the blueprint of our divine plan. Archangel Zadkiel, we call you forth to assist us through creating, through the use of the three primary rays, the love aspect of the creator. We call forth this trinity of healing energy from the DNA level up to the cellular level. And we call forth this energy that involves the violet ray. The violet ray of deep purification and creative order. The emerald green of spiritual harmony and balance through the heart. And the aqua blue, the wisdom presence of the divine feminine herself. Beloved Archangel Zadkiel, we call you forth to work with us as the healer's healer. Let us be your vessel to assist the planet and all humanity. We call forth Archangel Kamiel, also known as Chamuel. And we call forth this great being 
Lord of the Heart that carries a very powerful rose-pink frequency and the presence of unconditional love and compassion of the Mother's presence. We call in Archangel Kamiel to bring us more love for ourselves, for our creations. Please work with us. Please provide us the needed energy. Please provide us a deeper understanding to expand our ability to love ourselves and to love all others and to just be loved. We call forth Archangel Michael at this time, known to most of humanity as the great protector and defender. Lord Michael, we call you forth to ensure that our divine free will is not violated. We call forth your spiritual protection. We call forth especially to all of the children, to all healers, to everyone, and bring them into the alignment of divine will. Lord Michael, Archangel Michael, Mikael, 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 please help us to find a balance in the midst of the opposing polarities that we experience in our lives. We call you forth to bring ourselves and every man, woman, and child back into balance and harmony at this time. We call forth Archangel Oriel. calling forth her presence around us, within us. Oriole, we call you forth to assist us in releasing all veils that prevent us from seeing the truth. Release us from all illusion now. Remove the veils of the feelings of fear, guilt, and sorrow. Assisting us to harmonize the energies, especially within our three lower chakras and subtle bodies. Or we call you forward to heal all illusions and all levels of relationships, be it self to self or any other relationship with another person. We call you forward to release all suppressed or hidden artistic abilities and to help us express the divine energy through art, through music, through all expressions of beauty as we give honor to the divine and the divine within. We welcome Archangel Raphael. Please express your energy through us that we might live as our higher self and our cause of mind that is very still and peaceful, that has access to the wisdom of the universe. Provide for us and every man, woman, and child, a unified 
expression and perspective of consciousness that we call the observer of life. Know that you can call upon Archangel Raphael even as you forgot where you put something. You're studying for tasks or you just can't seem to focus on what you're doing or just simply require help to do something and how to do something. Feel free to call on Archangel Raphael. Raphael, we thank you for all the ways you assist us each and every day. We call forth Archangel Gabriel to work with us. Archangel of the Spiritual Ascension, working with the Resurrection and Ascension energies. We call you forth to blow your heavenly trumpet to call us away from our distractions, from the lower dimensional aspects of life, and raise us into the fifth and higher dimensions. Archangel Gabriel, help us to see clearly the need to heal the etheric level of the body in order to provide a clearer passage of the love and light of source as it penetrates into our physical reality. Archangel Gabriel, we call upon you now to burn away all the unnecessary attachments so that we may step upon the path of ascension back to union with our Creator. And Archangel Sandalphon, Archangel of the Earth. Help us learn the responsibility of being anchored to the Earth in all situations. You might consider Metatron as the beginning and Sandalphon as the end. He's the one that we use to anchor heaven on Earth. and the end manifestation of the presence of the sources, love, light, and joy. Sandalphon transmits all of the energies of healing and prayer directed to Mother Earth, Lady Gaia. And we call you forth to assist us in anchoring the violet flame, the violet ray, through our beings, into humanity, into the earth. Assist us in working with the elemental beings of nature and the four sacred elements of air, fire, water, and earth. Sandalphon, we call upon you to anchor our heartfelt intention for our reality into this physical presence to manifest now. We call you forth to assist us in anchoring heaven on earth right here and now. And we give thanks to each of you. And so during this week, as we continue in this two-week portal period, between the full moon and the new moon on the 10th of June. Please hold your vision of heaven on earth and call upon the archangels to assist you. Call upon the Mahama energy. 
and do your best to anchor love and light in each moment and continue holding that vision of heaven on earth, always focusing on what we desire. We ask for all of this work to be sealed, maintained, and sustained in the first days, weeks, and months ahead, ever-expanding to perfection. We give thanks for this opportunity to serve. And so, my friends, I thank you for anchoring the light here today. I thank you for your divine service. And I hope you enjoyed these activities of light. Please join us every Sunday and Monday for further Ascension activities, activations, both on a personal and planetary level for both planetary and cosmic ascension. Every Sunday and Monday we meet starting at 8.45 p.m. 8.45 p.m. Pacific, from Eastern Time, 5.45 p.m. Pacific Time. We have about 25 minutes of greetings. And from there... We have Tor and Rama give us a brief update. And then at 9.30 Eastern, 6.30 Pacific time, we begin our ascension work in earnest with various prayers and meditations, visualizations and activations, always unique and different. So we invite you to be a part of that work for we are the ones that we have been waiting for. It is up to us to bring heaven to earth. Let us do that now. If you haven't joined us before, this is a teleconference call. The main number for the call is area code 425-436-6260. Again, that's 425 425- Four three six six two six zero. The access code is nine four six seven four four one pound. Nine four six seven four four one pound. There are additional numbers for the call. There's a way to access it by the computer. There are international numbers. If you need that additional information, please contact me. Contact me by email, Cheryl Croce, C-H-E-R-Y-L-C-R-O-C-I at AOL.com. We would love to have you as a regular in our family of light, doing the work, participating, being that anchor for heaven on earth. God needs a body, and we're it. So please join us for our body of work. Please join us in divine service every Sunday and Monday evening. The one exception this time will be July 4th will be off. So we welcome you. We love you. We honor you. Have a glorious, glorious week ahead. May it be magical and filled with wonderful blessings in every way. 
We wish that for all of you. So we want to take this time to thank Tar and Rama for their divine service over all these many years as well. I thank Berger for her divine service. And I pass this talking stick. It's got every color imaginable, filled with so much diamond white energy and the opalescence. All of the very, very high frequencies that we've worked with. All of the archangelic energies. All of the energies of the angelic realm. And all that we've called in to support this process here today. So with and with the talking stick filled with magic and miracles and wondrous blessings, I pass this to you, my friend Rainbird. Thank you, dear sister. Thank you, one and all. Oh, it's a beautiful talking stick. Thank you, Cheryl. <laughs> and we thank you for your divine service as well. So much gratitude for the work that you do and bring to us. And that we can do it together. So lots of gratitude for you. And I'm here to do the housekeeping as we are listener support radio program. It's all us chickens that make it happen. <laughs> so each week we incur expenses of $300 with UBS radio for the services. And we actually are a little bit behind this, this week. We need $450. Um, so that's just where it is, and uh, I know we can make it happen. So here's how we do it. We go to our heart space and see what is ours to give, and then go to bbsradio.com. Click on Radio Station 2 or scroll down. You'll find the menu for Radio Station 2. We have three programs. On Thursdays at the 6 o'clock hour, these are all Pacific times, um, is a night at the round table with the panel. And so as you click on that icon, that'll take you to our account. Same is true for our Friday program at the 6 o'clock hour, the hard news program with Taran Lama. And as you click on that icon, it takes you there, right to our account. And the same is true for this program, the true history, history, and the terror, and our galactic origins with Taran Lama. And that is at the 1.30 hour Pacific time. And there you go. There's that icon again. So as you go, to click on that account, um, you will see you could make a donation in any amount using any bank card. So that's how that works. So thank you for taking that action, and thank you for showing up in all the ways that you do. And then we're also assisting Tara Rama with their needs. And so, so much gratitude for everyone as you are contributing to Tyre and Rama. Um, it's it's very important work to do. <laughs> this week they have bills that are due and $450. And then they also have some personal expenses as well for for food and, and such. So um, as you can assist with that, we're grateful. Here's how you do it. Uh, you can access Rawa's PayPal account at the web address, and that web address is www.rainbowroundtable.net. And there on the home page, as you click on those little bars at the top of the menu, you'll see the donate link near the bottom of that list. 
As you click on that, that will link you to Robert's PayPal account where you can make a donation in any amount. So thank you for your generosity and making it happen. Thank you for your gifts. So as you have your own PayPal account, you can access the friends option by using entering Rama's PayPal email and that PayPal email for Rama, Koran, K-O-R-A-N, 9999 at hotmail.com. And then as you enter that mount your gifting, a window will drop down from the top of your computer or whatever, and it has the word change on it. Click on that, and that will lead you to the option to make the friends option. So that eliminates the commercial charges. It makes your money go a little further. Either way, it's perfect. We're grateful for your gift. Grateful that you for your paying it forward and in honoring Tara and Rama and the work that they do in this way. So thank you for honoring yourself by doing that. <laughs> and so what else? Yes, if you're sending something, please let Rama know at his email address, which is Koran K O R A N nine 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 at Comcast dot net. And um, as you need it, the physical address is Rob D. Berkowitz, R-A-M-D Berkowitz, B-E-R-K-O-W-I-T-Z. Post Office Box 280-280, and that's in Santa Cruz, New Mexico. The zip code in Santa Cruz, New Mexico, 87567. And I'll repeat that, 87567. So there you have it. Uh, we'll also give you the free mart address. It is https colon forward slash forward slash and then www.shopfreemart.com forward slash T-A-R-R-A-M. So uh, that's all the information. And oh, I was going to mention one more time that there is a shoulder pad available at Amazon or at the USA store for cash from cash manufacturing. And it's a hundred dollars. So if um, anybody wants to get together, maybe with another person or two, it's about a hundred dollars. And the shipping is high because it's coming from, from Linz, Austria. Um, it, I know that the euros is eighty three dollars, so I know that the the price will be just over a hundred hundred dollars somewhere. So, with the with the money exchange that goes on, so if anybody gets that has the means to be able to do that and order that for Rama, it'd be really awesome. <laughs> so I just wanted to put that out there. So again, thirteen thank yous and honey in the heart. So much gratitude for your gifts and for being here and for your lives. So I'm passing this talk to Dick over to you, Tara and Rama, and you you know it's just full of all those rays and frequencies and angelic presence and lots of fairy, pe- fairy people and little people and feathers. And so greetings, here comes the talking stick. Greetings, Rama. Say greetings. Greetings. From the galley over there. Oh, my. 
It's another day. I don't know about anybody else, but it feels so imminent and so ominous at the same time. That, would you would you second that motion, Rama? Yeah. I got a text message from Sweet Angelique the cat. Okay, I just want to thank Cheryl for such a powerful, um, affirmative. Yes, thank you so much. Looking up statements of who we are together. Yes, we can. Like thank Lord. You, Cheryl. Like Lord Michael said last night, call me in. I will come and have a cup of tea with you. <laughs> <laughs> okay, go ahead and say your piece there. Sweet Angelique the Cat sent me a text message and said, Major undisclosed events are going on. It has to do with what's going to come out as the narrative about the craft that have been seen by Navy pilots and all kinds of folks around the planet. And the way Sweet Angelique the Cat put it is, um, Senator Harry Reid has a lot to talk about, because he's tied in with, uh, oh, I can't remember the guy's name, but they're involved with the story called Skinwalker Ranch in Utah, and it's a place where portals open, and let's say, you better have Lord Michael and Metatron when you go there. But it is about disclosure of all kinds going on. And there is a fight to the death going on between the right and the left. And it has to do with obfuscation and distraction. And this yada yada going on about Trump getting back in August into the White House. That is so insane. It's not funny. Well, I just to make the figures clear, so Donald Trump has um, he has some following amongst Republicans and 25% of the voting adults in the United States claim that they are Republicans and of those Republicans, 25% of us that I say they are. Uh, Donald Trump carries 32% in the polls of those Republicans. So um, I'll just say that's why he shut his blog spot down because very few people joined in there. So just and we've been looking at him on the screen all day. And he looks so old and so um, not quite with it. I don't know what to say, but something's really not right. But he's going to give a speech tonight in North Carolina. 
He's <laughs> <laughs> having a rally and he's going to have some more. It would be nice if it was a concession speak where he ended up, and of course that ain't going to happen. No. Uh, let's just say, like it's been described to me, this is going all the way to Draco's, and it's a huge deal because it is about disclosure. It is about all the stories that have gone on since um, Professor Howard Carver discovered King Tut's tomb and things about that, they still to this day haven't talked about what they found in King Tut's tomb. And some of the things they found in there are technologies that are still functioning, just like the cryogenic chambers that have been found all over the planet. And other forms of electromagnetic energy, um, there was something called the Dejed Pillar of Osiris, and it was a form of a Tesla tower that generated free energy. And um, they also had some kind of electric light bulb that was used in forms of healing in Egypt. All of this is going to come out, and I'm saying it's going to come out a lot sooner than later because this fight, to the death amongst the right and the left is about the money. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and um, let's just say it's not about the money, it's about wisdom. And how you change the civilization is you give them the wisdom to make decisions for themselves about ascension. And it's happening in spite of their best efforts to send us off to the Borg and get assimilated. It's not going to happen. <laughs> um, I can just say, Sweet Angelique is saying there are Huge things going on, and it has to do with the exposure. There are many Navy pilots, many other people that have had experiences with our brothers and sisters that go back to the time of George Van Tassel and the Roswell incident. Some of these people are close to 90s, 100s right now. And all of it is going to come out. Uh, It has to do with this radical shift. And I just keep being told in not so many ways 
at a certain point, Commander Grillon is just going to turn on the switch and we're going to have a chat. And I pass the talking stick. It's going to be quite interesting because it's not BS, it's real. And when you feel the love coming from these beings, you can't fake that stuff. The divinity that comes forward, there's no agenda. We come in peace. I pass the talking stick. Hmm. Um. Well, I mean, I guess the major issue is this insistence that Trump's going to be the president, and Mister <laughs> Joe Biden's going to be told to step away from the the White House. It's not funny because it is about serious issues. That go back to the founding fathers and how um, this country did support itself by its, uh, let's say, they used slavery as their economy. And we're moving into a place where universal economics is the order of the day. And how that works is with your consciousness, you create the reality you wish to live in. Since we're all going into a new timeline, this reality about Satyuga is the order of the day. Yeah. And there's another... Situation that's being reported as of today and um, has to do with transgender children. And just to make it perfectly clear, being transgender is not a choice. It is genetically, uh, in terms of psychogenetically predisposed. Even though you have as one set of organs, you are not that in your your psyche and your predisposition as to who you are. And uh, so there are number of states now that are banning transgender children from being able to play in sports. Florida starts start sort of led the way with that. But that's completely, (laughs) it's not really constitutional. So that's something to say there. (laughs) Excuse me. Um, And on, on all the different programs this morning, they are speaking about uh, UFOs, yeah. uh, and they are showing some full-on picture, uh, film footage, and that the UFOs have been clocked in at traveling at eleven thousand miles per hour. 
<laughs> that's not even sub light speed. No, no. The, the, the fact is that we don't have anything like that in this time-space continuum that no. we created. So that that's being said. This is huge, everybody. I mean, you know, people still think you're a loony tune if you say you believe in UFOs. Anyway, that's big. And... um they can change directions and never stop going 11,000 miles per hour. Completely continue to do that speed. And they are plunging into the sea without slowing down one millisecond. Uh, in other words, they defined it as clear as a bell that these things are not from here. <laughs> And you call his commander, Mr. E.T., Lord Ari. I would just say that very soon now, Commander Brillon or Captain Astar are going to take the screen. And Al Sarkton ain't going to be talking. We're going to be hearing another form of communication where they're getting us ready for Starfleet. That's what I gotta say. Okay. And then, um, there was another case of a craft that they were filming, and it was an object, they said, resembling a spinning top, yet yeah. with no zero visible propulsion, flying at hypersonic speeds. Yeah, I we mean. We don't have anything like that. that Fix that seashell. Yes. What were you going to say, Ron? Very soon now, the deep state wants to play with a, uh, let's say, an anti-gravity aircraft carrier that would go from the ocean all the way up to space. And um, they played with that in Avengers Infinity War and it's it is Bill. They have it. And I'll just say there's all kinds of stuff they wanna try and mess with our minds with yet what Dr. Greer and many others have talked about is when you create the murk above the vehicle, which is your light body, uh, that becomes the craft. And that's kind of a hard concept to grasp, yet I can just say I have seen it, I've experienced it for myself, so I know it's real. And it is about what we all are. And this story is so huge because it is about um, eternal bliss. And that might sound airy-fairy, yet There are many folks on this planet that are already 
creating that. And I pass the talking stick. Okay. And this is another piece of news. The cruise industry uh, has returned to Venice, Italy, and they were met with massive protests. And they're saying that um, there are safety risks with those humongous ships coming into those small canals. And uh, I guess there's a large outcry and that the people in Venice don't want it. Yeah. Go away. (laughs) Those canals are not designed for big ships. and It's about... um, we have to figure out another way how to travel, and that is shuttlecraft and, you know, um, beaming here and there. And uh, momentarily, we're going to have it. And then teens with COVID decreased quite radically at the beginning of 2021, yet now it's creeping up again. Uh, it started creeping up again in March and April, and it's screaming a lot, lot now. And um, they're being admitted to the ICUs and put on ventilators. It's that serious, and they are saying it's got to do with these. Uh, what do they call the ones that are kind of got new, new little, more contagious variants? Mm-hmm. They're attributing that to the variants. And in a sense, the virus will go everywhere until it can't go anywhere. Yet, uh, we want to emphasize that um, getting the vaccine is highly lethal uh, to everybody's health. And it's, uh, you might, you know, have a slight fever or something and then you go on with life, but the damage that the things that are in it are continual and ongoing to the point where it can be cause of death uh, over time. And, uh, I just put it that way. So, um, we have made uh, contact with a homeopathist in Santa Fe, and she's uh, doing it on an individual basis, making sure to check each person. And I know that our sister Sonia has been saying that there is word that there's going to be a more generic homeopathic vaccine coming out rather soon. So have you had hesitations and you still feel like you need to do something like that to protect yourself? Uh, that will be, you will still maybe get a mild fever or not feel so good because it's a, a homeopathic remedy is like the most minutest of the substance. And we have said that there's not been a virus around for uh, at least a year or more. I mean, it was, they, uh, in other words, this was manufactured criminal uh, horror story 
And that will come out too. And it's not China. It's our black operatives, starting with Mr. Fauci. He is a very hyenas person. And he created the AIDS virus with a few of his buddies too intentionally to reduce the population and then put it into the blood banks of the people that are getting that blood work done in gay clinics. In other words, they targeted the gay community on purpose. And, of course, people think that gay people are the problem. I mean, they've got AIDS virus in children that don't know who they are. And they're three, four years old, dying. So this is a very, very evil operative in society. And they invaded and occupied Earth uh, and decided to take over the planet about 13,000 years ago. Yeah. And that was the only time that segment in in, in, you might say, took on a form on planet Earth, and she stayed for 3,000 years in that same form. And Rob is going to have a little chat, I think, next Tuesday with our friend Leonara. That's another yes. subject, in the, and she's going to share with Rama a lot about how to live for 25,000 years without death and not getting sick or anything. Yeah. And so that'll be an interesting conversation. So we live in a very different time here. So Rama's going to play something here. It's about 10 minutes, and can you share with us? This is David Ike talking about energy, frequency, and vibration. And what Tesla talked about is the Akash, as you... Tune in to the ether, ether. It will share with you everything. Here we go. Okay. You wish to understand the universe? You gotta get the sound up there. Just a second. <laughs> there we go. If you wish to understand the universe, said Tesla. Think of energy, frequency, and vibration. Exactly. The brain is not who we are. It is a processor of information and a communicator of information. As this man rightly said, looking for consciousness in the brain is like looking inside a radio for the announcer. The radio is just decoding information. That's what the brain body is doing. The brain is dark but sees light. How is that possible? How can my brain be totally dark and I see this light? Because that light in its prime form, like everything else, is just an information source. And I am decoding that information source in here into the visual reality of light because that's what the information contains. Thus, that's what it manifests when I decode it. So, this is why there is no spoon. It's not the spoon that bends, it is only yourself. Because that spoon only exists in that form when you decode it from energetic information. Information is encoded in what we call light. 
white light contains all the colors of the spectrum. Isaac Newton called the rainbow a spectrum because out of the Latin word for apparition or phantom, that's where we get the word spectre from. And colors are frequencies. They're just different frequencies. When we decode them, we see that color. We think those flowers are red and yellow. They're not. Nothing has any color. The color is decided in our perception of it by whether it reflects certain frequencies or whether it absorbs certain frequencies. We're only seeing light that reflects. Thus, we're only seeing that color which is reflected by the object. Therefore, it seems to be that color. Light radiation is information and the frequency or wavelength vibration is its delivery system. The information dictates the frequency. This is mainstream science. They talk about dark energy, dark matter. So you have this massive area of stuff they say exists in this universe, which we can't see. You then have light, electromagnetic spectrum, etc., which is 0.005% of what they say exists in this universe. And visible light, which is the only frequency band that we can decode into a visual reality, is a fraction of the 0.005%. This is the visible spectrum within the electromagnetic spectrum. Look at it. If you wish to understand the universe, said Tesla, think of energy, frequency, and vibration. And colors are frequencies. They're just different frequencies. When we decode them, we see that color. We think those flowers are red and yellow. They're not. Nothing has any color. The color is decided in our perception of it by whether it reflects certain frequencies or whether it absorbs certain frequencies. We're only seeing light that reflects. Thus, we're only seeing that color which is reflected by the object. Therefore, it seems to be that color. Light radiation is information and the frequency or wavelength vibration is its delivery system. The information dictates the frequency. This is mainstream science. They talk about dark energy, dark matter. So you have this massive area of stuff they say exists in this universe, which we can't see. You then have light electromagnetic spectrum, etc., which is 0.005% of what they say exists in this universe, and visible light, which is the only frequency band that we can decode into a visual reality, is a fraction of the 0.005%. This is the visible spectrum within the electromagnetic spectrum. Look at it. It's tiny. And that's all that we can see. We are in a frequency band. We call it the world. We call it reality. But there are other frequency bands interpenetrating this one, like radio stations and television stations, sharing the same space. And what you perceive is what you can decode, what you are. And so through the body, the body, we, we perceive in a visual sense what the body can decode, which is this little band of frequencies. So what is the universe? It is information. And what is the universe? It is information decoding information. When you put a disk in a computer, it's information. The computer is information. It decodes the information. One uh, part of information is encoded to be decoded. 
one information source is encoded to decode. And that's exactly how our reality works, except the body is, is decoding and also um, encoding. The brain is massively part of the decoding system of this wireless cosmos. We do not have empty space between us. We have energy. We have electromagnetic energy. And we have in that energy information. And from that, what I call the biological computer decodes that information into a sense of reality that we think is solid but simply cannot. And the most dense of things, rocks, mountains, however kind of they may be indestructible, they are at their base form an energetic information field. The, the more dense the energy, the lower the frequency, the denser and more solid the form appears to be. The base form of our reality is waveform, energetic waveform, which can carry extraordinary amounts of information. I call it the metaphysical universe. Nikola Tesla, the genius from which so much came, one of the great scientific geniuses of modern times, who in, in fact, in, in effect, gave us the electrical system. He gave us radar uh, because it was stolen from him. And um, he could see beyond the physical that we perceive. And he said, the day science begins to study non-physical phenomena, um, it will be, uh, make more progress in one decade than in all the previous centuries of our existence. Why? Because you go to the source of the reality instead of the decoded um, expression of that reality. So we live in this cosmic internet. Uh, on one level, it operates on an electrical, electromagnetic level. Of course, the brain is working electrically as it interacts with it. So what is the internet? People say, well, it's, it's like pictures and texts and colors on the screen. Well, yes, it is, but only on the screen. Everywhere else, it's electronic circuits and all that gadget. That it? No, come or Camry for people with reading difficulties. Oh reading and studying right. always go together. A ten-minute piece in the circuits and all that gadgetry. What is television? Well, it's pictures on a screen. Yes, it is, but only on the screen. Everywhere else, television in the analog sense is the frequency fields, and or you know the electrical kit that they do now with digital, and our. Body, mind, the body mind as I call it, is like a computer system which allows us to experience this reality. If you look at the body, it's just like a computer in, in its basic sense. You know, when a computer don't work anymore, won't switch on, what do you say? My computer's dead. Um, it goes it goes into sleep mode to save energy. It has a, an antivirus system, that's our immune system best antivirus system um, ever. The brain is the central processing unit. And then you have DNA, which is basically the hard drive. And um, the senses are decoding systems, decoding information into a form that the brain can uh, decode. 
So the senses are taking waveform information, vibrational information, they're turning into electrical information, they are communicating it to the brain, which then decodes that into a sense of reality we call the world we live in. The motherboard of the body, that is the uh, system of meridian lines of energy uh, used in acupuncture, which uh, take information around the body. You know, when, when, when um, information is passing around the computer too slowly, um, things start to malfunction. And what do we say? My computer's so slow today. Yes, mm-hmm. because the information is not passing around at optimum level. When the information is not passing around these uh, chakra systems uh, and um, uh, meridian line systems, then the computer malfunctions. We call it dis-ease, disharmony. What the acupuncturist is doing is using these needles and other techniques to uh, make sure the flow of energy, information around the uh, meridian system is optimum. This is why in ancient China they used to pay the acupuncturist when they were well, but not when they were ill. Because his job was to make sure they never got ill. People say, you know, you see this in the media, he's saying you, you put a needle in your toe and you cure a headache, that's crazy. Well, it's not crazy, it's perfectly logical. If the problem with the head is that one of these meridian lines of information is blocked in the toe that goes through the head, then it's no good putting it in the head if the blockage is not in the head. You put it in the toe and that clears the meridian which takes away the pain from the head. It's very simple. Yep. And I love that line. You see that on, on, on news programs. They're talking about a story. They'll say, well, what we know is... Well, what do we know at any point? Until 1929, scientists thought there was only one galaxy in the universe, the Milky Way. Today, they estimate minimum 100 billion from one in 1929. And at that point, they would have said, what we know is, well, what do we know? Oh my. That was good, Rama. Yeah. Where did you find that? Um I forgot who sent it to me. But it's it's about the Akash. They um just I'm just watching the later afternoon news here, and it's saying New York grand jury calling witnesses in the Trump case. Yeah, Mr. They're doing Mc- it right now. Mr. McGann is uh, being investigated oh, yeah. by the FBI, not to say they're good guys, but they're... But I think he's got sometimes sometime, some type of witness protection uh, so that he can squawk. Really loudly, and yeah. Yet, if he if he lies, then he's guilty of perjury, and then he's got his his own problems. And Roger Stone is in the mix with this, along with mm-hmm. uh, Michael Flynn, many others who have outright threatened this country with um, 
a civil war. And uh, I just know it in Who's threatening a civil war? The drop gang. What? I didn't hear anything like that. No, they've been saying it for, I mean... Some of his followers are, but not the drum bunch themselves. Right? I would say that he... They're probably whispering in their ears, you know. He is egging it on, and it is... That has to do with why they said that uh, Zuckerberg, you know, said it to him, that he said it in plain English, that Trump incited the insurrection. Yeah. And so that means, by the book, that insurrection is is both... uh, um, Treason. And and what's the other one? Sedition. It's it's sedition and treason. So why would Zuckerberg limit access by Trump to Facebook to just two years? It should be permanent. Yeah. I'm just saying this could go really fast. Everything else is going really fast. Okay, so I'm going to play another piece here before we go to our cryon meditations. We have a couple of them today. But what I'm going to do is I'm going to play uh, this morning's Going Underground. Yeah. And it will be self-explanatory and it's very well done. This was at tw- last night at one o'clock in the morning. <laughs> so let's see here. We're going to start. All right. Let me just move this forward a bit and turn the sound up. Here we go. Geopolitical relationships uh, between nations. Uh, a good example of this is Germany uh, and Russia. Uh, vis-a-vis the Nord Stream 2 pipeline. This is something that the United States would not want to happen. Um, so it's going to find it in its interest uh, in order to spy on even its allies in this case. And that's the way things are looking so far this weekend. Check out our uh, site, rt.com, right over social media for everything else we're talking about. Alex. Walk 
coming up in today's Going Underground. But first, this week marks 100 years since the Tulsa Race Massacre, where the so-called Black Wall Street, the wealthiest black community in the United States at the time, was destroyed by state-sanctioned mobs. It is now known as one of the single worst incidents of racial violence of 20th century American history. It's arguably emblematic of uh, all of Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr.'s three evils of racism, economic exploitation, and militarism. Well, joining me now from Atlanta is the daughter of Reverend King, who is now the CEO of the Martin Luther King Jr. Center for Nonviolent Social Change. Bernice, thanks so much for uh, coming on the show. It was apparently July 28, 1960, uh, that your uh, dad went to Tulsa, to Greenwood Avenue's uh, First Baptist Church. I mean, why do you think it's only now, 100 years after, that we even, certainly the world, has even heard of this Black Wall Street? Historically, as it relates to um, incidences and and as well as contributions of African American African Americans, it's been kind of hidden um, and under um, the table. And it's only been in recent years when there's been such a, a force uh, of young people who have really demanded more truth in our society, more honesty. Um, that these kind of things have, have been, um, you know, coming to the surface. And, you know, I think it's a travesty that we, we are just knowing um, the full history of it. I mean, some of us were aware of it. But I just think there's a greater consciousness now um, around issues of race uh, that hasn't been there in previous years because I don't think we have made it a consistent issue uh, through the generations. I mean, to some who believe in the American dream, perhaps is more disturbing because it may say to some people that even when African Americans rise up, are entrepreneurial, make uh, businesses, uh, they are killed, murdered, and uh, their houses are, and businesses are burned down. That's the reason my father was assassinated when he started talking about economic justice um, and how... Um, militarism was undermining uh, the war on poverty is when he became a threat uh, to our our nation and in the establishment and the status quo. Um, so yes, the, the, you know, at the end of the day, um, I won't just say the United States of America, but I would say that there is a serious issue with black people across the world whatever country we find ourselves in. And uh, we've got to deal with that face-to-face. Um, why is it that we've created these these systems and structures, or should I say, why is it that people find the need uh, to reduce other people uh, in order for them to feel significant and powerful um, and, and to keep power <laughs> um, to themselves? So that's something that we're dealing with in this world. That's what racism is. It's the belief that there are superior and inferior uh, races of people, specifically that black people are inferior. Um, and, and so we've got to confront that head on, and um, we're not going to back down and, and talking about white supremacy and the need for it to be dismantled and deconstructed um, and, and the need for creating more equitable uh, uh, systems and structures uh, in our country and outcomes. 
We, we talk about uh, divide and rule on this show quite quite a bit. I I got to tell you that um, I think uh, the editor of the show won't mind if I say that I think I had an argument many years ago with her with in ignorance about uh, the different legacies of Malcolm X and Martin Luther King Jr. And as you just said, your father talked about militarism, and that may well be the reason that he was assassinated. Where where did this emerge? This idea that somehow. You have to take a side between Malcolm X or your father. Well, I mean, it emerged in a movement. I mean, there were people who clearly uh, felt like my father was more passive um, and uh, that Malcolm was more aggressive, and they made an issue of that. And, you know, that uh, particularly generationally, it typically occurred uh, as my father got older, um, which really he wasn't that old. He was only 39 when he was assassinated. Uh, but into the 60s when he, you know, he started turning into his 30s, those that were 18 in college and everything didn't, you know, there was a very serious disappointment that there was not greater uh, progress, um, especially on the economic front. And so because Malcolm was more in the Chicago area, um, people gravitated toward that message because he was speaking about you know, um, self-empowerment. Um, and uh, it, it was more appealing to, to that uh, generation of young people. And so that's where some of the divide came, as well as, you know, the media would pit the two against each other. And there were things that were said uh, by Malcolm himself uh, directly against nonviolence. And so people began to see them as polar opposites. And we all know that in 1965, uh, uh, Malcolm went to Mecca, that there was a turning around of how he saw uh, the white race because he saw people with blue eyes, with white skin in Mecca, um, uh, worshiping Allah with him. And, and so he began to change his perspective um, on uh, white people in general and came back and, you know, he and my father intersected briefly um, I think that was 64 when he went, but briefly, um, at the signing of the Civil Rights uh, Act. Um, and, and so I think there was a fear that the two would begin <laughs> to merge, and you know, suddenly Malcolm is gone in 65. Well, I don't think anyone has heard uh, beyond Vietnam uh, a time to break uh, the, the silence. Anyone who could think that wasn't uh, radical. Did, did it suit? Because yeah. I know you've said that uh, people uh, perhaps don't remember your mom as, as much as they should. Did it help uh, your mother help campaign that people didn't know the Vietnam speech as well? My mother was a peace advocate before she met my father. Um, and uh, uh, she was uh, the main person. There were others, but she was the main person that really encouraged him um, to speak out against the war in Vietnam publicly. She said, Martin, you know, we need your voice in the peace movement. Um, we need your moral authority. And I think um, her, you know, trying to uh, persuade him is what ultimately gave him uh, the strength to do it. Because uh, not that he was not courageous, uh, but it was a risky uh, step for him to take. Many friends betrayed him. Um, uh, many of those in the civil rights movement attacked him. Um, you know, the funds of SDLC started to drive the organization that he was uh, president of uh, that uh, was, you know, leading uh, the movement. 
Um, and so because of her, her passion and understanding of the power of his words and his speech, uh, she, she began, before he was assassinated, looking for ways to preserve his papers. Um, because she felt future generations needed to understand um, the work that they were involved in and understand his teaching. Uh, so ultimately, when he was assassinated, you know, she prayed and um, she felt that God was calling her to create this center, the Martin Luther King Jr. Center for Nonviolent Social Change. But the foundation of it were the King Papers. Um, and uh, she went around the world after the assassination, literally around the world, with her book tour, My Life with Martin Luther King Jr. Um, she started in the world and came back to the United States of America because she wanted people to know the pure message and the teachings of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. And that began her crusade of developing what I call this, some people call it a, the largest social change brand in the world, uh, but the architect became, began to become the architect of the King legacy. And then she started, you know, talking to governors and, and, and mayors and um, um, commissioners here in our states about setting aside, aside the King holiday uh, in January. His birthday is a holiday. Uh, so by the time we got to 1983, when the holiday actually was signed into law, there were already many states um, celebrating the King holiday, many cities celebrating the King holiday, uh, because she, she made those direct appeals. So her whole life was about the work that they were doing, and she always felt that the words and the teachings of Martin Luther King Jr. would be essential for future generations in their quest to create a, a just, humane, equitable, and peaceful world. And I think she did a tremendous job of, um, for one person. She had help, obviously, but for one person who had uh, violently lost uh, her husband um, and uh, decided to turn all of that pain, you know, into purpose. And that's why, iconically, we have Martin Luther King Jr. Correct, Scott King didn't do what she did. We wouldn't be talking today. I really don't think we would because it was a part of her. It wasn't like, oh, my, I lost my husband. What do I need to do now? Um, it was, okay, I lost my husband. We were partners in this work together. I have to continue moving forward and making sure that everything that we stood for and everything that he taught us and that he embodied continues. And, that, and that's what she did. So in some credit, that Vietnam speech with uh, inspiring yeah. so many anti-war activists and ending wars, yeah. I don't know how many millions may have been saved uh, because of uh, uh, certainly the exit uh, from Vietnam and from Southeast Asia. Do you think many Americans know about that? And what do you feel about the fact that you're saying it was that speech, it was that entrance into talking about foreign policy that your father I, I don't think it was just speaking against the war. I think it was tying it to economics, that we are diverting funds to take human life um, rather than investing funds to enrich and uplift people. Because President Johnson had called for a war on poverty, but nothing was happening. You know, and so here you have these black soldiers going fighting side by side, quote unquote, for the freedom of America, but they come back home. And then they go to segregated communities. 
So he started identifying these inconsistencies, and that became problematic uh, for this for this nation and the power structure. Is it problematic now to make those connections? Oh yeah, I mean, if, if you make those kind of connections, sometimes people think you're not patriotic. Um, you know. Um, and, and where do people make those connections? Uh, but when you look at it today beyond war, let's just talk about what's happening, you know, across the, the world, and in particular what has high, been highlighted in our nation with police brutality. You know, many of those uh, police forces have become militarized. Um, when you look at the way that they, you know, arm up, coming into the streets to face those protesters. It, it, it's, it's a lack of war, generally. Um, and these, in many instances, they are peaceful protests, and they've had to face, you know, militaristic uh, officers. And so, you know, people are talking about it more, but I think what people are not doing is saying, look, our military industrial complex is funded somewhere at about 52 cents or more per taxpaying dollar. And we only spend about two cents on health care. Two cents on health and wellness. Two, maybe two or less on education. And so we've got to deal with this issue in our country because we have become more, uh, we become more focused on our might than our more morality. Uh, and that's what my daddy was talking about, that America needed to repent and needed to uh, begin to re- have a revolution of values, that people need to be at the center and not things, because oftentimes what, you know, these wars are about, even at the end of the day when you pull back the curtains, it is about power, control, and resources. Um, and that's what got in trouble. Bernice King, we're going to have to take a break there. More from the CEO of the Martin Luther King Jr. Center for Northern Ireland Social Change after this break. Hold on, everybody. Welcome back. I'm still here with the daughter of the late Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., Bernice King, 100 years since the Tulsa Race Massacre. You liberals might say to you, things have changed a lot since the days of uh, core, since the days of your uh, father's struggles. Uh, after all, uh, Derek Chauvin, the police officer, uh, has been convicted for killing uh, George Floyd. I understand that he's now uh, filed a court submission asking for probation, uh, saying he's just the product of a broken system. He could uh, be an asset to the community. Well, what do you make of, of that submission, uh, the prosecution, uh, of course, demanding 30, 30 years? Uh, look, look, every uh, attorney is going to represent their clients else. So I'm, I'm not upset with him. It's unrealistic. I do not think that sitting judge is going to give him that. Uh, so I'm not going to even give it any energy because, I, you know, it doesn't deserve it. Um, he, he deserves to get the, the highest penalty possible. Because, you know, he, he took a human life and he did it so, you know, um, cynically, um, and, and with, without any sense of remorse at all. Uh, and so, you know, he's one person. Meaning, just because he was convicted and whatever sentence he's gonna get, there's a system in place. 
This has been happening over and over again. There are other recordings that are coming forth even before this happened with George Floyd and things that are happening right after George Floyd. Um, so we're dealing with the fact that, yes, things have changed. No, we're not going to say that after all my father been gave their life when nothing changed. Of course things have changed. You know, we've seen uh, a large uh, influx of, of black elected officials. There are many African Americans uh, who are now part of the middle class and, and, and a few that are, are, are wealthy. Um, there are people who can, um, you know, forge genuine fence friendships across race when that was very dangerous uh, back, especially in the South, back in the 50s and 60s. Um, you know, there are more uh, black Americans going to college and, and things of that nature. But at the end of the day, as my father said, the true challenge now that he was speaking of in 1965 after the Voting Rights Act is working towards genuine equality. And that's where people began to cower. That's where people began to bow out. That's where people began to, you know, make excuses. And that's what we're facing now as a nation. People do not want to pay the ultimate price to do away with racial inequity. Um, and yet we're going to have to face that and we're going to have to pay this, the price and make the sacrifice um, in this nation. Um, and until the majority of white America is truly committed to the dismantling of racism, we're just going to continue in this struggle and fight because we're not going to accept systems and struggles, structures uh, and practices and policies that continue uh, to show outcomes where blacks are at the bottom and alas, that just can't be. I want to get to the call for reparations and the work of the Be Love campaign in, in a second. But, of course, another thing that has changed, so certain liberals uh, say, is that there are more black people in positions of power, and there have been in recent years. But what did your father mean when he said, at the time, uh, back it, back then, he said that the majority of black political leaders do not ascend to prominence on the shoulders of mass support. Most are selected by whites, elevated by whites. Is that era over, or are there still people in positions uh, of uh, a degree of power uh, who aren't uh, living up to the values of uh, Martin Luther King Jr.? Look, we call that tokenism. Ensuring that there's one person that represents a particular uh, uh, group that in our country we call minorities. Um, so that's tokenism. And some of that is still the case in this nation um, in many regards. When we look at our corporate boardrooms, when we look at the CEOs of Fortune 500 companies, still white, majority white male, um, and still this kind of fear of opening up the door, um, and and ensuring that other people are elevated so that there's equity. Um, we have a long way to go. You know, I, I, I just think um, there is a, a great fear of being replaced and de-displaced uh, by white males in America, and I think that's why we have a lot of backlash um, in this country. We have a responsibility, though. I'm going to say, to make sure that as we look at uh, a new way forward, that we don't create the same outcome and results as, as has been 
previous, as as did, period, where now you're creating the same effect, but now white males are left out and, and left behind. We can't do that. We have to create a a beloved community where all people's uh, uh, gifts and their talents are respected and regarded. There is there is equity. Uh, there is fairness. Uh, there is sharing. Um, all of those kind of things. Uh, and and so um, you know. But again, it's not going to happen until we change our value system. My father was very prophetic when when he encouraged us in sixty. Seven in his book, Where We Go from the Chaos of Community, that we must rapidly begin the shift from a thing-oriented society uh, to a person-centered society as part of the revolution of values. But he also said we must begin to shift our loyalties from being sectional, or in other words, from being group-oriented, from being, you know, aligned and, and only loyal to your, you know, your, the, the group that you identify with, uh, whether that be from a national nation standpoint, whether that be from a racial standpoint or religious standpoint, to becoming more ecumenical, that there must be an overriding uh, loyalty to humanity. Uh, and until we change that value system, where that's at the front of our mind when we're implementing policy, when we are putting in place uh, practices, when we are engaging each other, I think we're going to still end up with the same outcome which is blacks are going to continue to be uh, at the bottom, browns as well, um, and uh, we'll just make little incremental steps. I think he said the tranquilizing drug of, uh, of uh, gradualism is, is how, how he put that. But um, Americans and people in Britain, actually, we're about to have a photo uh, ID voter law maybe coming here. And, it's, and your foundation, obviously, is, a, is committed to non-violence. How can you uh, think of the democratic change if uh, voter suppression, which is what's being alleged in the United States and even here, uh, seems to be gathering momentum? Yeah, that's the backlash that I was talking about. Anytime there's a step forward, there's always this backlash to push you two steps back. Um and so the momentum is that we have to continue uh, to push forward. We have to continue to organize. We have to continue to mobilize. Uh, we have to continue to strategize. That's what Daddy and them did. I mean, when they went through the Montgomery movement, they had setbacks. They had pushback. But they had to regather themselves. And I think the challenge we have here in this nation is the people of goodwill have to find a way to coordinate and collaborate and move together in a, in a syncopated way um, to deal with these voter suppression issues. I try not to get into all of the different issues around, you know, Sunday voting, um, you know, um, um, ballot boxes, etc. Those are all important. But the most egregious part of these pieces of legislation are the provisions that allow uh, the governor and even the state legislatures to come in and remove local election boards from power, and they've made decisions, which means they can go in and overturn election. That's dangerous no matter what party you are part of because it can create some inequity, it can create, you know, uh, uh, you know, kind of fraud and all kind of stuff. Um, and, and, and so that's what we have to be 
concerned about, and that's why so many lawsuits have been filed um, against many of these pieces of legislation, and why it's important that we focus all of our attention on getting this federal legislation passed, the John Lewis uh, Voter Advancement Act and the uh, the uh, For the People Act in, con- in, in the Senate now. Um, so many people are calling for um, our president and now Vice President Kamala is taking on their responsibility um, at his request to to uh, to end the filibuster uh, because this is the heart and soul of democracy. Voting what? is not commonality. They have controversial histories, of course, as a former okay. prosecutor and, and mass incarceration. Just uh, finally, I mean, you're calling for reparations, and uh, there are calls for reparations from colonial, former colonial powers here in Western Europe uh, for for what governments uh, have done to people of color over over centuries. I mean, do you think that reflects what your father said about the crucial? Uh, dimension of economics. I mean, he said that um, uh, in the March for Jobs, he said Abraham Lincoln read Karl Marx, and he quoted O'Casey and Pablo Neruda, uh, famous uh, communist poets. Is economics crucial to all of this? And how successful have you been in this call for reparations? Yeah, it's a struggle. I mean, there are many people calling for it. We, you know, we had uh, some people testifying on Capitol Hill for it. Um, you know, my dad actually said, if you've done something against the people at that time, 400 years, uh, then you must turn around and do something for those people. Uh, and uh, so I would say, even though he didn't directly use the word reparations, he was saying that there has to be a form of reparations. Uh, it didn't cost our country anything to desegregate. It didn't cost them a dime. And yet, there is a great debt that is owed, as he indicated, uh, in his I Have a Dream speech, uh, to the black community for the years of exploitation, um, of our labor, um, and, uh, you know, frankly, horrific, uh, ways, inhumane ways of getting labor um, and get and gaining wealth in this nation through slavery and then everything you talked about. We you know, we kinda you know, going about our own business and then you're still trying to destroy us um and take things from us uh and we're not doing anything to you. Uh and so there is a debt and when you have debt on your balance sheet, you have to clear it up. And it's time for, you know, nations of the world where this kind of exploitation uh has taken place to clear up the debt. Uh, to those uh, ancestors, I mean, those descendants of those who were uh, exploited, marginalized, killed, treated inhumanely uh, in this world. Pretty skin. Thank you. Thank you. That's it for the show. We'll be back on Monday for more detail on the science behind accusations of the leak from a U.S.-funded lab in Wuhan, China, may be responsible for killing millions of people around the world in the past 12 months. Until then, keep in touch by social media. Tell us if you think Joe Biden can live up to the dream that Martin Luther King had for America. You know and I know that it was the United States that developed whatever this was originally with a vaccine, I mean with a virus. But that was discarded long ago. Satanic frequencies, etc. God knows what else. But uh, we will we will just say that things are as 
Rama was sharing with us that we're moving right along. Yeah. Uh, behind the scenes. And I got to say, you know, the enactment of Nasara publicly is a simulcast with announcing the presence of our brothers and sisters from the stars. So for this to be in the media all morning in, into the afternoon, every show, oh, we've got a few vehicles, unidentified, what kind of phenomena? Unidentified aerial phenomena. Yes, running around that are traveling 11,000 miles per hour and they don't have to slow down to change directions or jump into the sea. All right, so with that in mind, let's do our our connection with our brother Kryon. Want to tell us which one? There's this, two of this, them. This uh, 30 minutes is called The Most Profound Message. 30 minutes, is that what you said? Honey? Yes. Okay, here we go, and there may be commercials. Uh, what can I say? Yeah, well, just slight, slight in, yeah. interims. Okay. Greetings, dear ones. I am Cryon of Magnetic Service. It seems odd, does it not, that the transition is so quick. My partner has talked this day about concepts that are odd. The oddities of what is real and what is not is odd only in 3D. And in this linearity that you live in, the teaching, therefore, is to get out of it <laughs> and to move into that which is a bigger box than you're in, one that sees that which you don't understand, and yet you feel good about it. Dear ones, you don't have to know the minutiae in order to enjoy love. You don't have to know the minutia in order for spirit to push and pull you into those areas that are best for you and beautiful for you. You don't have to know the minutia of the clock and to win or why. The reasoning is not needed for you to enjoy and participate in that which God has for you. But so many of you approach the issue backwards. you got to know why, when, how. In order to receive the answers. Isn't it interesting that when you have an emergency, you don't care? <laughs> Fix it now. I don't need to know. But if you're sitting in a conference and you have things presented to you, 
which may then tickle the intellectual in you, you want to sit down and analyze it before you accept it. This is part of the changes we speak of. When these things are presented to you the next time, or even if you review them with friends, I want you to discern emotionally and through the heart if they're real. And you start with belief and later you figure out why. If you have to figure out why beforehand, you may never get it. It's all part of assumptions. You make an assumption that what you're hearing right now is real from spirit. And it is. But not all of you are making that assumption. Even in this astute group of light workers, there are those saying, well, he is he is partially in and partially out of 3D. Well, it isn't really cryon talking. It's partly him. It's partly perhaps the entourage. Maybe a little of his higher self is in there all mixed together, giving messages. And by the time the message is over, all you've done is try to figure out who's talking. And you never heard it at all. You never heard it at all. A moment ago, the man was speaking to you and he isn't now. What do you think of that? What is your reality when it comes to the belief and these kinds of things. Well, I'm going to push the envelope yet again. If you don't believe this is real and what is coming, you won't believe it all. Dear ones, what I want to give to you tonight is simple in love. And it's going to be the second channel Continuing from one we called assumptions. We'll call this assumptions two. And we're going to review the first one so none of you have missed anything. What humans have that you will then learn to move away from is the box of assumptions based upon all that you are and have heard and participated in all your life. And it's a tough call to get out of them. We know this. We sit next to you. If we should suspend the channel right now and say we know you, would you believe us? We know why you're here. We know if you're believing this or not. This morning we told you about a door you could open. It's a metaphor. It's about giving permission to get out of the assumptive box into another reality that is so much bigger than that which you're used to. It has an allowance for that which you cannot see but feel. It gives you the understanding 
The energies exist around you that have personality, but maybe they're not angels. Is it possible that physics itself is aware? What is it that your heart generates when you have love? Is it real? Is it an emotion? Is it a field? Is it an attitude? Does it have energy? Can it push things around? Does it affect you and others? And if so, how? All of these things, these esoteric things that we have just spoken of are part of that which humans are learning but don't really have to understand. There's, there's going to come a day when that which you would call the proof of it that is science will come along. And when it does, it will explain many things. But are you going to wait for that? Or are you willing to feel it now? How many times have we given this message to you? That you have no idea what love is. And yet you sit in it and you love it. You accept it. You want it. It's the basic human emotion, isn't it? From the moment you are born and the mother looks at you, you are loved. Almost overwhelmingly, this is mother and child's emotion. And you don't have to figure it out. There's a bond that exists in love one with another. So many books have been written about it. So much has been discussed and the romance of it is desirable and you want it because you feel it, but you can't explain it. Is it so much to ask of you that as I discuss these things that you would have the same acceptance just like you do of love? We must speak to you in metaphors. And the reason is because some of the principles that are coming that have to you to do with the, the, the communication with spirit and you, you have no words for it. There's, there's no concepts yet for it. And yet here we are telling you all about it. We speak in metaphors. We have to. The last time we were together in another place, a message was given about assumptions. And the metaphor was this. A sightless man finds himself living very comfortably in a home. And he lives there for years and he develops all the things around him which he is comfortable with. And he has identified everything and is able to work with it. Even though he is sightless, he survives easily. He feels love. He knows where the food is. All of the things he needs to, to survive in a social environment is understood and he lives a long life. And the entire time, he never discovered the elevator. 
And the elevator, is that the metaphor he lived in an 80-story building? He assumed there was one story. The reason he never found the elevator is because he assumed he was looking for other things. The elevator was there the whole time. Oh, he felt it. He may have even seen it in his mind, but it was simply a deviation in the wall. It wasn't invisible at all. He just assumed it was one thing when it was another. What if he had found the elevator? What does that mean? We explain this now as we did a little back then. The elevator is a metaphor of being able to move to a higher place of consciousness, spirituality, understanding, knowledge. The assumption all along is that he had enough of it, that there was nothing more. He would have sensed it, he thought, if there was, but he never found the elevator. Mm. What do you think would have happened if there were no assumptions and he moved into that one room and he looked at all that was there and made no assumptions? He would have found the elevator. Mm -hmm. He would have gone up in it. Now, here is the metaphor of the elevator. Listen carefully, dear ones. He gets in the elevator and it moves him to the next level. He gets out of the elevator into the second floor or the third floor and discovers things that are beyond his imagination that enhance his life greatly. The metaphor is that the elevator automatically lifted him to that higher floor because he discovered it. You will notice I never said he missed the stairwell, did I? You see, there wasn't one. Because the stairwell is something you have to climb yourself. It is something that requires you step by step to lift your entire body weight to a place you have no idea where you're going to. Step by step with efforts Puffing. All of the things that you know all about. Dear ones, that is a metaphor. Now pay attention. Spirit is not interested in having you work to get to the next floor. Are you hearing this? You're going to be lifted there because you deserve it. Because it's time for it. It is your lineage to belong on the floors above where you are. It is your lineage. And those who tell you that God is going to make you work for it doesn't know about God. They know about men. They know about assumptions that say you got to work hard to get to level two. Let me tell you something, old soul. You've worked hard. If you discover the elevator, we'll lift you there will lift you so gently in the hands of God to the next level because you deserve it. 
So much of humanity is all about you having to please God in some way, having to climb those stairs and hurt yourself and maybe some of you aren't going to make it and all. It goes on and on. Just to get to our place and it's not that way at all. It's not that way. So the assumption is clear that you have to work for it and you don't. Because you already have. So let's break that assumption, ride the elevator, understand that you're being lifted to the next floor. Now here is a question that some may ask. Be clear about the question. Was the elevator always there? Yes. Was the elevator there before you got into the room? Yes. Is there anything else you might be missing that is similar to the elevator? Yes. I'm going to give you a premise now that we have mentioned before only in passing and briefly. And it's the most beautiful thing I may ever say to human beings. In you, as you walk around this planet, is everything you will ever need for thousands of years of evolution. It's not going to appear there magically. The elevator was always there. And so is everything else you can imagine. You're built with it, born with it, inbred in it. The lineage of your DNA is complete with it. The spiritual force that is you guarantees it. All you have to do is discover it. What this means is that everything that has ever been taught about what you can do in any department of spirituality or health or consciousness or belief is already there. <laughs> you have this assumption that you got to go find it and learn it, apply it to yourself, activate it, pick it up, work with it. It's already there. Name it. Some of you are sitting in the chairs right now and you've come for a healing today. You see, I know who's here. I really do. Do you know that I've been with you when all the tears happened? Did you know that? Not cry on, but the entourage that I represent from the creative source, which is part of you. I've been with you for the duration. We all have. You've come and you wanted healing for yourself. There's one here that wants to be healed from fear. I know who you are. There's another that wants to be healed from a habit. I know who you are. There are some who would like to progress in their consciousness to the next step because they feel they've been held back. I know who's here. And I can address every single one of you 
with the same information. So beautiful. It's the same information the masters of the planet all had. Everything is built in. For the one who has come for healing, you were born with it. It's waiting for belief. It's waiting for activation. It's not waiting for God to do something. It's yours. It has your name on it. It's the reason you need it. So you will open that door of belief and understanding that the healing has always been yours all along. Take the hand of the healer, your higher self, and be healed. The cure to the habits, to the fear. It's always been there. The antithesis of fear is compassion and love. And the compassionate human being will wipe out fear. So it will never come back, never come back again. If they believe it. It's inside. There's no process. Not really. They will then erase it. Other than that which is self-discovery. All of the teachers in the room, all of them, work with systems of self-discovery. And the question, who am I, can be answered by understanding the systems that they're showing. They are not outside of you. There is no system that is outside of you in this room. Every single system is about you. To bring you to a place where you can understand, it's always been there. Always. Do you seek higher consciousness? And why not accept it? You might say you were born with a stamp. Stamped when you were born. Higher consciousness. There you are waiting to find out how to find it, how to get it. Who's going to give it to you? And you were born with it. Crying, you're talking in circles. I am not talking in circles. For those of you who are really paying attention and understanding a message which is partly esoteric, partly given in the third language, I am telling you, That inside of you is every single answer because inside of you is God. And all you have to do is relax. Relax. Believe it. Understand these things. And if you are one that wants to then go further and see the beauty of the systems that will allow you To even expand that. Heal others. It's here for you. In the room. But so many of you are sitting waiting for something to happen. Waiting to find the stairwell. So you can climb. A process. A procedure. A list. And there just isn't one. That is beautiful. 
You mean crying if I just sit here and just take a deep breath and imagine the compassion that I can have these things? And I can tell you, you just told the basic truth of humanity. Visualize yourself peaceful. Visualize yourself out of fear. Visualize yourself healed so completely that you are going to go into laughter and hysterical joy because it's gone. That which came in with you is gone. A miracle has occurred, you may say. And all it has been is you waking up to who you are. Some of you are waiting for circumstances, things to happen in order to change that. Perhaps it's in the family. Perhaps it's at work. And you're wringing your hands and worrying. See, I know who's here. You're a slave of the clock, dear ones. You think you're not. You're, you are waiting for synchronicity. Others are involved, are they not? Yes, they are. They have to be. So you cannot force an issue that involves other souls. You have to wait until the synchronicity is correct and it's coming for things to happen in the way that you have asked. Or you're waiting for something you don't know about to accomplish that or something better. Are you okay with that? You see, I know who's here. (laughs) That which you are concerned about holds you in the box of concern. That's what you are afraid of holds you in the box of fear. That which you partially believe in holds you back from totally believing. Dear human being, listening to this message, can you throw off the mantle that is covering your belief and move to the next level and let this elevator take you there? And why be satisfied with a second floor when you can go to 80? The things that are available for you are endless, beautiful, possible, if you will let go of the assumptions that you think you know how it works. Or the assumptions that they think you got to go to one before you can get to two. How linear. Why not just go all the way? We gave you messages of the five in a circle. And if you want to review it again, it says you assume you belong in a box. And you have a job to do and you do it without looking at anyone else. And some of you say, this is the only box that exists because it's the only one I'm in. Therefore, everybody else is doing it wrong. (laughs) Not understanding. There are no boxes. You're part of a machine that is of love, of creation. And the part that you're playing is the part I am playing as cryon, as part of one, a part of many. You all, all 
are a confluence of energy of the creative source. It may appear that you're specialized, but not really. What you do as part of this wonderful machine of love makes the whole machine turn. And what they do makes you turn. And together, you're creating a consciousness shift and peace on earth. But not if you stay wondering how it works or if you're even going to get there. It's a pretty basic message, isn't it? Get over that thing which restricts you. Which is an old belief for perhaps things you've been told by others. Or even your parents. Or even your teachers. It's time to think for yourself. To discern that which is discernible now for you. You. Only you. Soul. Not anyone else. And Pick yourself up and get in the elevator. Of healing. Of a lack of fear of self-worth. And get on with things. There's never been a greater message than this about the power of humanity. It has to start with you. It doesn't matter how old you are chronologically in this room. No, no difference. Because an old soul can come here and have tremendous amount of lifetimes and be a youngster. (laughs) And you know who I'm talking to now. (laughs) Dear ones, what you discover in the elevator today, listen to me. It's a metaphor. It's cryptic. What you discover in the elevator today will be with you when you're born again on this planet. And it'll stay with you. If you go to level 3, level 4, level 80, and you're born again into this planet, you'll start where you left off. Not at the bottom. Did you hear me? This is new. We've told it to you before in other messages and other metaphors. It's not linear anymore. Uh -uh. Not at all. Absorb these things like a sponge because what you learn today is forever. Mm -hmm. Old soul, that Mm -hmm. is why you came. It's enough for today. I want you to leave this place so differently than you came. I want you to feel empowered even though you may not have understood a word. (laughs) (laughs) You leave empowered. I don't know what crying was talking about, and I don't know what to do. It sounded good then, but I still don't know what to do. Dear ones, don't do anything. (laughs) But look up to yourself. You hear me? Mm -hmm. You're bigger than you think, and the processes that you need to find the elevator will be given to you because you want them. Without restrictions. Without having to figure it out. Dear spirit, show me what I need to know. In order to get to where I belong. This or something that is for me. I'm on my way. Thank you. That's all. And then stand back. Because you just threw away the box of assumptions. On how you think it's really done. You're powerful. <laughs>
Take it and run with it. It's time. I'm crying in love with humanity and for good reason. And so it is. Got some music for us in between, honey? No. No? Um, You can just keep going. How long is this one? Uh, this is 40 minutes. It will come soon. Well, let's go. Let's like go. he said, there is no spoon. There is only the force. <laughs> <laughs> Use it. Okay, let's keep going. That's okay. I'm ready. I can handle that. Let's do it. Okay, here we go. The pendulum of reality swings yet again into my corner. And there is an element of disbelief. In a group of old souls, there is always this. They say it's too easy. Some will say it's too easy to fake. And so we say this to you before we begin this discussion. It's about love. That's what it's about. It always has been and it always will be. And it's not the love that you think. There is a force in the universe even your astronomers have recognized and seen, identified, and they call it intelligent design. Because the universe itself is biased. It's biased into creativeness. It's biased in life creation. It's biased in love. There is purpose for everything. Astronomers, science, physicists, they want to see complete and total neutrality within all things, and they don't find it. And that's one of the things we want to discuss, the power that is starting to become yours in the understanding of energies around you which you have never identified as energies that specifically are what we're going to call informational. This is one of the first multi-dimensional channelings of a series. Starting to explain to you in a better fashion concepts that have been misunderstood or not explained at all. In order to start you thinking about what you can do. And that is the purpose. It's a big distance between the nucleus and the electron haze. If you could go with me to the smallest of the small. You'd find an enormous amount of emptiness. Physicists will tell you that most of you are made of nothing. 
And it's only because they just don't see what's in the dark. And the multidimensional truth is this. Between that which is the nucleus of the atom and the electron haze, it's filled with information, energy, love, and intelligent design. Difficult to explain how this manifests itself to your reality, but that is indeed the subject. So we'll start slow and easy. There it is, my friends, a rose, imagine it. A beautiful rose, this one's red. And you don't like it. You don't like the thorns, perhaps. Maybe you don't even like the color, perhaps. And you say to yourself, I'd like it a lot better if it was a daisy. But it's a rose. (laughs) Now, in single dimensional digit thinking, all law 3D, the scenario is this. It's too bad you've got a rose when you wanted a daisy. Because it'll always be a rose, you know. And if you could look at the seed that the rose grows from and re-germinates from, it'll always be a rose. Too bad about the rose, you might say. And so the consensus of thinking and the actions around it are this. It will always be a rose, therefore I will never be able to change it. Now consider for a moment a multi-dimensional scenario where the master gardener visits the seed. Imagine for a moment that the master gardener can tell that which is the seed to systemically alter the information of what it is. And so that the next time the cells start to divide, the thorns drop off. (laughs) And the color changes. And maybe, even maybe, a daisy grows instead. And what would you call this? And the answer is a miracle. And that is how you define things that look out of the purview of your dimensional reality. I want you to start looking at these things differently. I want you to start seeing information that is multidimensional as energy. A tremendous amount of what you just call energy is only information. It leads us to the next phase of this teaching. For now we give you a discovery on the planet that has been made that is being used. And the discovery is this. 
that you can address the cells, that is to say the DNA portion of the human body to change its informational structure. Not to belabor an issue, but you must remember what the scientists discovered about DNA. 5% of it is chemical, protein-encoded, gene-producing engine. 95% seems to do nothing. So what you have is this. A DNA structure, one DNA loop, that has 3 billion chemicals in it, and 5% is the engine of the biological race car called the human being. <laughs> and 95% is the driver. It's a consciousness. It's energy. It's information. And it's huge. And if you could change the information... In those DNA parts, what would you say to them? Let me give you an example of something that's already been done. Let us say you're born with a deformed heart. Here's a heart that is not operating properly. The valves don't fit. Let us say that that is who you are. A red rose with thorns. And so in your reality, you're going to die sooner. You will not operate well. You may be on drugs when you're older. And you'll always have a deformed heart. You might ask the obvious question. Since all of the organs rejuvenate many times over your life, why is it systemically that those stem cells are given information to continue rejuvenating a broken heart? Why does it stay deformed? And here's the answer. Because the information stays static. Without something to change the energy of the information within the systemic system of the human body, it will always repeat what it has. The rose will always be the rose, and the thorns will always grow there. What if you could literally change the information In the 90% of your DNA, what if you could change not only the information systemically, but even subconsciously as to who you are and why you're here? You're starting to learn how. Addressing the information energetically in DNA So that the stem cells are given a pattern of perfectness instead of the deformity. And as the heart then starts to regenerate, as all organs do, slowly it becomes 
a functioning heart and the valves fit. And you think that's science fiction. I'm telling you, it's being done now. For on the planet, multidimensional inventions are starting to occur. There will be many more. Pushing the envelope of your believability and changing physics. You've seen this and you don't even know you've seen it. I'll ask you some other questions that you haven't really thought about. We brought these up before and now we can discuss them more fully. Why can a starfish grow back an arm and you cannot? Because the programming in your body, in your DNA, in the information, the race driver driving the car has been instructed that those kinds of things only are to be done in the womb. And the instructions are always that way. And they repeat every time a cell divides. There'll come a day when you can change the instructions and you'll be able to grow back a limb. All of the chemistry is there. It's not that hard. But the instructions say you can't. And so they don't grow back. Imagine the race car driver in a splendid machine that can, that can go for so long <clears throat> with instructions that he can only turn left. <laughs> you know, that's what a race car driver does, you know. What if you straighten out the racetrack and suddenly you got a left-hand only driver. Hmm? What happens to the driver when the racetrack straightens out and he doesn't know how to do anything but make left turns? You got to change the information that he has. And that is what is being done. When the spinal cord is severed, there is chemistry that races to the place of the severing. So it won't grow back. Did you know that? There is a hormonal proteinal structure that actually keeps it from growing back. How does that serve humanity? Well, it doesn't. <laughs> Nerves are designed to grow back. They don't. Did you know they even have addresses, color codes? They can find each other in the dark and grow back. And they don't. Because built in to the race driver's information is not to grow back a spinal cord severing. There'll come a day when you can reprogram the systemicness Stem cells exist everywhere in the human body, alive and well. They are what pattern what happens. Chemically, they are responsible for a human that is 
predisposed to disease. And that predisposition will be then carried to the child. And the imprint and the energy and the information of the 90% will continue and continue and continue unless it's reprogrammed. Unless the information is given to it to become different. It's not chemical. It's energy. It is multi-dimensional energy. New technology to reprogram pieces and parts of the body. Do you know what this means? There are women in the room who respond to this, who carry a gene that their ancestors carried and that they carried and that their children will carry on predispositions to certain kinds of weaknesses. And when you can rewrite your genetic print, none who follow will have it either. Do you understand what I'm saying to you? Your children and your children's children will only have the reprogramming. They will not have the original information. Energy is like that. Informational energy is like that. And there's a lot of it on the planet. There are systems on the planet that have been misunderstood for a long time. Let me give you a couple. This is controversial. You may not agree. You may not like it. But I'm going to give it to you anyway. Humans love things that go bump in the night. (laughs) They love to be frightened. They love to be scared. They love movies that scare them. And they love haunted places. Have you seen the upsurge in the interest of haunted places? Now let me tell you what they are and why they work the way they do. And now we get into the power of the information of the Akash. Human consciousness carries an imprint which affects the planet. And we have told you this from the beginning, 21 years of it. Human consciousness is what is going to change the planet. Human consciousness is information. It is information that you develop based upon what you think. And it's powerful. Human consciousness actually goes into what we have called the crystalline grid of the planet, which is a multidimensional grid. You can't see it. It holds energy. It holds information. When the planet is measured for vibration, it is the crystalline grid that is measured. And the crystalline grid only has on it what humans have put there. An interdimensional record of thought, of lifetimes, of happenings. And here's what I'm going to tell you. In certain conditions, in certain ways... A human life or an interaction of multi-lives together in a scenario that is profound for whatever reason 
of its profundity will create an imprint in a place. It's information and energy that will replay itself over and over and over like a recording tape in 3D. It's a haunted house. Did you know that? And here is some of the things, the attributes that we may not prove it to your psyche, but we'll give you something to think about. Did you notice that in a haunting, you have a scenario which repeats? The man comes down the stairs. The man goes up the stairs. The woman in the kitchen moves from the left to the right, sits in a chair, rocks for a while, moves away. If it involved dramatic things such as murder, the man comes down the stairs with the axe. <laughs> over and over and over and over. It's a good movie, isn't it? And that's all it is. Why does it feel the way it feels, Cryon? Because it is a result of human consciousness imprint, and you've got one too. And when you're there interfacing with it, it gives you chills. Because it's real. Now science has gotten involved, as they should, and they're noticing something. The imprint, the haunting, carries scientific attributes, and they're all multidimensional. Guess what changes? Magnetics, gravitation, light, and even time. Because what it is, is a multi-dimensional event imprinted onto a place on the planet that plays over and plays over and plays over. Can you capture it on tape? Uh-huh. Because it knows it's being observed. Because it's part of an imprint that is multidimensional. In a quantum sense, it knows. I can't explain that to you. You assign knowing to sentiency, that is to say, that which is intelligent in a human being. And it isn't either of those. It's a knowing that is quantum. It knows what a human being can be frightened. And it frightens it. Oh, I have more to tell you. Oh, there are things that, that you wouldn't believe that you can do. How would you like to get rid of that? Let's say it's in your house. Now, this may be very inappropriate, but I'll give you the answer. <laughs> You're going to have to present an energy that is stronger than the imprint of a haunting. <laughs> you cannot order it away. You already knew that, didn't you? Yeah. No amount of huffing and puffing or calling upon God will make it different. The imprint was created by magnificent beings, sometimes seeming to do ordinary things. There's a reason for that as well. You don't know who they were. You don't know the old souls involved. You don't know who it is, really. 
you've got to present an energy that is stronger than the haunting. What could that be? As inappropriate as it is, I will tell you. Why don't you make love in that room? (laughs) That'll do it. (laughs) Because that's stronger. Anyone who's been in love in their room, there's some secrets here that I know. Beautiful ones that I know. Knows the power and the energy of humans coming together in intimacy. And the angels sing, and you create a third energy which is more powerful than the two of you. And you know it, it, it's sacred, it's beautiful. And it's stronger than the haunting. Maybe you didn't want to hear that today. But what about other things? What about like demon possession and all these? And I will tell you this. It's different than you think. Because there are no demons. (laughs) Humanity can conjure up. The most evil of the most evil. And it can do it all by itself. And you knew that too, didn't you? Because you're powerful. The pieces in God and you, even in your mythology, are responsible for the devil himself. A fallen angel. How can that even be? It is a metaphor of what a human can do on the earth with the energy that they have. Things are not always what they seem. What about talking to the dead? And how would that work, Crying? How could you talk to famous people when in the scheme of soul incarnation, they've already come back as others? Now, if they've already left, how can you talk to them? <laughs> and the answer is this. They haven't left. Oh, The part that you think is the human left, but the imprint of them and their entire life and everything they knew, their consciousness, their wisdom, their knowledge, goes right into the crystalline grid. We've talked about this before. Can you contact famous people and get information? Yes. Will it be accurate? Of course. Because you're talking to the source. The imprint remains. You mean you're not actually talking to them? You're talking to the imprint? Let me give you something to think about. I'm going to ask a question right now. It's going to be a rhetorical one. Who are you? I have old souls in front of me. There's a woman in the room who won't wear red. And you know who you are. I'll tell you why. Because it got you killed. (laughs) Because that was the color of the plume on your helmet, warrior. Because you were the captain and they knew if they would take you out, your whole regiment would be in disarray. And that's what happened. Mm. Not only kill you, killed everyone around you. You'll never wear red. You just don't like the color. It's just not for you. You shun it, don't you? 
old soul. Who are you? Who are you? Are you the warrior who got killed? Are you the woman who won't wear red? Are you the mother? Who are you? It is a rhetorical question because in my reality, you are a piece of God. And so when you go to that place where you wish to conjure up one who has lived before and ask them questions, who are you talking to? Are you talking to the Yerkosh of a soul? Are you talking to that which is alive or dead? I will tell you, none of those things are accurate because you don't really know. It's even more magnificent than that. Can you ask Aunt Martha where the treasure was buried? <laughs> yes! And she'll know, because you're talking to the Aunt Martha imprint. Mm-hmm. And she'll know. Now, if you ask Aunt Martha, how are things on the other side? She'll say, beautiful. What's it like over there? Lovely. <laughs> now, give me some specifics. I love you. <laughs> She doesn't know. Aunt Martha knows what Aunt Martha knows. You think of it in singularity and it's not. It's powerful. It's real. And it's there to be accessed. It's multidimensional and those with gifts can access the wisdom of the ancients. Go back and ask them what they knew. Go back and ask them how it felt. Go back and ask them where the treasure is buried. You're going to see some of this. And those in in the places of magnificence on this planet, wearing the costumes of spirituality and the heads of state and religion, will call it evil and will call it a cult, not understanding that you are moving into a multidimensional state, appropriate, accurate, true, usable Correct. Helpful. All of those things. Does that make sense to you? Let me give you a concept, and this will be the last one. I've saved the complicated one for last. (laughs) That's my favorite one. We haven't done this before, my partner, so get it right. (laughs) I want to show you how time works and I can't because the reality of the complexities of multidimensionality preclude the human being's ability to understand it it's simply not teachable So I will metaphorize it and give you it in its simplest form, which is only a fraction of its reality. Time. We mentioned today that it is a singularity for you. There's only one of them. There's no multiple times. There's only one. And you're on one one track on the planet. You're all on the same track. That is a singularity. 
It only goes one speed. It always, always has for your life. It doesn't move. The truth of it is it, it moves all the time. Another truth you don't understand is that each of you can step off the track and create a faster or slower one. You don't know that either. How do we explain this? So let me singularize it and pretend you're all on the same track for a moment. That's what you think anyway. That's easy. And I want you to build a track, a train track, which is time. I want you to put an engine upon it, which goes in one direction very slowly, and that's you and your life. I want you to make the train track, however, go all the way around the earth. Now, to your perception, because you can only see to the horizon, the train track goes straight. The truth of the matter, it goes all the way around the earth, and you're looking at it behind you. Create that kind of time for a moment. Now, that puts time in a circle. Now, that is confusing because it's a conundrum for you. In three dimensions, you cannot put time in a circle. It is in a circle. Because it's in a circle, however, take a look at some of the attributes that are confusing to you. Let us say your lifetime takes about 30 meters. <laughs> Not very long on this track that goes around the earth, is it? <laughs> so you never have to really worry about meeting your past, do you? But let's pretend for a moment you could. What would happen if you drove that engine around the earth eventually you would be running over the energy of what used to be, wouldn't you? In the same way of thinking, if you went around the earth several times, eventually you might be also running over what might become. Suddenly you have an attribute of time you haven't thought about. If it's in a circle... It means the future affects the present. And you think the future hasn't happened yet. It hasn't in 3D. It has in a quantum sense. Now, I'm giving you information right now, and I'm giving it to you this way because there are scientists looking at it in that way. Is it possible that the future could give you energy and information now, think of this train track for a moment and let's get more complicated. It's got layers now. Every time the train goes around it, which is a human life, things change. What if it was humanity in that engine? Now you have the past, present, and the future of everything that's ever happened on one train track in a circle. Now you have a situation where you could stop the train dig down in the tracks, and maybe if you had the ability, pick up something that either hasn't happened yet or happened before. I didn't expect you to understand it. Only listen to it. Because that's what's happening. Let's complicate it. Let's say this track has to go up some hills and down some valleys. 
and the hills and the valleys are always the same. If you were smart enough and had a system that understood this time, you could create bumps where it might be difficult or easy and actually put them on a map. You might even call them time fractals. <laughs> and you might be right. And every time you hit that place in time, whether it was in the future or the past, you got a hill or a valley. And I want to tell you what's happening at this moment, dear human being. I just gave you the simplest way I can give you the attributes of multidimensionality when it comes to time. You are visiting potentials that in your mind have not happened, but in a quantum sense have. You are receiving a vibrational increase so that you can look at the track of time and select where you want to go. You are looking at the potentials of the quantumness of vibrational shift and creating a culture that is going to go beyond what you think it could go because it's going to fly in the face of all prophecy. Because prophecy is based on one track that does one thing over and over in 3D. And as soon as you start to become multidimensional, information becomes energy. And in that track of time is information of the potentials. Okay, I'll tell you. Nobody asks. <laughs> Except the ones who are asking. It would seem like I just turned a page. Because there's someone in here who wants to know what a crop circle is. And so I'll tell you, it's a good thing you ask. It's an energy stamp from the future. How about that? <coughs> Now you don't know anything more than you did before. Yeah. <laughs> Not a future that you went through. A future that has such a grand potential and a quantum state that is one with everything. You've already lived it. You're in an entangled state with that which you think has not happened, but which has happened so grandly, you already have peace on earth. And 21 years ago, I showed it to my partner so grandly. He can't deny it. It's his reality. And there are things in the room you can't deny because there are realities of you putting lives together, healing bodies that you've already done. That's how grand it is. You're in an entangled state with a reality that's outside of your dimensional perception. Hard to teach, hard to understand, but easy to feel. Easy to feel. Imagine the solution is upon you. Imagine those things which you're planning already completed. Imagine yourself looking backwards and saying, now that wasn't too hard, was it? 
Imagine the most perplexing things you brought to the table today. Over with. How do you feel about it? And human being, if you can take a breath of release and look at it like I can, you are becoming quantum. Mm-hmm. And you've just created it. Congratulations. Now go from this place in your three-dimensional way and walk through the steps that you've already done. And that's my message. Information is energy in a multi-dimensional state. All things are possible. You come here to listen to a thing like this. Old soul. You wouldn't have missed this. I'm not talking about this meeting. I'm talking about this life. How many times have you lived waiting for this? What do you think the wisdom factor is? In your Akashic record. If you've lived and lived and lived and lived and lived, how about that track of time? How many layers does it have for you? What about going in, drilling down, and picking up the wisdom of your ancients? Because many of you are your own ancestors. It's about time you started seeing it in that way. My partner says, leave differently than you came. He got that from me. Do it. Do it. And so it is. Oh, my goodness. And I'll just say to throw another monkey wrench into the story. uh, This is spoken about with Dr. Strange in the multiverse of madness, which has to do with multiple universes and timelines. And he, Lord Cryon, just said it all. I'll, I pass the talking stick. Well, we're going to squeeze something in here, so we're going to jump right into it. And so I need say nothing. You'll hear it all. It's uh, from Chris Hedges with his guest. Here we go. Today we talk about the collapse of the rule of law and international affairs with legal scholar Richard Falk. The UN is extremely important and effective on the symbolic level of politics in determining legitimacy of behavior and illegitimacy. But it can't implement its findings because the geopolitical forces can, if they're activated, they can block it. They can block implementation. So on the substance, uh, the UN is ineffective. This throws, uh, in, a, in a sense, it throws responsibility to civil society because uh, civil society is influenced by these symbolic recognitions of legitimacy and illegitimacy. 
and the global solidarity movement that brought uh, apartheid to an end in South Africa is also uh, focused now on the wrongdoing of Israel and a feeling of some solidarity with the Palestinian struggle for basic rights. Richard Falk, Professor Emeritus of International Law and Practice at Princeton University and the former United Nations Human Rights Rapporteur in the Israeli-occupied territories. In his new memoir, Public Intellectual, The Life of a Citizen Pilgrim, rips back the veil on the inner workings of the power elite and the institutions that do its bidding. He calls out the merit-based professionalism in academic life for its inherent biases designed to perpetuate the ruling class, noting that during his tenure at Princeton University, the dean of students recruited for the CIA and faculty worked regularly as consultants for the RAND Corporation and the Pentagon. He has repeatedly confronted entrenched political, military, and economic power, especially after visiting Hanoi in 1968 at the height of the Vietnam War. During his tenure from 2008 to 2014 as the United Nations Human Rights Rapporteur in the Israeli-occupied territories, he often clashed with Israeli officials and the Israel lobby in his efforts to document and condemn Israeli human rights violations against the Palestinians. He once compared Israel's treatment of Palestinians to the Nazis' treatment of Jews. In 2008, Israel refused Falk, who is Jewish, entry into the country and deported him. Falk has also denounced what he calls the global legalization of road behavior embedded in the UN Charter, which vests a right of veto in the five permanent members of the Security Council, the only organ within the UN system with the authority to reach binding decisions. In effect, the UN Charter rather shockingly acknowledges the uncontrollability of the five political actors, although these are the states that most endanger international peace and security, he writes. Joining me to discuss his new memoir, Public Intellectual, The Life of a Citizen Pilgrim, is Professor Richard Falk. So, I love the book. It's huge. But we can't go into the funny and great salacious parts, the fact that you knew Zsa Gabor and Alexander uh, Kerensky. People have to buy the book and read it. Um, but I do want to focus on three seminal moments in your own life uh, that uh, I think taught you a lot about what it means to take a moral stance uh, and the consequences of that. Uh, let's begin with the Vietnam War. Um, before I begin that, I, I do have, there is this one little aside. You begin your academic uh, tenure, the FBI is carrying out witch hunts uh, for uh, people supposedly who are uh, closet communists, and they go to your dean uh, and tell the dean that you had been the director of a hypnosis institute in New York City that was being used as an active recruiting front for the Communist Party in the 1940s, uh, but uh, as you told your dean, uh, at the time you were 12 years old and you'd never heard of the Institute. So we just want to say the FBI is not... That was at Ohio, Ohio State, is, uh, not Princeton. Um, so let's talk about the, the Vietnam War. Uh, you're an international legal scholar, um, and you first begin your critique of the war from a legal position uh, based in the Nuremberg Laws, based on uh, uh, the uh, wars of aggression as being 
a crime and eventually got pushed or certainly were seen as an activist. But let's begin uh, with first that study of Vietnam uh, from a legal standpoint, uh, because, of course, now uh, the uh, violation of international law is just carried rip, rip wide in Iraq and Syria and Libya and everywhere else. But let's begin there. Yes, well, there was no question that I started my uh, interest in the Vietnam War from a rather mainstream position, uh, partly political realist and partly saying it was an imprudent use of American uh, power and a position somewhat similar to what George Kennan and Hans Morgenthau were arguing at the time. And that combined with my legal analysis, as you put out, uh, gave me a, a critical position, but a position without any moral underpinnings or any emotional attachment to the conflict. And I was invited to go to uh, North Vietnam uh, by a French group who, which had been invited to view the bombing damage that at the time Robert McNamara, the Secretary of Defense, was claiming was the most uh, surgical, uh, precise bombing in all of history of air warfare. And this turned out to be untrue, but uh, uh, they thought it was much more important to have an American observe that damage than for some European to come back and confirmed that the bombing was very uh, imprecise. So I went with that uh, idea in mind, but what struck me almost as I got off the plane was that this was a war between a high-technology country that was using most advanced weaponry, mainly from the air, against a, a low-technology society that had no real means to defend itself. And I immediately was affected by the human side of that kind of one-sided warfare and came to the understanding also that what was at stake was not really a Cold War agenda, but it was a people fighting for their own homeland and to be uh, in, in control of their homeland. And this had been true throughout Vietnamese history, usually in relation to China, uh, but this time in relation to the United States, and they were prepared for a 50-year war. Uh, because they were so dedicated to this idea of national self-determination. It was a time of decolonization. Uh, so it transformed my uh, attitude toward the conflict, uh, expert to being a really engaged citizen, I guess, is the best way to express it. I, 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 you, you, you make an important point. You, you say at the time, so you come back and... Uh, present the legal case as to why the war is a violation of international law. And you write, American foreign policy was not significantly restrained by international law in war peace context here either. You're talking about Vietnam. But political leaders and their chief advisors at least made efforts to reconcile 
and justify policy by law through partisan modes of interpretation, which you argue later in the book is not laws. Yes. Is that yes. correct? Uh, I think uh, the kind of liberal uh, sensibility that was prevalent at that time felt it important to uh, reconcile foreign policy uh, with international law. They stretched the interpretation as I and manipulated it, and uh, in some ways, maybe it was more misleading than to acknowledge that uh, the pursuit of geopolitics was something that transcended law, and uh, that really became the policy uh, later on, where there wasn't much attention given to legal constraints. You make a very interesting point. You you you, you go to South Africa, you you uh, uh, meet Mandela, but you you are you I found this very fascinating. You said that the liberals would argue that they weren't racist at the time uh, and but they supported the apartheid regime in South Africa because they shared with the political leadership in Pretoria an anti-communist outlook that coincided with Washington's policies in conducting the Cold War. So on the one hand, they would say, no, we're not racist, we're, we oppose, but we have to support the apartheid government because of the war against communism. Uh, and I thought that was a really interesting point. I think there's a further point there, uh, which is that they wanted to be credible in the South African context, and yet press for reforms of the racist character of the regime. And so their credibility depended on solidarity with the government on its anti-communism. But they directed it at Vietnam rather than at opponents of apartheid. It was a very interesting experience for me. Yeah, I thought that was fascinating. Very, I thought, and I just want to get this moment. You're called down to the Pentagon to meet with uh, Mort Halperin, the Deputy Assistant Secretary of Defense for International Security Affairs, and Leslie Gelb, who later becomes the head of the Council on Foreign Relations. So, but you, 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 you use that moment to talk about the corruption of intellectuals. These people come out of the academy, uh, you knew them, uh, uh, but but talk a little bit about that, uh, because I thought it was a really important point. Well, it, it, it uh, was somewhat accidental. It was the only time I've ever been in the Pentagon in my life. And I had a colleague at Princeton who was on leave at the Pentagon and who was a friend also. And he knew I was going to Vietnam. And he said, would you mind coming down and talking uh, to Les Gelb and Mark Halford? And they were all friends, and so uh, I agreed. And they said to me, uh, we'll give you a letter from the Secretary of State and Secretary of Defense to take to the leadership of uh, in Hanoi, uh, but we put one condition. You have to agree not to talk publicly against the war. And I couldn't do that for a variety of reasons, but it, it gave me the odd feeling that maybe it was important to talk publicly against the war. People in, at Princeton had always told me, don't speak uh, to the street, speak to Nick Katzenbach at 
the State Department or do something, go to Washington and speak to it. And I'm convinced it was more important to speak at those demonstrations than it would have been to have drinks with uh, important people in Washington. And and so that was that that was an important uh, learning experience for me. And and as I, when I was in Vietnam, I had the uh, I was one of the first people I think that went to Hanoi who had some contest, some credibility as someone who could talk to the American uh, leaders, and they were eager to indicate that they were ready for a peace talk that would lead to uh, uh, the end of the war. And when I came back to... Wait, 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 Richard, we're gonna, we're gonna, we're, we, gotta, we have to stop there. We're going to just take a break. Okay. When we come back, we'll continue our discussion about the collapse of international law with Professor Richard Falk. Yeah. And I... In the news worth knowing can overwhelm you. You can even lose your way. I know you want it all, so let me bring you the best. It's easy. Just press play. Welcome back to On Contact. We continue our conversation about the collapse of international law with Professor Richard Falk. Uh, so before the break, you were talking about how you were in North Vietnam. The leadership at Hanoi was willing to make an arrangement uh, that would have given the United States government far more than Kissinger, who extended the war, uh, uh, eventually got. But I want to uh, get back to just quickly to that point about academia, Gelb, in these figures, uh, because uh, you write in the book that they really sold that once they began working for the centers of power, uh, they really sold their souls to those centers of power uh, in exchange for a small piece of power uh, themselves. And you're constantly running into that. And that's something that you refuse to do. And so that many of these figures who have been your colleagues and friends over many years, uh, in essence, kind of push you out. Uh, I think they, to, uh, using your metaphor, I think they sold their souls before they got to the Pentagon. They were waiting for the phone to ring, a kind of atomic fever that uh, was prevalent, particularly at Harvard, more than Princeton. And um, once they got there, they were ready to play by the rules of that game. And I never was, for whatever reasons, which I tried to understand in the course of the memoir, but I, I'm not sure I did uh, very effectively, I never was motivated to do that. I never wanted, I, I enjoyed the freedom of academic life and teaching and scholarship and activism uh, much more than the lures of power and influence in Washington. And that made me an odd duck. And it sort of made me an odd duck within these elite institutions. Well, that's right. Well, you're quite critical of the elite institutions, but unfortunately we only have a half hour. Um, you talk about geopolitics as trumping international law. Can you explain how that works? Yes, well, I think that what you read in the introduction is the uh, most explicit recognition of that. Because, and 
it, and it flows out of a sense that why the League of Nations failed was because it treated sovereign states equally. And uh, Franklin Roosevelt had the idea that to make the UN work, it would be important to acknowledge the uh, uncontrollability of, of the powerful states. And they happened to be the victorious states in World War II. And so there was that explicit uh, constitutional acknowledgement that law was subordinated to the political will of these powerful states. A Mexican delegate to the UN when it was established said, was asked what kind of institution is this? And he said, we've created an institution that holds the mice accountable, but the tigers roam free. Mm. Ah. And and that's really been the story, at least in peace and security. The UN does a lot of useful things and has uh, adjusted to this uh, geopolitical uh, constraints. And when the geopolitics is right, the UN can be too powerful, as arguably it was in Libya in 2011, because geopolitics used international law in order to justify uh, a war, an interventionary regime-changing war, uh, which left the country in chaos uh, for the next 10 years. Although they didn't publicly say it was regime change. They said it was in defense of the, the liberal interventionist Samantha, Samantha Power defending the people of Benghazi. I want to move on because we, we only have about seven minutes left. And I want to talk about Israel-Palestine. You uh, begin your work as the human rights, uh, the special rapporteur for Occupied Palestine. You yourself are Jewish, and you are just excoriated uh, uh, viciously by Zionist institutions that really seek to discredit uh, you. I mean, terrible forms of character assassination uh, because you're just trying to do your job. Explain what happened. Well, I think what fundamentally happened was that Israel on the substance had very weak arguments because the facts were pretty clear kind of occupation and uh, they felt that it was more important to attack the messenger than to respond to the message. That was I think that was the underlying idea. Of course uh, they were enraged by the fact that uh, I was chosen to be the special rapporteur because I had written previously they uh, knew what to expect in that sense. I had been critical of Israel's policies for quite a long time and uh, had been a close friend of Edward Said and had uh, participated in some public events and so on. And they had lobbied very hard at the Human Rights Council to try to get someone who was more sympathetic uh, to their positions than I was. I used to say that you only had to be 10% objective to reach the conclusions I did, that the uh, violations were so clear and overwhelming and almost acknowledged by uh, Israel's own documentation of what its policies were, that it 
was not really at all uh, controversial to, to reach the conclusions I reached. And everyone familiar with the situation that wasn't a confirmed Zionist uh, agreed with that. You write, I wanted to avoid the folk symmetry so popular in Western liberal discourse that acted as if responsibility for the failure to find peace or even stability lay equally on both sides, which was only a shade more reflective of the realities than was the United States' tendency to condemn Palestinian terrorism and castigate Hamas while turning its blind eye to the most flagrant Israeli violations of international law. You come out and state these kind of truths. Talk about what happened within the media, uh, because you're really shut down. Yes, and, and uh, that, that's something that happened uh, after Vietnam, after Iran, and when I crossed this uh, no-go line of uh, openly and publicly criticizing Israel. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, I, I think that's primarily responsible, and others have uh, endured the same uh, fate as I have. And so I'm often in, invited to speak in Middle East media, even the most uh, mainstream things like Al-Aram in uh, Egypt or Al Jazeera, but, ne- but very rarely in the U.S. I want to note that the Weissman Institute in Los Angeles uh, listed you in 2012 as the third most dangerous anti-Semite in the world on the <laughs> list of ten. You were behind only the Supreme Guide of Iran and the Turkish Prime Minister Erdogan. Uh, yeah, it was, it's absolutely... I felt I was doing good. What's that? It made me feel I was doing a good job. Well, you were, because you have intellectual honesty, which most of these others don't. Uh, one, of the things, one of the points you make is that the UN is able to uh, document uh, pretty accurately the human rights abuses that are carried out by Israel against Palestine, but is utterly defamed in terms of doing anything about it. Why? Well, that's, uh, the, the UN is extremely important and effective on the symbolic level of politics in determining legitimacy of behavior and illegitimacy, but it can't implement its findings because the geopolitical forces can, if they're activated, they can block it. They can block implementation. So on the substance, uh, the UN is ineffective. This throws, uh, in, a, in a sense, it throws responsibility to civil society because uh, civil society is influenced by these symbolic recognitions of legitimacy and illegitimacy, and the global solidarity movement that brought uh, apartheid to an end in South Africa is also uh, focused now on the wrongdoing of Israel and a feeling of some solidarity with the Palestinian struggle for basic rights. The... um you, you, you write that Israel, by making the two-state solution unattainable, has ironically made a one-state solution whose ultimate features may either contradict by loss of Jewish dominance or further discredit by maintaining Jewish dominance via systematic apartheid of their Zionist 
orientation seem almost inevitable. Is that where we're headed? I think so. Um, I think that um, the idea of a Jewish state imposed on a non-Jewish society is not really viable, and in a post-colonial period, the people won't accept it, and we learn that the uh, a nationalist struggle that persists generally prevails, even though it's militarily inferior. And that's the unlearned lesson of Vietnam, actually, is that how did we lose the war, although we've had total military superiority. And this is, in all of the colonial wars, this was a, a dominant feature. Yeah, and that's, of course, how the French were driven out of Algeria, militarily. Uh, they won the conflict, but politically they lost. Uh, that was Professor Richard Falk on his new memoir, Public Intellectual, The Life of a Citizen Bill. My, my. Where are we now, Rama? <laughs> I, I was just thinking of Lady Nada at the UN. Yeah. And... Um, it was very clear that the political status of those five people uh, makes the UN substantively unviable because of the corruption. Yet Lady Nana is part of the UN, right? Yes. Which is uh, giving her uh, um, access to um, two worlds in that role. She can bring the knowledge of the galactic uh, role that she plays as head of the Solar Tribunal on Saturn right into that international body of the UN and checkmate the corruption. Yeah. And again, as we can see, they're starting to, <clears throat> in a way, having to talk about UFOs as of this day. Yes. And Washington Post had something in <clears throat> their paper last week. It's not going to go away. It's going to get bigger. Mm-hmm. So Nasara is on its way, everybody keep this whole situation in our circle of support. And just a little comment, let's keep our our brothers, uh, Don and Doug, and their family, extended family in the circle of support, that all things move well and in good timing for their move from Northern California to Houston, Texas, deep in the heart of Texas. So will it be, and I say that we'll take a little break now, everyone. And then we'll be back with our brother Richard, a look at the stars, and music. Namaste, everyone. So much love. All right, then. Well, hello, everybody. It's been an interesting week. We had, earlier in the week, we had uh, 
conjunct Saturn, and then Moon conjunct Jupiter, and then Moon conjunct Neptune. And uh, early in the morning, about 5 a.m., if you if you have a clear sky and you went out about three or four days ago, you could you could see the moon passing underneath Saturn and Jupiter. It was really nice. Mm-hmm. Of course, you can't see Neptune with a naked eye, but we know it's out there. Mm-hmm. And then we got uh, we got this uh, new moon eclipse coming up in uh, just a couple more days. And everything else is just, you know, dancing over there in Gemini <laughs> with uh, Mars leading the way in, in Cancer now. So that's that's the setup. So let's go see what uh, Kaipacho thinks about the situation. Can we do that? Yes, he's very vociferous. About 28 minutes. All right. Here we go. Hola, it's Kaipacho with the Weekly Pele Report. Can you believe it's freaking June already? Oh, poor Dios. Wednesday, June 2nd, 2021. And there are so many aspects going on. And what that means is when there's a lot of aspects, it means that there's a lot of energy that is tied together, that is acting in unison So, you know, this is when, you know, like, stuff happens. Yeah. Okay, you know, things are woven together very tightly. So let's talk about some of these. I mean, Venus goes into Cancer, like, right now as I'm speaking. You know, she's been in Gemini for a while. Okay, hit Mercury for a while. Now is going on into into Cancer. Today's sun is also in sextile to Chiron. We're going to talk a little bit about that. You know, Chiron and Aries healing the wound of the masculine and of desire. Tomorrow, the sun comes around and is in a very nice trine to Saturn. I mean, really, give it a couple of degrees. Say it's lasting all week. Let's be nice. <laughs> it's great, man. Sun trine Saturn. Very good time. Very good time harmonious flow between self-expression and responsibility. And at the same time, tomorrow, Venus is in trying to Jupiter. So tomorrow, Thursday, you know, that, that's a good day. <laughs> it's a good day. My, my friend would always say, it's a good day to die. <laughs> I think that's what the native indigenous uh, uh, in the United States used to say. Anyway, then what? I tell you what I'm really going to be talking about big time, okay, today, is Mars opposite Pluto. Mars opposite Pluto. Yes, it's exact on Saturday, but Mars is, you know, moving along at a pretty slow pace. It is for sure all week, and it has a lot to do with what the 
mantra is for this week. At the same time, on Saturday, retrograde Mercury comes into a square with Neptune. And, of course, uh, you know, the moon uh, is in Pisces today, but, you know, tomorrow goes into Aries. Saturday, uh, you know, uh, by the time this is happening, uh, the moon comes into that T-square with Mars opposite Pluto. Look out, cardinal T-square, moon in Aries. She conjuncts Chiron, first of all, and then goes into square, Mars and Pluto. Watch out for a passionate, wild weekend, right? And, you know, and then, you know, she moves on and uh, into Taurus. Finally, by uh, Tuesday, she's in Gemini, preparing for what? Next week's solar eclipse. I will be talking about that. Okay, here we go. All right, let's just go for it. Uh, look at I'm a rockhead. <laughs> now you see me, now you don't. Oh, everybody. What's going on? Okay. I'll tell you what's going on. Cancer. Cancer. Venus going into Cancer. Mars already in Cancer. You just had a lunar eclipse. You know, the moon rules Cancer. Okay, we're talking home, roots, family, securities, insecurities, fears, irrational, intuitive, psychic, <laughs> disturbances. <laughs> I mean, it's like, oh boy. You know, Mars is, uh, Mars is, it's the ruler of Aries, which is square to Cancer. It's exalted in Capricorn, and it's what they call in its fall in Cancer. So, we want to really look at this dynamic, okay? Uh, it's been in there for a while, but particularly in aspects of Pluto. Yeah? And so, what we have is this uh, situation, and I, I want to give you the dates. We have to look at the phasal relationship between Mars and Pluto, just like a lunation cycle. New moon, first quarter, crescent, gibbous, full, disseminating, balsamic. There's this, you know, there's eight basic phases to every cycle. Okay, so, the, you know, and right now we're coming around, you know, we had just had the third quarter moon, the third quarter square. It's a half moon, right? Okay, well, Mars was conjunct with Pluto. Okay, uh, that was April 5th of 2020. Go back over a year ago. This is like when COVID was just like spreading out. Right? And we had Mars conjunct Pluto. Okay? In Capricorn. External authority. Patriarchy. Father figures. Government officials. You know, uh, World uh, Health Organization. CDC. Pharmaceutical companies. Big tech. Big corporations. Big pharma. So, you know, this is just like, okay, boom. External authority, really huge at that time. Yeah. And of course, it came around to the first quarter square. 
Mars moved right on through into Aries. And you may remember, I, I talked about it, all through 2020, it was like, oh my God, Mars square Pluto, it was conjunct Aries, right? Direct August 14th, retrograde October 10th, and finally the third pass December 21st. It was like four months. Mars was in Aries for six months, but it was square Pluto, really like August. I mean, so this is just like, I'll talk about what it's like. And now we have the opposition. Yeah. So, you know, we have to look at this bigger cycle. And of course, it will move on. But Mars is the lower octave of Pluto. We know we have a soul, Pluto, because we have desire. Mars. Mars is the personal, egoic desire of I want. I desire. I am. I start. I begin. I initiate. I charge. I go. I am freaking powerful. This is this Mars energy. When it came around to Pluto, each and every one of us I don't know where, you have to look at your chart, you know, where it was 22 degrees of Capricorn, what house, aspecting what planets, look at that, okay, because this was the seed, the seed of a new, like your soul desires coming up into realization of, okay, this is what I want, this is where I'm going, it's time to make a plan. You know, it's time to, like, take control. Capricorn is about control. Safety and security through taking charge and taking responsibility. However, it is also external, right? 10,000 Capricorn is external. Governments, institutions, individuals, bosses, whoever, trying to come down and tell us what to do. So then there was kind of this rebellion, Mars and Aries squaring that Pluto. Am I going to follow the rules and obey and, you know, be a sheep, sheeple, or whatever, you know? Or am I, you know, still going to try to power through? But now, the opposition. The opposition is where the personal desire and the personal will needs to take on a social significance, a social need. It's an integration into society, into relationship. It's not just I, me, I want, I am, I, I, me, me, my, my, my. It's, it's time to also be relevant, be useful, integrate, listen, cooperate, compromise, find a way to have your purpose, my will, okay, do something in the world. It's like coming out. And there's a fear in coming out, a fear of being absorbed, <laughs> Of, of losing 
my truth, my core, myself, my home, my relationship, my job, my money. There's, there's this fear of being swallowed or becoming insignificant or losing my special power, losing control to the other. So this is this conflict, this confrontation. It's like, I, I want to, you know, I want to be something more to the world. I want my life to mean something significant. But in order to do that, I need to stand up for who I am, for what I believe, for what I want. And it involves conflict. It involves confronting. It involves, you know, okay, here's the laws, here's the rules, here's what other people want, what other people need, what other people are afraid of. And I, you know, need to, like, navigate these relationships. The great thing is, number one, Venus coming into Cancer. She's going to mellow it out a little bit. Thank goddess, right? And then the sun coming around through Gemini in trine to Saturn and Aquarius. Let's talk about it. This is a time for those intentional dialogues. This is a time for as nonviolent a communication as you can muster. <laughs> the tendency... Mars and Cancer is like boiling water. It's steamy. Okay? It's passionate. And, and it reverts back. Here's the danger and why they say I think Mars is in its fall in Cancer. Just think of babies. When a baby's hungry, it just starts crying. It can just start screaming. And especially before they can talk. You don't even know what's going on, man. It's just like, ah, you know, the kid is freaking out. He's like freaking screaming, you know. He could have a dirty diaper. He could be hungry. He could be tired. You don't know. You know, it's like, oh, my, eh. We all, <laughs> we all have this inner child. I don't care how old you are. We all have very basic reptilian brain, you know, instincts and fears. And the fear can be that cancer wants emotional security, a safe home where I can take off my armor and my shell of my crab and just be vulnerable, cry, feel tap into my psychic intuition without being threatened, without being, you know, like, triggered. Mars in Cancer is easily triggered and can get very defensive and overreact emotionally. Oh, my God, you know. Uh, I'm being attacked. They're trying to take my home or my money or, you know, I don't feel safe with this or that or that, or that, or that, or that. you know, all these, you know, corporations and big pharma and, you know, my partner or my boss or whoever, you know, 
people are trying to control me and people are trying to dominate me. And, and this inner child, non-rational, non-linear, non-logical, it's just raw emotion. I've got to be me. My feelings count. My feelings matter. My feelings are important. I don't care what you want or what you say or that. You know, there can be this like really like. <laughs> so the mantra, you know, the mantra this week, you know, is like you know we're gonna be feeling it. We're gonna be feeling it, right? We want to take back some control in our lives, of our destiny. It's been kind of taken, you know. You got to wear a mask on the airplane, okay. You got to do this. You got to get shot. You got to take the jab. You've got to stay home. You've got to da 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 We have had like, you know, this whole Pluto in Capricorn, you know, this whole great reset where, you know, the great big... External power figures are trying to control our freaking lives. There's this inner child that is just kicking and screaming. And what we want to be able to do as mature adults is be, you know, more of a mother than a baby. The moon rules cancer. So there's also the mature mothering, nurturing, sensitive, caring aspects of cancer. And, and, and what this is, you know, what, what she is about, you know, is that, you know, we can, you know, in a, in a mature way, honor our little, I, I say, carry your child right on your left shoulder. Check in this week. How are you feeling? Kaipachi, Kaipachi, <laughs> you know, I, you know, do you like this person? How does that feel? You know, when they say that, is that, you know, that we want to, we want to, you know, be parents for our inner child. We want to, we want to create safe relationships. We want to create safe home environments. We want to create a sense of emotional security. And we can only give that emotional security to ourselves. The downside, okay, of that cancer energy can be jealousy, emotional jealousy, emotional manipulation. It can, uh, you know, come out in terms of, you know, revenge and irrational actions taken to preserve or, you know, save or cling. This is the other aspect of cancer, is the past. And we just had that lunar eclipse conjunct the south node. It is time to let go of old ways of dealing with relationships and emotional bonds and connections and find new ways to communicate, new ways to express our needs, 
and our fears that are not disturbing, aggressive, violent, uh, you know, shameful or just, you know, selfish or it's finding that balance where we're not, we don't lose ourselves. We're not absorbed or controlled or, you know, afraid of losing somebody. So we, you know, do weird stuff and we're not throwing the baby out with the bathwater. We're, we're not just like, I've got to be me. I've got to be free. Screw you. I'm going to go on my own. That's, that's kind of like refusing to enter society relationship. That's going back to the past. I'm going to just go back to the way I've always been. The, you know, the, 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 you know, the way that it always was my old home, my old, uh, you know, response to the world. My old way of doing it. It's not going to work. So we, it's like we can't lose ourselves, but we can't be too selfish. You know, we, you know, we can't, uh, you know, just like be everything that everybody else wants. We do need to establish clear boundaries and limits, you know, around what I'm going to give up and what I'm going to sacrifice. And, you know, how I'm going to bow down to your needs and desires and kiss your feet and blah, 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 blah. We need to, we need to draw some lines there without making those lines all about. <laughs> it's my way or the highway. <laughs> you can just get lost if you don't like it. <laughs> you know, I mean, <laughs> that's kind of like, you know. I don't know if you know anybody like that. Alright, so the, the mantra for this week, right? I am sick and tired of doing what I'm told to do. Pluto and Capricorn, Saturn and Aquarius. And this is like Uranus square that Saturn, Mars and Cancer opposite that Pluto. I've got to be free. If I'm to be me and get into something new, feel it, it's okay to feel it. It's okay to have some emotional anger. You know, it's it's okay to be pissed off. Life is not a walk in the park. <laughs> you know? And the law and the people and the governments and the banks and the whoever, you know, it's like, yeah, it's like, well, we will get swallowed up if we do not assert who the hell we are. And sometimes the way we find out who we are is only through asserting ourselves, right? It's like, it's when you're triggered, where somebody says something, or they tell you what to do, and you don't want to do that, or you don't believe that, or you think that they're lying, or they're wrong, or da 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 That actually, you know, it's like when we're triggered, it helps us to see, oh, 
you know, we can use our anger as litmus tests, <laughs> you know. This is okay by me. This is not all right. This is not cool. I can't compromise that much without sacrificing my future, my comfort, my security, my identity, my home, my roots, myself. So this is a time, you know, where, okay, you know, we, we, we put it out there and it's very good. Sun, trine, Saturn. This is really an excellent time. Now, Mercury retrograde. Okay, Mercury retrograde is, let us reflect about it. Let us talk about it. Let us, you know, really delve into and understand the deeper underlying feelings, fears, and needs. It's not necessarily a time to, okay, you know, maybe we got to wait a little bit. Wait till... Wait till Mercury goes direct before you sign the paper. You know, you know, get the, you know, break up or, you know, get together or quit the job or take action. Now is more a time to talk, reflect, meditate, contemplate, dialogue, you know, and like really do the retrograde Mercury process. And then when Mars, especially when Mars gets out of Cancer, moves into Leo, Mercury goes direct. We have this new moon, solar eclipse, <laughs> next week. So at least now is the time more of saying maybe that I'm kind of done with this and I, I don't really like that or I don't want that anymore in my life or I... You know, it may be time of like release, clear out the closet, clean out the cobwebs. You know, it's maybe time to let go of the past and maybe hang. Hang in the place of not knowing. You got to let go and make space before sometimes the new path, destiny reveals itself. And we can be very afraid of the void. We, we can be, and this can be, this can be a week where we're kind of needing to hang out alone or hang out in our truth or hang out with ourselves in the void, letting go of the past without knowing the future. Ah! <laughs> Try not to freak out, babe. So I got a couple of songs, right? I mean, I don't know how, how relevant, but Father and Son by Cat Stevens is a very good one that I feel carries the theme, the energy of this week. Yeah, you know, it's like, it's just not me anymore, right? I've got to be me. And the other one, I don't know, it's just kind of a more rock and roll, Leonard Skinner, man, Sweet Home Alabama. Where the skies are so blue. Sweet home, Alabama, I'm coming home to you. Come home. Come home to yourself. Come home to your truth. Own it. 
you don't need to be ashamed of it or or try to explain it or you are you. <laughs> I am sick and tired of doing what I'm told to do. I've got to be free if I'm gonna be me and get into something new. May you get into something new. Yeah. Loving it, baby. Namaste. Aloha. <laughs> so much love. <laughs> Venus trying Jupiter. I didn't even get to that. I mean, this is such a, it's a, it's a really good time to, in a mellow way, assert yourself. You can do this. You can do this. Want, 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 want. 
Not yeah. unlike some adults that never leave that stage. <laughs> well, yeah, we we know about those dysfunctional adults. Yes. Mm-hmm. Anyway, so that's that's the that's the that's the deal with 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 the Mars in Cancer in fall. Uh, so it's it's a good thing. I guess I, I'm gonna I'm gonna sit on it being a good thing, you know, and uh, and then of course we got Mercury going retrograde. Oh my! I, you know, I I knew I knew and I've known that Mercury's retrogrades are in air signs this year. So Mercury retrograde, and so let's uh, you know what that means, right? It means curb your Curb your enthusiasm for travel, among among other things. So, right. uh, yeah. Well, let's go see what Tanya's got going on this week. Okay, here we go. Welcome to Star Codes. This is Tanya Gabrielle, Wealth Astrologist, and today we are diving into the second of two eclipses that really start off or end a season and then begin a new season, and it is the Gemini New Moon Solar Eclipse, a really highly positive new moon eclipse that happens on June 10th at 11.52 a.m. Universal Time in London, 6.52 a.m. Eastern Time New York, and 3.52 a.m. Pacific Time L.A. And, of course, you don't need to be a Gemini or have Gemini as your rising sign. Somewhere in your chart, this new moon eclipse is taking place. So it's impacting everyone. And this time around, we have a very exciting concurrent event going on and that is Mercury the ruler of Gemini and the ruler of this eclipse will be in retrograde and Mercury not only will be in retrograde but it will be conjunct merged with the sun and moon in Gemini so we have a lot to cover in this forecast first of all the impact of Gemini the impact of a triple square from the sun moon and Mercury to Neptune and that will cover things like fantasy versus reality and also an opposition that brings a sense of investigation and purging between Mars and Pluto. So this is a big one. This is, like I said, the second of two eclipses. And basically what we're focusing on is Gemini's ability to be practical, to use the practical mind, to focus on facts, and also, of course, communication, words. And in 2021, we're really aligning with the the sense of truth with a capital T. 21 is the number of truth in the ancient Egyptian star code. And The 21st century is uncovering a lot of truths and we're only, what, 21 years into it, 
So we have a lot more time to go. But this year in particular is very, very important because it resonates to the number of the century. So in order to dive into what truth means to you, we need to look at each one of us what we really want. And this question is vital because the answer determines where your energy, your focus, your attention and your resources go. So your answer is likely to determine what you're going to get. And sometimes you're not even aware of what you want. That's very common as well. And other times you may be aware of it, but you put yourself through like agony. (laughs) You know, it's like, do I want this? Do I not? So the problem with wanting things, with desiring things, is that you have a lot of these kinds of wants and desires. And Many of them really seem like they're important to your life, even essential to you being happy. And the mind, again, Gemini rules the lower practical mind. The mind has a way of framing a desire as essential and important when it often is not. And so not the practical rational mind that Gemini Governs, but I'm talking more the egoic mind has this ability because it's the irrational part, not the rational part. And the irrational part reflects your conditioning that you've taken on. And that includes your beliefs and your desires. And so when we have a lot of desires for our life, it keeps us super busy because we're constantly trying to make them happen. Yet all of our desires, whether they're material or whether they're a desire for a relationship, whatever the case may be, success, they can be reduced actually to a few deeper soul urges. So if you yearn for anything, whether it is material or a relationship or success, what is it that you really want? Is it admiration? Is it love? Is it belonging? And if you already felt those in your life, if you already felt loved and a sense of belonging and admiration, would you still want those things? Would they have less meaning? Would they carry their responsibility, which is often quite heavy, of providing you with love and admiration? For example, in a relationship, if you go for a relationship in order to have, to, because you crave love, responsibility, love, admiration, and a sense of belonging, then you're putting a heavy responsibility on the relationship, right? What's appropriate is, is the companionship in a relationship and the value of the material belonging in terms of the practical value that it gives us. So what is underlying that yearning, those desires we have of wanting love and wanting admiration and wanting to belong? What would these give you? Is it more that you're sensing to be at peace, to be at rest, And isn't that really the underlying urge? And so this goes really for anything you want. And so it's important to see that what we expect from the things we want is really not appropriate. Most things that we want only give us a fraction of what it is we're seeking, actually seeking. And the deeper things such as happiness and peace and love 
don't come from those material things. They don't come from the accomplishments. They don't come from the other person in the relationship, but they come from a state of mind or more accurately uh, a state of your heart. And those deeper things then reflect how you are being, the way of being, right? The way you are being in your life. They are how you are in your life and they have nothing to do with what you're accumulating, uh, where you live, who do you think you are. So this eclipse in Gemini is very important because it it is helping us to look much more simply at how to achieve this state of peace, this state of happiness, this state of being. And the only way to do that is to unmask the illusion the mistaken belief that peace and happiness are not here now and that you have to do something to get those, that happiness and peace. And so this is why that square, that triple square to Neptune is so important because Neptune can represent illusion. And so we're being awakened now that we don't need to have something, get something, do something to be happy and to be at peace. That's something the mind presumes, the irrational mind. So the secret really is to stop trying to do something to be happy and to be at peace. The secret is to just stop it and then to just be. So to be present in the moment without all those ideas and all those beliefs and all those desires about what you want to be or how you want to be in the future, right? Because it it certainly isn't anything to do with the present moment when we have these desires. So when we switch it up and say, well, what is true for right now? And what is the experience that I'm having right here and now? Which starts with the breath, breathing in and out. What else can can, can we be aware of? Well, how about, is there peace in this moment? Is there happiness? Do I feel a sense of love? Because they're all here, peace and happiness and love. So this is really an easy solution, right? And it sort of is boring to the mind because the mind, you know, if you know the energy of Gemini, it's very active. And if you listen to the mind to come to this present state, you're letting the mind take you away from those simple moments. So breathing in and out, simplifying things, just doing that, just being right here and now in this moment, that is how we align to the truth, to what the moment is like. And then we can sense whether there is peace and love and happiness. We don't then need to chase it and look for it and just be able to delight in how life is right now. So this is really the freedom and the love that we've always wanted and that we've always looked for in our life, that that amazing sense of understanding that comes from when we realize we are love and we are peace and we are exactly what we are looking for externally. We are made of love and peace. So why go and search for it? 
right? It's here right now, that stillness of just being. So in the moments when we're not experiencing that underlying real yearning of happiness, love, and peace, then we have to, this is again where Gemini comes in, we have to declare our desire for them in some way. So, and it's not an empty declaration, it's just words. So with this intention, we must turn our attention away from what distracts from the peace and the love that are there. And we must turn our attention away from what lies the mind has created about life and how we, what we think will make us happy. And so our declaration is really a choice that we make. We are choosing to shift our attention to the present moment. And it's actually not that difficult to do. It's not hard work in that sense. It's very, very simple especially since we turn our attention to many things many times a day, right? So it's it's not something that we don't know how to do, moving our attention from one thing to another. But in, in order to experience that love and peace and happiness that we desire, we need to shift our attention about the ideas we have about who we are, what to think, you know, anything we think will make us happy, we need to shift that and just let it go. Keep our attention on the here, on the now. And if your attention drifts away again, which it inevitably will, then you again shift your attention to the present moment. So you can bring your attention to the present moment through the breath, which many do through meditation. Or we can simply do a sensing of the body. This is really powerful too, because when you get a sensation physically, it literally anchors your body, which is literally the human home that we have to experience human life on earth. And so the mind is used to experience what is subjective and internal and to a large extent conditioning while the body is really there, it registers what actually is happening. So getting those sensations in the body, like tingling down, you know, the back of your spine, whatever the case may be, um, this is how it is to be at peace with reality without that overlay of the mind. It's very simple. And again, the mind will be looking for more complex situations the mind will carry on and, you know, you then need to decide who you are. Do you want to get lost in the mind or do you want to be conscious of what it is that's going on in your life right now? So that consciousness is very important because you have, you finally realize that you are none of the things that are going on and on that voice that keeps turning and turning in your mind, you are literally the consciousness that moves in and out of using your practical mind and then being inspired, right? So the triple square to Neptune is 
extremely important in this regard because it brings to light the difference between inspiration and living in a fantasy. The difference between planning something which is of practical use to the rational mind and then fantasizing about the future, you know, fantasizing is very egoic. It's all about how you will appear. You are the center of that fantasy. And so fantasies are literally all about you, how you look, how you're going to come across, what you're going to say, how others respond to you. And, you know, people spend time thinking about themselves in these future situations as if it serves them some purpose. But fantasizing is just the ego's way of managing life, trying to control it. And it really doesn't work because fantasizing pretends to be useful, but it's really not useful at all. Um, it is a fantasy of you. It is not reality. It's not the rational mind, the practical mind at work. It's the egoic mind, which functions from a delusional, um, you know, it functions from illusion. It functions from the, the shadow side of Neptune. So it's good to realize this because the ego isn't representative of you. It's, it certainly doesn't give a true picture of who you are. It's made up of ideas about yourself that you've gathered from others and believed to be true because the voice in your, your head said it was so. But moment to moment, the voice in your head tells you a lot of things are so. And, you know, these thoughts and evaluations are not real, right? They're just showing up in your mind and you think you thought them and you actually didn't because it's really, you are not your thoughts. They seem to come out of your mind, so they seem to be you, but they just appear. They're from your subconscious, from your unconscious. The, again, the Neptune, the memories, the conditioning, the beliefs, the experiences that that happened to you, the things people told you along the way, the things you read, the things you learned, the, the things that even negative entities told you. So at the time of this eclipse now in Gemini that forms this triple square to Neptune, your unconscious thoughts will come to light, especially since Mercury, ruler of Gemini, and the solar eclipse is in retrograde. So it's bringing a wonderful sense of reflection. So the memories you have, the many things that your unconscious mind has you at the center of and that are stored in your unconscious mind or pictures of yourself, this is, this is where you've gotten your true sense of self, your self image, your, your identification and images again, imagination, fantasy, but they're not really who you are. So the unconscious mind creates these identities, right? Out of all these pieces of information and says, this is who you are, but you are not this. I mean, not even close. So this is how the unconscious mind can limit you. And it's going to come up now. Uh, This very energy that is able to see the truth about a situation is going to speak out. So you want to be able to be objective about the information that shows up. And that means you're not limited by it. You're not defined by it. Um, You really understand 
that the memories and stories and images and beliefs are that. They are just fantasies. And so the true consciousness, the divine consciousness that is animating your body and uses the rational mind at times when it's appropriate and then gets caught in the irrational voice in your head at other times, you are that consciousness. You go in and out of identifying with your thoughts and being aligned to your divine consciousness. And when this consciousness is not identified with thoughts, that's when you are at peace. Remember, the rational mind is for practical purposes only. So when you bask in your divine self, the divine self is it is in charge. It regains its divine experience. It regain, regains all the treasures that come with experiencing life in the present moment, that love, that peace, that joy, that compassion, the strength, the courage, the wisdom, the clarity are all there, right? So you are a spark of God. You are a soul who has chosen to sometimes lose your connection to God, to experience being human for a relatively brief time in history, but you're an eternal being, so there's always the choice you have to return to that understanding of who you truly are. And once you realize this, you can get on with being your divine self and sharing your divine self with the world. And your divine self knows exactly how to be in life at any given moment in a way that is joyful, kind, and wise. And you don't need to fantasize ahead of time about what you're going to do. You can plan ahead practical in a practical way using that practical Gemini mind. But really be be careful about not using this mind in a way that is not intended. So your divine self is completely tuned in to whatever is necessary in any given moment. And this is who you are. You are a spark of God. So those are the main messages, the spiritual messages for this powerful, exciting Gemini solar eclipse. It is all about how you show up and how you communicate and interact with the divine and also to know the difference between when you are in a human experience and your consciousness is aware of that and, and moving yourself out of that into having a divine experience that is not pulled in opposite directions and starts all the egoic tendencies that we're aware of where we separate ourselves from others, become judgmental, etc. So it's very important to be aware of how we use that practical mind and how we turn to our spiritual heart for all other matters. And the way to do that is, is literally just to get away from the distractions of that voice in your head, moving into the present moment and being in that eternal sense of communication, right? That comes from breathing and listening. So have an incredible solar eclipse in Gemini and remember that you have a soul code as well, just like 
We talked about the star codes for these wonderful celestial events. Your soul code emerged from a blueprint at the moment of your birth. And if you want to find more about your soul code, go to a free masterclass I created for you at starcodeclass.com. All you need is your birthday, your birth certificate name, and if you have it, your place of birth and time of birth. So enjoy that free masterclass. Have an amazing eclipse. And I'll see you in next week's Star Codes podcast. Lots of love. Gemini is a tumultuous labor demonstration. The revolutionary impact of mental concepts upon the collective emotions and desires of man. Ooh. Wow. <laughs> yeah, I like 22 Gemini better. That's dancing couples in a harvest festival. Big difference. Big difference of one degree. Holy cash. Yeah, see, the 22 Gemini is the wholesome enjoyment of organic processes and emotional drives. See, you still got the emotional component there, right? So, Richard, does that mean that 2022 is going to be that that big of a difference from 2021, too, as well? I mean, well, I, again, that brings in metaphysical numerology, doesn't it? Uh huh. <laughs> uh huh. We, yeah. Well, you know, 2020 sucked um, in many ways. Uh, 2021, again, is a transition phase. 2022 is an election year in the United States. But um, let me read 21 Gemini here. Um, this symbol parallels the one which began the process of exteriorization. That's the second half of Gemini. But the process is seen here operating definitively at the level of collective responses. And we got a lot of groups out there doing their collective thing, right? The mass of men have been aroused by mental images, slogans, and an appetite for the abundance the ruling class enjoys ruling class and quotes there all right yeah so that that brings up uh 
class structures uh, everywhere, right? This also applies to the individual person in whom contrasting spheres of activity have taken shape as the result of the mind-based individualizing process. The organic functions make their collective demands upon the lordly intellect. The stage may be set for the kind of revolution we call psychoneurosis. So a lot of psychoneurosis going around on this planet. Whereas with 22 Gemini, we have an image in strong contrast to the first of this series from the mind-built city where workmen claim a larger sphere of social abundance. Uh -huh, that's the labor movement, isn't it? We find ourselves in the village where men and women live in far greater harmony with natural and seasonal processes, giving free rein to their emotional instincts. The two poles of a wholesome society, the large industrial city and the agricultural village, should be included. Likewise, the two poles of a healthy personality mind and natural emotions should be active. This contrasting second stage of the 17th sequence of five symbols, it stresses the value of rhythmic, healthful activity in a natural setup, for this leads to an often much-needed process of bioenergetic rebuilding. Now, that's in a bioenergetic rebuilding. Okay, that's like getting healthy again, right? Mm -hmm. Getting healthy, yeah. So we got we got that going on. Now, mm -hmm. he also, yeah, I'm gonna check something. He mentioned Pluto being a being a 22 Capricorn. Kaipacha oh. did right. Yeah. And let's just, just for grins, let's just chuck in on 22 Capricorn. 22 Capricorn, which is uh, in conjunct 22 Gemini, is uh, by accepting defeat gracefully, a general reveals nobility of character. And this is the realization that one may grow through defeat as well as, and perhaps more than, through success. So let the external authority grow through some defeat. How about that, huh? <laughs> We, you know, we're supposed to pray for our leaders. Okay, so I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna send them some realization that they will grow much more 
through defeat than through success of their evil plans. Mm-hmm. Boom. Boom. It's 10 o'clock on the East Coast, so I will bid you all adieu for the week. I wish you all a good week. Eclipse on the 10th, which will be Thursday. Sunday is six Monday. Yeah, that'll be that'll be Thursday. So we yes, got, Thursday. That's right. We got that. We got that to look forward. May this may this eclipse bring? Oh yeah, see, we got that Mercury retrograde, and that's gonna bug me for three weeks. Yeah. I don't care. Yeah, I don't. It actually goes to the 22nd of June. There's another 22. Yeah. Uh-huh. <laughs> that's, that's right. Uh-huh. Yeah, that's our summer solstice. Yeah, that's true. Oh, oh my goodness. Uh, that's, all, that, that's only 16 days away till the 21st. And they go real fast, Richard. <laughs> Yeah, time flies when you're having fun. Yeah, we are. All right. All right, Commander. Namaste. Namaste. See you on the bridge and in your (laughs) dreams. Aloha, everybody. We got to go to the conference call. Rama, what's the number? Um, 720-716. Seven three zero one, and the pin code three five three eight six three pound. So we will see you there uh, for the next hour, and we'll be right back here at BBS Radio Station Two uh, at the top of the very next hour. Best radio station in the galaxy. <laughs> see you on the conference, everyone. So. Much love. Namaste. Welcome back, everybody. Uh, nothing a good a good piece of music won't cure everyone. Okay, Rama selected this piece we're going to play here. We shared a bit about these. Um, these videos on Thursday, and I'll, I'll just bring it back here. This is uh, called Deep Space, Energy Secrets of the Great Pyramid. I'm getting there. Yeah, you're getting there. I'll read this. New evidence suggests that the Great Pyramid on the Giza Plateau were used to generate electrical power. Try as we might. We still cannot replicate how the pyramids were built, let alone, let alone tap into their original purpose. We must let go of the mainstream notion that the pyramids were tombs or that they were built only 4,500 years ago. Mm-mm. Our team of experts have been to these locations, gathered the evidence, and present a convincing case 
that an ancient civilization, possibly of extraterrestrial origin, not possibly, absolutely, created the structures at Giza. Actually, the um, the pyramid, the pyramids were built on Aldebaran, mm-hmm. and they were brought here in starships and lowered to the ground and. We made up some pretty creative stories about how they got here. They didn't want to talk about that, so they made slaves out of the humans, and that didn't happen, folks. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So, anyway, they created the structures at Giza to generate massive amounts of power, a power we can still tap into through the proper tuning of sound, vibration, and consciousness. And we've got Desiree and J.J. Hertek here, and Christopher Dunn and John Enoch, Andrew Collins and Mohammed Ibrahim. Oh, quite a team. Let's do it, Rama. Mm. And you keep after those Dickens while you're having mm. everybody listen because they're getting in more trouble by the second. <laughs> by the Great Pyramid in Egypt. How were people of the time able to create this massive structure? The Great Pyramid in the Giza Plateau is the oldest monument of its size. It was created to such perfection that modern technology cannot structurally replicate it, let alone envision its full potential. More than 150 years after the academic establishment of Egyptology, there still appears to be little agreement between scholars on the function of the Great Pyramid of Giza. Is it possible that a highly advanced civilization existed in prehistory? If so, is the Giza Pyramid a remnant of their technology? The, the theory that the pyramids were tombs, and that, that is obviously the academic position in terms of the analysis of them. And the evidence to support that theory, uh, they, they don't really have that much evidence. In fact, most of the evidence that you find in the, the pyramids, the Great Pyramids, specifically argues against tomb theory. There has never been in all the three pyramids on the Giza Plateau, any bodies ever found in the sarcophagi. So, no, they probably were not tombs. The reason I don't think it's a tomb is because of how intricate it's designed. I mean, just look at it, for example. We know that it's made of granite, sandstone, and limestone, essentially operating like a Faraday cage. If we look at what granite is, which most of our pyramids on the planet share this component, granite is composed of something called silica. And from silica, we get silicon like you use in microchips. And this is a great insulator and conductor of electromagnetic energy. 
just like you'd see with quartz crystal, where you get piezoelectrical energy. Thus, when we see this structure and how it operates, what we have to ask ourselves, why would you take so much time and effort to put together something that has all these various components and chambers and ways of operating to just use it as a tomb. If you think about it, why would the highly advanced civilization capable of using such precise mathematical equations and precision build this for storing dead bodies? Mainstream archaeologists estimate the age of the Great Pyramid in Giza to be approximately 4,500 years old. Others contend it's much older. When researchers look back at the Orion constellation and how it would have appeared to earthly observers over centuries past, the age of the Giza Pyramid appears to date back to around 10,500 B.C., while other researchers suggest It's even older. Alternatively, others go as far to suggest that the pyramids were not built by the indigenous population of Egypt, but in fact predate the Egyptian culture and, more significantly, were built by a conglomerate of cooperative ET races. While the date and method of the pyramid's construction is highly disputed, It is generally agreed that there were more than 2.3 million limestone and granite blocks, ranging in weight from 2 to up to 30 tons each, quarried and transported from Aswan, more than 500 miles away. The largest of these stones are estimated to weigh as much as 50 to 80 tons or approximately the combined weight of 80 average-sized cars. In my opinion, it's clear that the structure and design of the Great Pyramid is not simply some kind of tomb like you may have in a, a cathedral or in a churchyard. It's there with a specific function in mind. It generates an energy which can be not only felt, by whoever enters inside the structure that can actually be detected using scientific instrumentation. The reason for building the Great Pyramid remains an enigma. Due to their precise alignment with the stars, many researchers speculate the Great Pyramid may have been a type of portal to the cosmos. Others have speculated that the pyramid may have been used as an energy-generating technology for various purposes. Either way, what can be certain is that the builders possess highly sophisticated knowledge of mathematics and geometry. They had knowledge of the true dimensions of the Earth to extreme precision, and they possessed exceptionally advanced technical instrumentation to site the Great Pyramid. Within the Great Pyramid is extraordinary precision within its design and the engineering and the sheer finish of it. I mean, we're dealing with blocks made of granite, granite which is one of the the hardest substances in the world to work, and you're talking about the precision cutting of this as much as 4,600 years ago. But then 
the placement of it to a level that's certainly below 1% of precision and to such a degree that you're not even able to put a piece of paper between the different courses of the exterior facing blocks. So you have to ask yourself, why did they need such precision? Today's buildings, if you're laying down a footing, a foundation for a building, you are required to hold the accuracy, flatness, within 20,000 per linear foot. If you take that over the acreage that the great, of the Great Pyramid, you have a, a base of 13 acres. And so using 20 thousandths of an inch per foot, you could be out 15 inches based on modern specs or modern requirements, whereas the actual variance of being a perfectly flat plane on the Great Pyramid, instead of being 15 inches, it's less than an inch, seven-eighths of an inch. So they were working at a high degree of accuracy. So when you look at the building builders that we have today or masonry work, you don't find that kind of accuracy. If you look at the interior design, the schematics of the Great Pyramid, to me, it looked more like the inner workings of a machine than a building or a, a tomb or cathedral or anything like that. And taking the appearance and then discovering the precision of these inner chambers, it occurred to me that something that ha had the precision of a machine, that had the appearance of a machine, well, perhaps it was a machine. If the pyramid is a machine, then for what possible purpose? What if, in the ancient past, someone wanted to build an instrument to generate light and energy? Light can be created if the machine can emit charged particles into the ionosphere. Like the aurora borealis, where electrons created by the sun collide with air molecules to create light. What would it take for the Great Pyramid to create a similar energetic emission? To accomplish that goal, high conductivity material at high frequency is required. A limestone is a very conductive material for electricity. And when you look to the inner design of the pyramid, you'll find that uh, the most important part of the pyramid, which is the so-called the uh, king chamber, is completely built from uh, granite, rose granite from Aswan. And we understand that granite contains quartz on it. Especially that rose granite, it contains 13% of its molecular structure of quartz. So as if it is serving a very good need, because if it is any other type of granite, it will contain less than 10%, sometimes 6% or 5%. So 13% is serving high purpose. Also, the design of the shafts and the uh, tunnels inside the pyramid, it indicates that there are paths of movements or like it's energy movements inside the pyramid. It comes from the top of the pyramid, goes to the depths of the ground or the opposite. It comes from the uh, deep levels of the ground and continue up to the middle of the pyramid and then to the top of the pyramid until leaving from the summit of the pyramid. So for sure, the pyramid was our plant and there are so many evidences. 
The National Research Center of Cairo analyzed limestone from the region of Aswan. It was discovered that its conductance improves at higher frequency to an exceptional degree. In addition to its structural strength, limestone is highly conductive. The Great Pyramid of Giza has a few chambers, shafts, and passages. Each of these elements potentially served an important role in the pyramid's function. The Great Pyramid of Giza is just the upper part of a massive underground power system that you can only understand if you have the opportunity to use ground penetrating radar or be fortunate enough to go underground as we did by scientific team in the 1970s, 80s, and 90s to look at the unusual complex of water tunnels and passages that bring water in from the Nile that then is recycled underground providing an energy source of energy differentials between fresh water and salt water. It is my hypothesis that the Great Pyramid represents the floor plan of a gigantic earth battery that the Egyptians used very carefully and left behind as a model by virtue of the storage rooms also underground underneath the Giza Plateau as a showing of a simplified way free energy. While many experts agree the Giza Pyramid was a structure to generate power, they have slightly different theories about how this was accomplished. So to describe the uh, the Giza power plant, um, we go back to the source of, of the energy that feeds into it. We, we go to the Earth. The Earth is the power source, and the Great Pyramid is tapping into it. Well, how did it do that? Principally, you have mechanical energy uh, flowing through the Great, the great Pyramid. Uh, the Great Pyramid is caused to resonate with the Earth. That is the, the fundamental function. And when it resonates with the Earth, energy is drawn through it. And so once it's primed, it becomes like a coupled oscillator. A coupled oscillator is a device that's attached to a larger vibrating body it's uh, in tune or harmonically tuned to that uh, larger vibrating body. And as long as the vibrating body continues to feed energy or vibrate, then the coupled oscillator will vibrate in sympathy with it. It will draw energy from it. I was one of the founders of the Osiris tomb. Over a hundred feet down under the Giza Plateau, there's lots of water. And yet you have a huge sarcophagi. So why would you have the sarcophagus in the middle of water? Why would you have temples along the Nile that are flooded with water? Well, perhaps if they were energy generators using water, using solar technology, which is plentiful in Egypt. The pyramid was used as an energy structure to show us how we could harness the water energy system that ran closely along the Great Pyramids. Water thus was used and managed by pressure and by the relationship of chambers interconnected with each other to provide a water circulatory system, a hydraulic system of a continual feedback system 
of emptying the saltwater chambers to those of fresh water and vice versa. To running water over electrodes, salt water over electrodes, where the sodium chloride ions were removed and electricity was produced. A simple electrical charge and discharge system was there in place beneath the pyramid. I proposed in the southern shaft carried dilute hydrochloric acid and then the northern shaft carried hydrated zinc. And so what I was seeing supported the theory and that one of the, those electrodes was electroplated where, you know, some of the metal was actually uh, uh, deposited on, on one of the electrodes. And then in the northern shaft, you have a, a, quite a lot of erosion in that shaft. You have the, the creation of uh, gypsum oozing out of some of the cracks. And then you have a, um, a condition where the lower parts of the shaft were more eroded than the upper parts which makes sense considering that you would have a higher concentration of the acid towards the bottom than you would the top. So that seems to confirm the theory that they were using that as a reaction chamber and everything seemed to make sense. And they found some very, very interesting and I, I would say evidence of electrical symbols painted on, on the floor behind the door, they had these loops, metal fittings came outside of the back of the door and looped around and then went back in. So it was almost like they were locking those uh, electrodes in place so they, they wouldn't shift. If metal had been placed there, those could have been the anodes and the cathodes for energy generation. This is a great possibility that the pyramid itself was an energy factory. One emerging theory suggests that the pyramid was a power plant for Tesla-like free energy. To achieve this, it's believed that the Queen's Chamber was used as a power collector. Originally, the Queen's Chamber, as well as the entire pyramid, was covered in a polished white limestone. With the top of the pyramid, covered with crystal and gold at the apex. As particles funneled down from the atmosphere toward the earth and through the pyramid, the insulating properties of the piezoelectrically charged white limestone in the queen's chamber prevented the electrical particles from returning back into the atmosphere. Connecting to the aquifers below, they created a concentrated differential of charges between sky and earth. This would be like having a continuous lightning bolt with regulated voltage. The unique thing to understand is that between sky and earth, there is a charge in polarity, depending on atmospheric circumstances. Even today in the underground chamber, there are traces of cables and metal structures for grounding. It's dry now, but water was flowing, creating a grounding effect. The suggestion is that there is now a place of continuous charge creating free energy. That is why they're on the ley lines, giving them a greater connection to the ground, essentially. It only concentrates the charge differential between sky and earth. It is the planet itself that creates the energy. In short, it is pure Tesla, as we would reference it today. 
While experts explore the physical evidence of the Great Pyramid as a power-generating technology, the design elements also suggest the importance of acoustics. Every room, from the highest chamber to the lowest chamber, was thought out and designed beforehand. Even the so-called unfinished or subterranean chamber right within the bedrock itself hundreds of feet beneath the pyramid was specifically designed with acoustics in mind. It was being chiseled away until they reached a, a point where they said, that's it, stop. We've, we've achieved exactly the acoustics we need to generate certain sound frequencies. We need go no further. So they left it the way that it was. And those same sound frequencies can be detected to die, which is exactly what we have done. The Great Pyramid has always attracted attention when it comes to the, uh, the unusual acoustics on the interior. I think the first re recording of uh, somebody actually uh, uh, commenting on on the, uh, the acoustics is uh, Napoleon. The other one was Paul Horn, who is a, uh, a flutist. He made a recording inside the Great Pyramid. It was called Inside. And he recorded in all the chambers. Paul noted that the reverberation in the King's Chamber was uh, about eight seconds. It was very long. And he also reported that the frequency when you struck it, Kaffa rang at around 438 hertz, which is close to 440. In 2019, I was able to go into the Great Pyramid with a team of about 15 people and we were permitted to carry out a very simple experiment. And everybody went into every different part of the Great Pyramid and sounds were made in each of these chambers so that we could not only monitor the different frequencies, the different decibels, but also to find out whether those sounds could be heard in different chambers. We were able to build up an incredible picture of what was going on on an acoustic level. And the different frequency ranges, not only were those fine-tuned towards the human voice, in other words, chanting, singing, and other forms of ceremonial activity were obviously in mind with the design of the chambers. But beyond that, we were able to detect in the lowest of the chambers, the so-called subterranean chamber, uh, and a long passage that exits from this chamber called the Dead End Passage, we were able to find that in here there was generated incredibly low frequencies as well as what is known as infrasound. And this seems to have been deliberate Infrasound is sound frequencies that are below 20 hertz. 
So we do not hear them so much as feel them and experience them. And they affect us on a very subtle level. They cause what we would refer to as paranormal experiences or the sense that we're entering into otherworldly environments. We most certainly know that when you visit in the Great Pyramid and you go into these various rooms, there's a particular tonal frequency. And when you visit the King's Chamber and you can make the sacred ohm sound, it's almost as if it's been harmonized towards this. In fact, in our groups that have made that sound, it's almost as if there's this transcendental experience where the entire room disappears and the stars become present out the top of it. There most certainly is this timeless sound and frequency, wavelength, like feeling when you immerse yourself into this magnificent monument. Resonance has gives a certain physical feature to this monument. For example, it allows waves like electromagnetic waves to be concentrated in some parts of the monument or specifically under the monument, whereas in other parts they do not concentrate. And so what does that do? It creates a gradient. You have an area where you have a high concentration of energy and then you have other areas where you have a low concentration and those areas are closer to the top of the Great Pyramid. So what does that do? It basically creates a flow of current in this case or magnetic waves and that to me suggests that it is possible that the Great Pyramid may have actually operated to concentrate power by by creating this uh, gradient. And this seems to be something very, very important in connection with the function of the Great Pyramid. It was to generate sound on many different levels. But beyond this is the fact that infrasound can be carried through rock for great distances, perhaps uh, many miles, like seismic waves. And I'm pretty certain that the, the builders of the Great Pyramid would have been very much aware of this. So they are carrying energy. They are generating energy that can be carried through the rock to the other monuments on the Giza Plateau. Now, why would this be important? The answer is so that rituals and ceremonies can take place at other locations on the plateau that can resonate and harmonize with the Great Pyramid itself. In other words, it was all part of one huge, great, harmonizing um, landscape that was all working as one together. The very geometry of the Great Pyramid, the angles themselves, a 51, 51 approximately for the geometry is amazing. It does put you into an altered state of reality. And Professor Golod in Russia has built pyramids, not even of the same geometry and certainly not of bricks and stones and limestone and mortar. He makes them simply out of wood and people go inside and they're healed. So it's an amazing geometry, no matter how you place it around yourself or around the planet. So the pyramid itself is a key geometry for our own life system.
And I believe that our body itself creates its own pyramidal geometry. And inside our mind, we have pyramidal cells, which are really pyramidal brain cells in our body. So all of this is part of our geometry of life. The Great Pyramid is a geographical marvel. Located at the exact center of the planet, at the intersection of the longest line of latitude and the longest line of longitude. Some researchers suggest for a structure to generate high-frequency radiation, which is really light, it must be surrounded by a large landmass. This begs the question, is it possible that the Giza Pyramid's function is connected to its actual location on Earth? The answer to that almost certainly is yes, because it lies at exactly 30 degrees latitude. That's one third of the distance from the equator to the North Pole. And although as far as longitude is concerned, it's also at 30 degrees, quite clearly it is also one twelfth of the circumference of the Earth itself. And this seems to be beyond coincidence. And this tells us very clearly that there was a specific purpose in building the Great Pyramid exactly where it was. Again, I don't think this is coincidence because, as we know, the number 12 plays such an important role in the canon of cosmic numbers in cultures all the way around the world. The geology of the site is ideal. It is what people call a power place. And, you know, the ancients knew about these power places. So as far as Giza, that seems to be Grand Central right, right there. I mean, it's, uh, it's, it definitely is a very energetic site. Some theories suggest that humans may have had help creating the Great Pyramid from extraterrestrials or that some divine knowledge and inspiration is what made the feat possible. In part, that's because some explanations put forth suggested that the Great Pyramid was constructed using long-lost sonic technology to levitate and place the massive stones, as well as high-energy tools, which may have resembled modern-day lasers, to precisely cut the blocks. Whatever explanation is offered about the pyramid's origins and construction, it seems evident that a higher consciousness was involved. My book, Keys of Enoch, states that there is a, a global power grid system in the shape of a dodecahedron, which is a very complex geometry that is then sliced into pyramidal sections. The Great Pyramid represents the center of this grid system that was to harness energy. The Great Pyramid represents at a much earlier date knowledge that I believe was given to the human race by higher evolutionary intelligence. Mastermind by the Egyptian pre-scientists and then distributed in later generations in dynastic periods by a wide variety of global societies so legends say that after Atlantis, some of the remaining civilization 
went to Egypt. And that was one of the energy activation points. So I believe that many of the other points that had been ancient stargates are lost. But Egypt seems to be a key remaining activated energy point, a real stargate, a real place of energy generation. The depth of symbolism and mystery surrounding the Giza pyramid makes it unique on Earth for what some describe as its metaphysical properties. I think if if the Great Pyramid was meant to be a mathematical shrine or uh, a tome to physics or a communication device, then I think we have to seriously entertain the possibility that we live in a simulated universe because we have to then consider the, the idea that it was planted for us to figure out on our own that we live in, in a simulation. So the Great Pyramid is a place of initiation. If you go inside the king's chamber and you chant, you actually get initiated because the frequencies drop your mind from the normal waking state to the alpha, to the theta, even into the delta range. And you're able to be initiated with the star gods, connected with Orion. This is powerful stuff. We are activated by those in the heavenly dimensions. And they are helping us to make that reconnection, that linkage back into our cosmic selves. If you take all those pyramids and, and tune them, and make them sing to the earth, then the earth would uh, sing back, but with a, a louder voice. But the result would be that you would harmonize the planet, harmonize the plates, and also the people that are living in the area. Now, whether the Great Pyramid was a power plant or it was a portal aligned with Orion's belt to take you somewhere, I feel from my experiences in visiting it that it is one of the most magnificent monuments on this planet. It's the greatest doorway to our ancient past, and it holds clues about the origins of humanity. There is an immense feeling of power when you visit it that overwhelms the puny sensibilities of humankind. And the only thing I can say about it is that it's transformational when you walk into it. In essence, the Great Pyramid Complex is the inductive spark to activate the cosmic roadmap that connects Mother Earth, the stars of Orion, the mortality of the human race with immortality of the gods, for those who live in the region of Inthak, the Egyptian word for the imperishable star gods. From Orion to Ion, there is the chemistry of eternity. And that is why these terms have come down even from the Greek philosophers and scientists into our vocabulary. The ionization of the water, the ionization of the human blood, the heartbeat of the human body, the activation of the sound structure of higher states of consciousness, all reflect a periodic charts of birth, death, and ascension. I don't think that we can ever recreate the Great Pyramid. I think that it is one of the pinnacles of human engineering and achievement, not just in the ancient world, but in the modern world. 
at the same time. And to understand its function, I think, is something that will unlock the cosmic secrets of humankind. While the physical pyramid emerges from the Earth and ascends energetically toward the light of the cosmos, so too does the energy of the cosmos shine down through the Great Pyramid, energizing the Earth below. The modern world may hold the key to many secrets, but the ancient world knew one of monumental proportions, and to this day safeguards the secret within the hidden chambers of the Giza Pyramid. Next time on Deep Space, we explore the world of illusion. Do we live in a holographic universe? on going. No, it doesn't. No. Mm -hmm. Well, we'll get that somewhere along the road here. Yeah. Wow. All right. Well, let's jump into the next one. The next one Ramas got here is intergalactic organization revealed. Okay. Okay. Uh, from ancient times to modern secret space programs. Advanced extraterrestrial technology has always been on our planet. <clears throat> Jason Shirka reveals what he has learned from a clandestine organization known as the Light System that has intergalactic connections. Rama, what do your people know about this organization? Uh, I gotta listen. <laughs> okay, well, let's do it. He describes consciousness-enhancing technology that could be used to move megalithic stones or control spacecraft as far back as ancient Egypt. Jason Shirka also reveals similar consciousness-assisted technologies used today in secret programs, ranging from weaponry, armor, and interstellar vehicles. Okay, so this is Emery Smith with his guest, Jason Shirka. Here we go. Jason Shirka is a real estate entrepreneur and author who has recently been tasked to speak publicly about the clandestine organization with extraterrestrial connections that he says has secretly existed on this planet for thousands of years. Jason, welcome to Cosmic Disclosure. Thank you so much for having me. What is TLS and what's its mission? Sure. So TLS, first of all, that those letters stand for the light system. That's what they stand for. The light system. Yes. Um, I'll give you a little bit of structure of how they work. They're a global 
I mean, worldwide organization. I would even say universal wide organization. How many members are there? There are 7,000 initiated agents. When I say initiated, there's a certain process that you go through to become an initiated agent into the actual organization. There came a point in June of 2018 where I was approached by somebody. At that point, it was a stranger. And when he approached me in a just a regular conversation, I like your necklace, what is it? And they knew exactly, he knew exactly who I was. I didn't know that at the time. Over time, he started sharing more and more information with me and putting me through like this disclosure process, we could call it, as I was prepared to receive it. So it started with more so uh, metaphysical conversations of really anything, the, the fundamental base of the universe and how things work on the energetic level, all the way to extraterrestrial races and their levels of awareness and their technology and many, many different things, very wide sort of array of, of topics and subjects. Jason, so why do you think they picked you specifically to deliver this message? So originally, at least to my knowledge, I wasn't supposed to be the one to put out this information. There's a book written called Rays of Light that was written and more so documented by Ray. It's like a consolidation of a bunch of different conversations, dialogues, lectures, insights, knowledge, information that Ray accumulated over the period of 2010 to 2014. What happened was TLS at that point gave him permission to put it out. Ray actually did say that he's willing to publish the book contingent on the fact that he can reveal the codes to unlock the book's power. TLS does not allow him to do that partly because they feel that humanity is not ready for something like that. And I happen to agree with them on that aspect. So tell me about the mission of TLS. Yes. So their overall mission, the reason why they're here today, is to help assist and guide humanity in reaching a higher level of awareness, specifically gamma. Gamma is referred to what many people call fifth dimensional awareness. That's what gamma is. That's this new era, this new age that they're trying to assist and guide us into reaching. Now, Everybody, or agent, no agent, just every human being is born with a specific frequency, a specific energy. So there's, as I was taught, 10 different dimensions that the universe is made out of. Each dimension is infinite, but there's 10 different dimensions. The name of the first five is what modern day science calls brainwave frequencies or brainwave patterns. So that's beta, alpha, theta, delta, and gamma. Each one of those frequencies are actually different dimensions on the spiritual level. Only science is more focused on the physical phenomenon instead of the non-physical, so they keep it limited to that understanding. These frequencies are all different dimensions and levels of awareness that when you're in resonance with them allows you to do different things. So, for example, most of the human race today is in mid-beta. Each dimension is broken up into 10 parts. So there's beta 1, 2, 3, 4, 5. Uh, delta, one, two, three, eight, nine, ten, all that, and gamma and so on. Sure. For example, anywhere from beta to alpha is more materialistic, very in the preoccupied with the material aspects of life. Theta is, I'll give you some examples, more somebody that's more preoccupied with the spiritual aspect of life, meditation. Uh, they generally read a lot more. The way they eat is a little bit different. It's more correlated to higher vibrational foods. Delta, 
gives the ability to do things like out-of-body experiences. And gamma is when all of this is just not a problem for you, levitation with the body, flight with the body, all of those things are second nature. When it comes to TLS, they have, I mean, you could think of them as like a spiritual version of the CIA, because that's pretty much how they're built, organizationally speaking, only they're a lot more powerful. People that have the abilities to levitate with the body, fly with the body, all of those things are are part of humans and non-humans that are a part of TLS. When I say non-humans, there are extraterrestrial beings, physical beings that you could touch, that you can smell, that you can hug, that are a part of TLS. Some of them look like us. Some of them don't. Some of them over time shift into looking like a human being to assimilate into Earth. Also in TLS, when it comes to their structure, because I didn't explain that, there's they have a, a branch in every major city in the world. Each branch or division is referred to as a chapter. So in New York, let's say, their main New York branch would be called their New York chapter. And when it comes to TLS as well, there's... It's not, it has nothing to do with religion. It has nothing to do with race or age or gender or ethnicity or any of that. There's all ages, all ranges. There are very old people who are part of the organization. I know of two. One is over 400 years old. Another one is 613 years old, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, and they're human beings. They're very powerful human beings that have access to very high dimensions. They're in a state of gamma at all times. These people are not people that you would know exist. And if they don't want to be in a picture, you will not see them in the picture. They they have sort of abilities that they can look at you and erase a certain memory that you have if they want to. Mm -hmm. It's complete control, but coming from a very high vibrational place. Right. How far back does TLS go? I could tell you that they've been in existence for over 5,000 years. And again, their power is something that's that's incredible. And do they meet these chapters once a month or a week or they, they there are meetings they have an office you just won't know that it's a tls office they have an office in new york city they have an office in los angeles they have an office everywhere especially in the major cities right well are they militaristic you know are they trying to seek any type of control you know are they similar to the illuminati being hidden behind closed doors number one they're not just not even close to a part of the illuminati they're the exact opposite especially when it comes to their intentions. So again, ultimately, they're here to, if you want to talk about the idea of the Illuminati without putting names and all that out there, it's suppression of humanity, suppression of knowledge, suppression of spirituality, in order to keep us on a certain resonance that we don't understand what our true power is. What TLS does is the exact opposite. There's a certain timeline based on how ready humanity is at any given moment for things to be able to be shown. And it's like, it's one thing to hear about a shapeshifter. It's another thing to see one. Mm -hmm. So if that's why I'm a process of, I'm an advocate for the process of disclosure, because I think it's very important to first tell somebody that something strange exists before you show them that thing that exists in order not to induce chaos. They don't want chaos. They're trying to bring us to this new level of awareness without causing problems along the way, to wake us up slowly. Jason, how does TLS survive financially? I mean, what is what does that structure look like? First of all, to run an operation like this, of this magnitude, of this size, is something that does take a lot of money. It's a very big operation. It's a very organized operation. Tell me how they actually get the word out, if they're so hidden and secretive, 
uh, you're here, looks like representing them, but who, who else, how do they get this information out to help us? So there are some initiated agents who are very, very well-known and world-renowned people that you just don't know that are a part of TLS. Most of them are not those people. Most of them are just everyday human beings. Your mother could be a part of it. You would have no idea. Everybody has a cover. Everybody gets paid for their work with the exception of the spiritual agents. Anybody that's on the spiritual side, generally, for the most part, they do it as volunteer work. Um, but when it comes to the physical side, all of them are paid. When it comes to how they get the word out, take certain celebrities that have impacts and influences, take certain producers that create certain content, uh, take certain authors that write certain books, um, take certain people in the media that give certain messages. It could be subliminal. It could not be subliminal. They do it on purpose through mediums that we don't necessarily understand what's happening that's affecting us energetically. And again, there are people that are very well known in the world that are a part of it that can maybe stop certain things from happening, make certain things happen, depending on what's going on. But it's all with the intention of guiding us to get to the place of not being suppressed anymore, to wake us up to our true power. Because they're not, they're not here to control. Mm -hmm. They don't, they let the evolution of humanity's awareness happen as it has to happen. There are certain things that they don't interfere with, like elections, for example. Mm -hmm. That's against the rules. You're not allowed to interfere with that. But I will touch up on something. People ask me, well, if TLS is this divine organization with all of this power and they're, they're so great, why do we have evil like we do in the world today? Why don't they just wipe them out? And the answer to that, and this is an answer that I was given and understood through them was, where is the power held? Is it in the people that are the, the few who are controlling the many? Or is it in the people? And the illusion is that the power is in the few. So I'm sure that TMS can go wipe out certain individuals tomorrow. I'm sure that they can induce a heart attack without even touching the human being. And they could, but they won't. And the reason why they won't do that is because let's say they did. Let's say they wiped out every being that's controlling and suppressing humanity today. What's stopping those people from being replaced? And the key to where all of that exists in and again, this is something that I was taught and, and, and given a, a lesson understanding on is the reason why these evil people, if you want to call them and, and controlling people exist is because we, the people, allowed them to exist in the first place. So we empowered them. We empowered them. Look at Hitler. We literally elected him into power through democracy. It was it wasn't a dictatorship to begin with. It was something that we chose. And ultimately, if you take Hitler he was a reflection of our consciousness at the time. So the key to changing, and this is how TLS works, this is the, the key of understanding their mission, is not directly to take down the evil. It's to educate and wake up the masses so our resonance rises. And when our resonance and awareness rises, the reflected reality will not be one where evil can exist in the first place. So, so by, it's a group collective, collaborative manifestation of positivity it's an it's an understanding of of just the basics of how energy works our perception our reality is a direct reflection of our awareness what we're in resonance with is what we'll experience if we're in resonance with lower vibrations like fear corruption greed we'll experience fear corruption and greed 
And the moment we become aware of how to tune out and we're guided of how to tune into a different frequency where evil and corruption and greed are no longer in resonance with us, they won't be a part of our reality anymore. So that's how TLS works. It's to shift the awareness and consciousness of the masses in order to reflect the shift in our world into the way that we want to see it. Does TLS have any type of former or do they have like bases that they can go and train at or facilities that are clandestine around the planet? Mm -hmm. For example, there's a school. I can't reveal the location of that school, but there's a school where one of the leaders uh, and one of a few, but one of the leaders has hundreds of students where he teaches certain things more on the physical level when it comes to certain bases, if you want to call it. I know that in New Jersey and in many places around the world, there's a specific field. It's, it's like a, it's like a landing strip, but for UFO, so it's not really a strip. It's just an open field. It's public property. It's not private. And that's what they use whenever they have, they either have to load something. It's like in and out, things like that with other, other races, other beings with their crafts and all that. What they do have, which is pretty interesting is it's like, okay, well, how do you not see a ship coming and landing in the middle of New Jersey? And there are uh, a significant amount of UFO sightings there. But when it's on the ground, there's this like uh, electromagnetic field that they have this technology that creates this field around the craft that pretty much if you were looking at it, you wouldn't see that there's anything there. You would, It's like men in black. If you've ever seen like there's mm-hmm. something there. You it's can't like a cloaking see device of yeah, some sort. Pretty much. It's about uh, uh, about 100 feet. So you can see when they're coming in and going out, but it's not slow landings. It's it's extremely fast. Mm -hmm. What I find interesting is that there's no mark on the ground after they leave. What technologies does TLS have that we may not see in everyday life? The whole uh, idea of like the Tesla grid free energy system, it's there. It's 100% real. they have access, and I'm saying access because it's not theirs. They have access to certain, uh, we can call it extraterrestrial technology. That could be um, the crafts. The crafts are the biggest things that they really have. And the way that those crafts work are pretty unbelievable. What I will add on to that is, and this is a, a, a missing factor that I haven't seen in at least the community and how things are being spoken about, we're under the impression that these crafts work through physical technology. And yes, it's a part of it, but it's not just physical technology. It's what would be referred to as spiritual technology. So I'll explain what that means. They have technology that we all know of called EMP, electromagnetic pulsation, which, by the way, also existed in the times of the pharaohs and those ancient extra, extraterrestrials. They came here with that technology. It's nothing new. Uh, there's EMLP, which is electromagnetic laser pulsation. And when it comes to certain crafts, the crafts don't just work off of EMP and EMLP on the physical side. They also work from the energy from the sun mm. and magnetism. The real question is, well, how do these crafts operate at thousands and thousands of miles per hour and suddenly make a 90-degree turn. How does that happen without the craft blowing up and any being inside it being squashed against the wall? The key that I was taught that I haven't seen for some reason anywhere else, maybe it's just I haven't done enough research, but when I say spiritual technology, there's something called the power of thought. 
Okay, so there's the speed of sound, there's the speed of light. The only thing that's faster in the universe than the speed of light is thought and the way that it travels. But there's all different shapes and sizes and, and pyramids and triangles and saucers and, and pills and all that. The inside doesn't look like a, a – it's not like a 747 cockpit with a bunch of different buttons that you have to know how this and this and this. There are a few like touchscreen buttons, but there's this like panel or dashboard of some sort that's made of crystal or glass. That's what connects the consciousness of the operator through the power of thought to the actual physical technology that's operating the craft. So the first thing that has to be understood, and this is what these beings understand at their level of awareness is that there is no such thing as something not being alive. Everything is alive. Everything is connected, whether it's a rock, whether it's a, a, a cup, whether it's a human being, whether it's a plant, whether, no matter what it is, all matter is connected to this unified field of consciousness. And through their level of awareness, which is very high, they have the ability to connect to this unified field of consciousness. So, so right now we're just talking about it conceptually. They can actually do it. So through that power of thought, they take their hand. Sometimes they don't even have to touch the panel, but let's say they're touching the panel. And what happens is the craft takes on the consciousness of the operator. Mm -hmm. So the fact is, is that this higher level of consciousness that the operators hold, in this case, the ETs, and in some cases, humans that are put through certain training, mm -hmm they can transcend the limitations of time and space. That's where their awareness is. And because their awareness transcends the limitations of time and space, so does the craft. And it works in ways that don't work according to the laws of physics as we know them today, because our understanding of the laws of physics today are a reflection of our awareness today on the collective level. Same thing with science. What, what science deems are the criteria for something to be alive, it's very limited. And there will come a day where we reach a higher level of awareness like these beings who operate their crafts and we'll come to understand that, wait, it's not just about something that has genetic material and that can replicate. It's something that has to do with what everything can be deduced to, which is energy and consciousness ultimately. So their technology is, is extraordinary. They can travel intergalactically in five minutes. And when I say intergalactically, we're talking not within the Milky Way, you could trillions of light years away because those things don't affect them anymore. It's not about time. It's not about distance. Right. There is no time or space or, or distance. Time doesn't exist the way that we experience it here on those planets. It's completely right. different. Absolutely. What type of projects and technologies does the TLS have that are for our future benefit, the civilians, the humans of the planet? Is there anything that they have lined up for us that could help us? They have crafts. They are certain if we go to ancient more anxious. And when are they going to release this, this technology? When in terms of a timeline, I don't know. Right. But in terms of when in a different way to answer, when we're ready to receive it. And that's where we come in. So it's not just a matter of TLS is doing things for us, right? It's mm. humanity is responsible for humanity. And we have to be able, if we, we have the freedom of choice, we can choose to keep ourselves not being ready to receive certain things. We can choose to open our minds to receive certain things. So, Personally, that's that's part of my motivation for doing any of this. It's to kind of facilitate in any way that process of becoming ready 
in a more efficient and timely manner, if you want to call it. It definitely sounds like their uh, consciousness is extraterrestrial based through my experience. Because a lot of people are always asking, why can't they just come here and give us all this stuff? Mm-hmm. And it's like you said, we're just not ready yet for that mm-hmm. uh, before you know, giving us so much power in a lot of these amazing uh, technologies you have mentioned. Absolutely. You know, just to piggyback off of that, there are a lot of people that say, okay, well, you're talking about all these extraordinary things. Where's the proof? And that's a very important thing to talk about because where's the proof? So when it comes to certain teachings, and this also connects to space and certain things that exist there, there's the, the foundation is there's an energetic understanding or there must be an energetic understanding of how frequency and resonance works. So for example, if our range of awareness is limited from frequency or dimension, let's say one to five, or let's go back to the gamma, beta, theta, alpha, mm-hmm. right? If we're in beta seven or if I'm in beta seven, I will not be able to perceive something in beta 8. If I'm in gamma 5, I will not be able to perceive something in gamma 8, and so on. It's Our range of awareness, is, it pretty much dictates our perception of what we can see. So it's not just about physical seeing, it's right. also about the way that you understand information. So the reason why I'm, I'm bringing that up with the idea of where is the proof is there could be proof in front of us right now perceptually speaking, and we can't perceive it, there can also be proof that's already been given to us, and we just don't understand that it's proof because we're not at the level of awareness to understand what this truly means. Does right. that make sense? No, absolutely. Yeah. Yes. So so that's where I would go in on where is the proof. How is TLS going to reveal itself to the general population, do you believe? So I'll say they already started through this medium of me putting out certain information and whatnot. But Let's say TLS came out today and showed high technology crafts and extraterrestrials and hologram beings and everything in between. It would probably freak a lot of people out. There are many people that are ready to receive that. But on the collective level of, of like our human race on the universe, it would it would cause a lot of chaos. That's that's the truth. They will reveal themselves to that extent when people are ready to receive that. But that's up to us. How open are we to changing our belief systems? How open are we to letting our belief systems dissolve and start fresh, even if it's uncomfortable? And how open are we to accepting that new possibilities that we might have thought in the past were impossible may actually be possible? How do the humans interact with the non-TLS humans? Just like it is right now, because Mm -hmm. they're taught to have a standard of communication. So there is telepathic communication, but everybody's taught how to communicate. For the most part, if they're here, you communicate like earthlings. So we speak, we talk, and other beings that come here that work with TLS are trained on how to do that. How far along is TLS in the process of doing what they, you know, were created to do? In terms of how far along they are, I think right now we're in a very significant time period. That's a very big turning point, and it's a milestone. I mean, the fact that uh, an organization like TLS that's been in existence for over 5,000 years behind the scenes is suddenly coming and feels humanity is ready to accept this, is it shows that we're making shifts. Right now, they say that we're in what's called the age of light. So the age of light is this age where we're in now that 
things are being exposed. Information is being exposed. And I mean, that's what we're seeing. Look at what we're doing right now. Right. You know, and the next age that they want to bring us to, which is what I refer to as gamma or fifth dimensional awareness, is what they call the age of love. So that's a time where our world looks very much like ET planets today. There's no borders. There's no war. There's no disease. There's none of this, this low vibrational experience of me and you and we're separate. And it's none of that. It's, it's a time where there's intergalactic unity. It's a time of love. It's a time where evil is not a part of our reality anymore. There's no corruption. There's no greed. There's no doctors because there's no sickness. There's, mm-hmm. there's an understanding of how nature works and how to guide through it intuitively through your understanding. You mm-hmm. don't need a nutritionist. You speak about the age of love. What happens if humans don't reach a higher level of awareness and consciousness to be relevant for the age of love? When it comes to timelines and the information that I've received from TLS, when certain things are going to happen. And the answer is we could experience this now. We could bring this in our lifetime. We could bring it in five years and 10 years and 30 years or in 50 years. It's all dependent on what we decide to do along the way. And that's where we step in, where they're not controlling us. They're just guiding us. And that's where the freedom of choice comes in. Is there a envision of TLS that maybe this will not happen? No. 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 This is what they would call the collective destiny of humanity. No matter what we're going to get there, the question is how. Their purpose, really, their mission is beyond just assisting and guiding us to reach this new level of awareness it's doing so with as little damage along the way. That's what they always try to do. As little bloodshed, as little damage, as little problems along the way to facilitate our awakening process in a comfortable way. So ultimately, I think we're in a very positive place right now. Although some people may not see it that way. I think we're in a very good tra- trajectory. I think the fact that episodes like this are happening in the first place is proof that we're in the right direction of disclosure, awareness, knowledge. And I think that so long as we keep doing what we're doing, we learn from our past, from our history. Again, that's why I think this is happening right now. We can make our next steps in the right direction for not just the benefit of humanity, but sort of the the intergalactic connectivity of all life in the universe as a whole. Jason, thank you for being on the show. It's been a great awakening, and uh, I can't wait to hear the viewers' responses to this. Thank you so much. Thank you. I'm Emery Smith, and this is Cosmic Disclosure. Until next time. Did we play the elongated heck? Did you and discovery yeah. play that on 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 Thursday, right? No. Yeah, Friday. Yes. <laughs> okay. Well, what about um, Kim? Yes, Kim. Initiation with Matthias De Stefano, the New Atlantis. Yeah. During the age of Virgo, we find the crumbling of the Atlantean Empire. This was a time as the sacred temples stopped sharing in a rotating power structure and people stopped being 
educated in the vibrational language of the universe. Sound familiar, folks? <laughs> Atlantis was disintegrating from an empire into new colonies. Sounds familiar, yes. Fighting for independence. Matthias de Stefano shares his memories of his life in Kim, a colony of Atlantis that was located along the Nile River in what is now known as Egypt. This colony was built to become the new Atlantis, a place where humans were once again taught how to become gods and goddesses. Sounds very familiar. Through Matthias and his memories, during the age of Leo, we uncover a deeper understanding of the design of pyramids, the halls of Amente that Tehuti and the ancient Atlantean ancestors used to preserve their cosmic knowledge and how Kem, or they called it the land of Kemet, K-H-E-M, how Kem was able to to re, re to to reign to r e g i g n i t e reignite the ancient knowledge to become a new mother civilization on our planet. All right, Ram, ready? Mm. Mm. Here we go. What was life like in Chem? I am your host and guide, Matthias Stefano. In this episode, we will explore Chem, the mother civilization of ancient Egypt. The first time I was supposed to remember and to understand who I was was when I was 12 years old. My guides told me in seven days I would start to remember other lives. That week, the first memory I had was myself with the body of a woman and the man who was my husband in that life, both of us asking for help and support there in the Basik, what we call now the Great Isings. The first image I had of my entire memories was being there watching the lion straight to the eyes and asking the basik, as we call it, for help to support myself in everything that I had to do and that I wouldn't be able to accomplish. From that memory, from the emotion, I start to remember my country, Kem. I asked my guys why I had to feel the memories and not just to remember them. And my guides told me that the memories are bounded by the emotion, 
that we don't remember stuff just through the mind, that we remember what we have lived through the heart, that everything that you remember is because you felt it, not because you thought it. And that's why most of the memories that I was able to remember from not only that life, but others was because of the emotion that brought me every memory that I was living in. Since we were kids in that life, we, we've been taught about the importance of our river, of the spine of the world. And we were said that our country was the first settlement that the Atlantean people, the Hephian, thought it would become the new Atlantis. That's why for us it was so important and we were so honored to be in the second mother civilization. We were like the ones in charge that all the information of the world would would survive through the night of the galaxy. At the time I lived in Chem, the schools of knowledge, the first teachings that they were given to us was the language, because language was the key to understand the realities. We knew that the spirit created everything by singing. The singings, the words, the vibration were the main languages of the universe. So we were gifted with the possibility to talk, to understand the words, to understand the patterns of vibration. And that, that that's why it was so important for us to learn the language as better we can to understand the meaning of every vibration. We settle these concepts of the divine in different sounds or letters. These letters would be gathering to create concepts. As our culture was growing, we understood these vibrations through our environment. So we start to call the the concepts of the divine according to the vibrations we have surrounding us. How do we speak and how we use the language was very important. And we divided the people in vibration of languages. We settled the agriculture people, the builders of, of our towns, the politicians. They all has like different patterns to speak and the priests and priestesses has another totally different. We didn't have like kings or queens. They were all like priests and priestesses and we were changing power like in our democracy today. We were switching power through the um, temples. So each temple has its own time to rule the country according to what the country was needing. Our main idea as a country was that if only one head rules everything and that head doesn't understand everything, so a body could not work. So according to the needs of any time, like spring, winter, we divided the rulers of, of our civilization and we just were rotating the power so the whole body has a voice. When I was a child, until my seven years, 
we had to learn about the physical world. So we had to learn how to handle the emotions and the body. So we needed to learn about how our blood works. We uh, needed to learn how to change the vibration of the water. Teachers taught us how to speak with the moon, with the water of the sea, with the blood inside, and to understand how everything really was water. Everything in the universe that has a mind has water within. So they not only taught us how to read and listen the patterns of water here, but also to listen the thoughts of every planet. We could hear the vibration through time and space because they said water is the biggest mind of the universe. So if you can listen your own water, you can hear the thoughts of the universe. Atlantean people used to name our country as Gaina Ibitis, the place with many beauties and many resources. And Gaina Ibitis was known by us like the great Sut, Tulsut. Tulsut was the great village, the great, the great population. We call the great population like the great path. All of us were the walkers of consciousness. So we call our country the path towards the light. And that's why we used to call it the Sud. Sud meant that every town and every village and every little house along the river Nile, the Tulfa, would be connected like one country, like one thought. The families that ruled the planet at that time were called the Blue Ones, the Atil Khef. And even though we were coming from the families of Arturian civilizations, uh, because all our blood was created by the Arturians and the humans on Earth, we, we were also called by civilization the Snake People. We used to be called the Snake People not because we were reptilians, but because we were the ones ruling the snake of the world, the snake of the river that goes from the earth to the heavens, and then the snake that was in Anatolia that ruled the energy of the whole world. So we were in charge of the whole region, and that's why we were called the snake people, and that's why the snakes were the symbol of our of our civilization. Because of history taught us that, that the snake gave the information to the women. That is why in our region, in our culture, women were in charge of everything. Because we understood that every spirit that was trying to be born in this planet to experience or transform realities, they needed to go through the womb of a mother. And that is why for us was the most powerful being. That was why the structure of the society was ruled by women in circles. Every circle in every region were the mothers that represented the sons and daughters that was the society. And we as women, as part of the 12 families, we needed to learn everything from this path, everything from the nature in order to, to create a perfect society so the spirits could live
properly in Earth. At the time I was there, we called the capital of the region Ruhnila. Ruhnila was a big city around the what we call now Giza Plateau. At the time I was living there, we had only one pyramid. This only one pyramid was in the middle, and it has three big chambers in the core that were the places where the priests and priestesses used to go to channel the information of the whole brain. Every obelisk around would be like the antenna to bring the information, to storage the information, and to make like uh, like these canals to anchor the information of the high, highest point of the pyramid. So whoever goes inside the pyramid and puts the basins of water, they would sing so loud, so the vibration could rise, and the patterns of this vibration would activate the highest point of the pyramid. This highest point would conduct the energy from the gold and the minerals above, and this charging of energy would be connected to these pillars around, so all information of the city would be spread around and, and would be used to connect with the network. It was like if every human, every person in the in the city were like the chargers of the pyramids. So at the at the time we were all connecting with this uh, with this pattern, the obelisk would hold this in this energy in our towns, and this energy would activate our memory. The priests and priestesses were the ones that we call the speakers with the world, the Arsayan. The Arsayan were those who were able to use the antennas of reality to bring the information of the whole world, of the whole pattern of the world to our city. We call Ruhnila the brain city because all the information from the network around in the planet was downloading there or uploading through them. Also, we had another order of priests and priestesses that we call the Idilian. The Idilian were the people in charge of every element. So each one of the of the Idilian has a different purpose to work with every one of those elements. So so as the priests and priestesses were able to talk with the world and the planet through the energy of the people, the Idilian were the ones working with the alchemy to transform those ideas and those those talks and thoughts into matter. The suit was connected along the river Nile through different ways. We had three paths, one through water, one through earth, and the other one through the energy. They would sail in boats. We would have the path of initiations that would be walking, And we also had the path of the energy. The one of the energy was the most amazing path for all of us because it was this path held by these resonance pillars that we call now the jet. And these pillars of vibration, what they would do was allow the south and the north to send information, to send messages, and to send also materials. 
they would send mostly uh, big blocks of stone and they would push them through this path of of vibration and and they would just go through and travel through the singings of the priests this path was not used by humans because the humans that would use this path would disappear would be <laughs> like brought to the atomic spectrum atomic reality so that's why the priests would walk aside the pillars of vibration and they would create this perfect harmony so everything that was inside was just levitating flowing we would see sometimes these pillars from the from the river and the river has changed and everything was like savanna it was not desert so we could see animals around we could see elephants we could see lions all over the region so that helped us also to be related with nature and to understand the different aspects of the divine that were related to every to every temple that's how also every temple like adapt its own teaching through the aspects of nature uh, bringing the lion the ibis the crocodile as beings that represented the aspects of the divine so that's why we use those animals that used to live in that region as the um, animals that represented god and that is why thousands of years after we start to call them gods this path that connected south to north through the vibration the great suit it was the one that was delivering the materials to create every temple in order to build the perfect being that was our country in the period of atlantis and egypt the kef and kem the buildings there start to make around the planet were for downloaded this information every temple was like a different shape in which this download would be possible so humans in those temples those stone circles in those cities with water these buildings like these pyramids were uh, buildings that helps to bring the vibration of the, every timeline in the higher level vibration of this network of the manic network so we could write it down we can download it in our bodies in our energy so the dna could awake this information from other dimensions in our dimension in our world in order to do that they start to build the pyramid to create this this machine to download this information and in order to do that they had to put every dimension into the physical shape The first kingdom to be created was the kingdom of stones, the kingdom of minerals. So they understood that the patterns of geometry were creating these minerals first, and that is why we needed silicon and crystals to create these stones to channel the vibration and information through every dimension. Stones were very important, and that is why even if we were trying to build spheres in the matter or pyramids the structure to build those other machines these machines to download information from other structures 
should be in square or cube shape. The cube shape would be the physical way in which a sphere could be created. To be downloaded in our worlds, we need squares and we need these patterns of cubes. So that's why by vibration, we created these cubes to build the temples and to build the pyramids in order to hold the all this amount of energy. This was understood by the construction of the Chacana, the interdimensional Chacana that in South America they know uh, in Atlantean times were co was called the Protikta. Protikta was this energy with pyramidal shape that goes up and goes down and is built by different cubes. These different cubes relate every spot of dimensions. So we have the ninth dimension within and we have four dimensions up and four dimensions below. So these eight dimensions holding the first one relates the cube to the main structure to reach every information of God, of the goddess of the universe. So that is why the Chakana was the shape in which every being could understand the path of evolution and the path of vibration that a sphere needs in order to be created as a planet, as a being, so we could download every aspect of the universe. This is why the pyramids were built with uh, with cubes and with these long cubes to download this information and to hold this vibration in this pyramidal shape. By multiplying those patterns of cubes of the Chakana, they created the biggest protikta, which are the pyramids, below and up. These structures would have four faces in the material world and other four faces into the timelines. So we have four faces for space, four faces for time, and the connection between them would be the positive and the negative aspects of the vibration. That is why when we see in the third dimension world the pyramid, we can see just four faces. But if we can see through time, because of the equinox and solstice, we would see the shadows of the pyramids showing that they have other faces. They have eight faces. These eight faces are only shown by the shadows, the shadows of the time, of every timeline of solstice and equinox. These shadows shows that in order to get into the core of the system, you need the two energies flowing in this vibration. The energies of space would bring the shape of this octahedron that creates the seed of the information. And then the other four faces would create the wave of vibration in order to reach the perfect amount of energy we need to open a portal. If we could see the pyramid in two dimensions, we would split every face of the pyramid in a paper and we would see that the lines out and the lines in the structure of the pyramid will draw a wave. This wave creates the pattern to the vibration. As lower it is closer to the, to the ground, the vibration is low. And this, this vibration would talk about 
the deepest and, and darkness energies of the world that are the soil to bring that uh, energy up. So we needed the low vibration to connect with the core of the planet. And as we reach the, the top of the pyramid, the high vibrations start to, to activate every timeline and every space into one, which is the top of the gold pyramid. The gold pyramid up would be the conductor of all this vibration that every time of the year, in four times of the year, every, every equinox and every solstice would be the perfect times to connect the network and to align all the information from the highest vibration network to the physical ones. That was the period when the structure of the network, Manik, was downloaded on the planet and we could understand everything. We had order in our realities. But as the school of knowledge, they, they would teach us, we needed to download this information and record it in the underground so everyone in the future could upload this information again. At the time the era of Leo began, we had this temple in front of the things called Telintur, where this information was brought from the heavens to earth, and there was nothing else but these temples surrounding the Sphinx. The Sphinx would be the keeper of knowledge. And under the Sphinx, what my ancestors built there was the house of Amenti, the storage of knowledge of our history. He would protect the knowledge of our civilization. And all the path under the Sphinx would be connecting all the records and memory of every chamber that is below the region of Giza. Amenti, in the language I remember, the vibration of the word means where all my knowledge is in. So these holes of, of information is where all the information of the planet was downloaded. It was ethereal place connected to the physical one. They carved underground so we could, we could storage in water this information. They create these patterns to bring the water from the river into the pyramids below. So all the holes of Amenti will be the place where all this vibration from Manik web could be downloaded and storage in the water. The school teachings of Yahud and other people from, from that time were the schools that taught us that every cycle of time we all needed to change. That is why we needed to move through the different levels of vibration of the time through the pyramids and to adapt into the new times and new uh, eras. That is why at the moment when the plan of building Amenti and building the pyramids was trying to be designed by, by Jahud, we as Atlantean people start to prepare ourselves for the new time coming, the time of the rulers of the self, the kings and queens of the spirit. And that moment was for Atlantean people the moment that they saw the clock of time saying, your time is ending. 
because everyone realized about this ending of time, they went to what we call now Egypt and created the libraries of Amenti under the Giza plateau. So we, uh, so the new time could protect that knowledge. So this new time was protecting the information underground. So whatever happens in the upper world, nothing would touch the information below. During this process of the Atlantean beings that were moving into Egypt, were trying to create this new time, this new reality and this new humanity. That was why at the end of the time when Jahud was starting to build the pyramids, the Atlantean people wouldn't allow that other colonies would split the information in a different way they were doing. In the Virgo era, they were thinking that everything was perfect as they settled. So they wouldn't allow others to change what they have created. That made the Atlantean people to create this civil war in which they were trying to uh, to get power over all these other uh, civilizations being born to to create this new time of Leo. Because of the work and dedication from Jahut and so many of our ancient Atlantean ancestors, the halls of Amenti preserved this cosmic information underground as the growing Atlantean empire began to misuse their power to control the planet. But... As with all empires that focus on power and control, what rises must also fall. Thank you for joining me on this journey. I am your host and guide, Matias de Stefano. In the next episode, we will uncover the network that was built by the empire and how the misuse of that network created a global shift that became one of the biggest legends in human history. kind of complement each other from the last one, huh? Mm -hmm. Interesting. Okay, we're just realizing I don't think we played this, so this is our brother Nassim Harameen. I did play that. Time is an illusion. No, no. Elongated head, DNA discovery. Okay. We played that one, I for sure. The other one, I mean. But interplanetary mm-hmm. beings or another species of humans. Yeah. What do you say, Akhenaten, here? <laughs> Genetic material taken from elongated heads found in Peru as analyzed by Nassim Haramin's team indicate an otherworldly origin. Our team of experts connect the dots between the locations of pyramids around the world and the discovery of elongated skulls. These people, who appear to be from an advanced culture, would have, would have been revered as gods to the human civilizations rising from aftermath of a great calamity. Plus, their multi 
excuse me, their mitochondrial DNA shows these people had mothers who herald from the Middle East. Yet the father's lines cannot be traced to any known DNA on the planet. Could this be evidence providing that advanced beings from another world came to usher in a new form of consciousness and to guide the earliest of civilizations to fruition? Follow the link. Mm-hmm. Uh, oh, they have this on ancient civilizations. It says it here. Yeah. To decipher the code of our origins, travel with us to discover evidence of... Oh, yeah. There's this, just other things they're talking about. Mm-hmm. All right. Let's go do this. 21 minutes. Okay. Coming, right? Approximately 150 miles from the North Korean border lies the Chinese province of Jilin. It is here at an ancient burial site known as Hutamuga that researchers excavated 25 human skeletons dating back to between 5,000 and 12,000 years ago. The researchers were intrigued with their findings. These skulls of long-dead individuals were elongated far beyond what is considered normal for average homo sapiens. They also represented some of the oldest known examples of intentionally reshaping the bones in the human head to form this conical shape. The skulls found at at Hatamunga, China, are interesting because this is the first archaeological site where they can judge just how long that practice had had been going on. So some of the Hatamunga skulls dated as far back as 12,000 years ago, um, all the way up to 5,000 years ago. And so that spanned a 7,000-year period. And of course, when this happens, if you look at these individuals, they're going to look strikingly different to everybody else. And these particular elongated heads date between 5,000 years ago all the way back to 12,000 years ago. And this is quite incredible because this shows that this process was going on at this early date. And this is at the very end of the last ice age. So what are these elongated heads? Why are they, why did they do this? You know, what do we know about this process? Which it must be pointed out is not unique to China. It's something that has gone on all over the world, in the Americas, uh, in the Eurasian continents, and in Africa. It's there everywhere. The origin of the dragon 
uh, emperors and the dragon people of China goes back again to about 8,500 BC, which is around the time period we're talking about here of this group of gods that survived the catastrophic flood and they arrived in specific hotspots around the world to kickstart civilization because it's always been suggested how did humans spontaneously discover civilization all at once, all around the world at the same time. So in 8,500 BC in China, we have the establishment of the dragon people or the serpent people, as they're also called. And they were the two gods that basically had the group of seven other gods with whom they were uh, they brought the civilization to that part of the world. And they're described as very tall, long-headed, and it was their genetic bloodline that eventually becomes the dragon bloodline of the dragon emperors, which we know so much about. When we look at the... When I was born in the colony of Atlantis, I... When we look at the historic records throughout Egypt and the highlands of central China and the monasteries of Tibet, as well as Mesoamerica and into Peru, what we find is that in ancient times, the beings with the elongated heads had very, very mystical powers. They were able to do things that typical humans could not. They were able to heal very quickly and heal the bodies of other people. They were able to understand uh, time in a very different way and see into the future and see into the past. And they were able to access information in ways that the average person appeared uh, could not do easily. If these elongated-headed beings had mystical powers and abilities beyond the human species, could these strange skulls come from a completely different species on this planet? People with elongated skulls literally inhabited the entire planet, and no matter where you go on the planet, you will find remnants of elongated skulls or people that used to have elongated skulls. And a lot of evidence has been left behind that they traveled and circumnavigated the entire planet. They may have even been interplanetary. If this is true, could these elongated-headed beings have come from the stars to give us knowledge? Another location provides more evidence. Malta. The three-island archipelago in the middle of the Mediterranean Sea. It was here, in the heart of these islands, that these ancient people built the world's only known prehistoric subterranean temple, the Halsaflini Hypogeum. Within the lower chambers of the temple's necropolis, archaeologist Themistocles Zamet discovered thousands of skeletal remains during the early 1900s, their skulls elongated. The origin of these remains has never been determined. Only recently have these skulls undergone thorough scientific study. This is what makes it so unique, is the fact that you have these above-ground temples and you have a surrogate temple, which is its mirror image on the ground. It's unique in the world. And one of them was called the Hypogeum of Hal Safliani. And it was unique because when he started digging the inside of these 33 chambers on three levels, that's a hell of a lot of digging that was done, he found uh, something like 11,000 bodies in there, skeletons, uh, they'd all been thrown in there very unceremoniously as though a massive tidal wave had taken over the island, which is exactly what happened. So... He found all these bodies in there, and much to his amazement, a lot of them, and there's over a thousand of them, were elongated skulls. 
And they're unusual. Uh, the part of the fossa medium was missing, and also the sagittal satchel was also not there, as you'd find that little crack that's in the human skull. So something was different. Welcome to Pine Grove. This table is by invitation only. Are you serious? They're like mean girls, but with medical alert bracelets. Hi. So something was different about these skulls, and it was realised that they represented an elite group, people who were different to the many other thousands of skulls. So who were these elites? Almost certainly they were the people in charge of the engineering projects that were going on on the island of Malta itself, and most assuredly they had a different genetic background. But who were they and where did they come from? Could the elongated heads found in Malta give more evidence that the elongated heads were not only a different species, but maybe not even from this planet? This is where context becomes so important. Because if we look only at the skulls, we may never be able to solve the mystery. But what the context of the people in the area tell us through their written records, through the artifacts, through the oral traditions, is that humans have always had a relationship with the cosmos. We have a family in the stars. And those that have come to us throughout history, various times in history, in times of need, when humankind faced some of the greatest challenges and crises of war and climate in the past, famine. It is these beings with the elongated skulls that came and brought food such as quinoa to the people of the Andes. They brought wisdom of, of peace. They brought the ability to heal when diseases ravaged throughout these populations. And they all associate these extraordinary experiences with our family from the stars. If these beings did come from the stars, why did they come to Earth? When you analyze and look at some of these ancient texts, you start to discover that there's a potential for an ancient galactic war that occurred in the Pleiades star cluster. And you had the Lyrians and the Syrians, and some of the depictions of them, they had elongated skulls. But either way, when you look at the record of people coming from other places to Earth, they seem to have elongated skulls, or the ancient people at least have depicted them as having these large elongated skulls. This isn't the first planet that this race has visited. These interdimensional uh, beings, they guide, often they guide the different planets and they bring in a, not, a lot of knowledge. They are the knowledge keepers. These beings, and they, they have such a mass consciousness and they have a mass amount of knowledge that's beyond time, that's infinite. And they travel from planet to planet bringing this information and instilling it into the consciousness of any new planet that there is within specific solar systems. If these beings were installing a new consciousness, could there be remnants of them also in ancient Egypt, where many secrets of the gods and their power are carved into the walls of temples? The most famous elongated heads depicted throughout Egyptian history is a pharaoh of Egypt, Akhenaten, and his queen Nefertiti, and later, King Tut. I'm really intrigued by the 
elongated skulls that we find throughout history and depictions of beings with elongated skulls. In particular, I'm fascinated by Akhenaten and his children. Akhenaten is considered the heretic king in ancient Egypt, about 1400 BC. He's originally portrayed as a normal-looking human being, but then suddenly the Egyptians started portraying him with what is clearly an elongated skull. And his children have elongated skulls. And it fascinates me to wonder, well, why did they suddenly start doing that? What is the ultimate meaning of that? Egyptologists dismiss it as some kind of a genetic condition that he suffered from that was passed on to his children. I'm not so sure about that. For me, the answer comes from looking at the metaphysics that, that Akhenaten introduced. He introduced monotheism to the world. He fired the whole pantheon of ancient Egyptian gods and introduced the worship of the Aten, which he called the disc. And people, especially Egyptologists, say that Akhenaten worshipped the sun and the disc represented the sun. But Akhenaten said no, that the Aten symbolized or represented the light that illuminated the sun. Now think about that. That is a giant leap in consciousness that he's introducing. And he passed this teaching on to his children as well. Is there a correspondence between this giant leap in consciousness that he introduced and perhaps a, a heightened or uh, a greater cranial capacity that he might have actually possessed and his children could have possessed? We're told by researchers of elongated skulls that the cranial capacity could be two and a half times that of an ordinary human being. Just think of what you could do consciousness-wise if you have a cranial capacity two and a half times what you have right now. And what if Akhenaten indeed had this cranial capacity and he's introducing this super advanced metaphysics that actually changed the world? If these beings came to Earth to help the human population, is it possible their species could be linked to the human lineage at all? There is yet one more place in the world that holds a high concentration of elongated heads. And thanks to the dry desert location, the remains of the elongated heads have not been destroyed. Paracas, a desert peninsula located within the Pisco province of the southern coast of Peru. It is here where Peruvian archaeologist Julio Teo made an amazing discovery in 1928. An elaborate burial site containing tombs, containing hundreds of ancient remains. Teo and fellow archaeologists at the time were amazed to learn these bodies possessed the largest elongated skulls found anywhere in the world and have come to be known as the Paracas skulls. In total, Teo found more than 300 of these elongated skulls, some of which date back around 3,000 years. Here's where the mystery begins. Because when we look at the physical skulls that we find in southern Peru, in places like Paracas, for example, what we find is that these skulls do not look like typical human skulls before they are deformed. Researcher Jack Carey points to some of the skulls discovered and shows that they are completely different from any other human skull. Paracas skulls are interesting because they're missing the sagittal suture they have like one parietal plate. They seem to all express uh, genetic um, features that we don't see in normal humans. So the difference between the fossa major found in the one skulls is genetic, and it has to do with the type of ridge that's running through the top plate of the skull and, and almost makes it flatter. Uh, the paracas skulls, 
uh, we're missing the sagittal suture, which is where you could connect the two parietal plates of, of the human skull. So in either case, those are genetic traits. They're not caused by ritual head binding. In 2018, several Paracas skulls received DNA testing from geneticist William Brown and scientist Nassim Haramain. Carbon dating was performed on the skulls upon arrival, and ancient DNA extraction was performed with the UCLA Center for Genomic and Bioinformatics Lab. By early 2019, they started analyzing the whole genome. We were able to receive samples from two skulls, elongated skulls, uh, from the, the Paracas region in Peru. They were amazingly well-preserved. Uh, so the, they had hair that was still present. They had soft tissues that were still present. And from my initial estimation, they looked like perhaps 400 years old at a max. When we did radiocarbon dating of them, they came out at 2,000 plus years old, uh, 2,200 years old, 2,400 years before present. We performed uh, analysis on the uh, skull volume, uh, the size of the skulls as compared to uh, humans. Um, the skulls were uh, had a larger volume than uh, human skulls. Uh, the sutures where the two plates of a, a cranium the cranial skull come together uh, were different uh, in the elongated skulls. We have preliminary results from the testing we've done and it appears to have some anomalies uh, that are very interesting. Uh, certainly uh, being in contact with these skulls and seeing them and doing even just a, a general analysis of them is definitely remarkable. Some of the anomalies that we're finding in the testing is making us think that there could be different species, at least, than the uh, Homo sapiens sapien. The being that... Eye care is all of you care. Enroll in VSP Vision Care and start seeing more benefits. Uh, being that uh, I've seen you, you, you have found in in Paracas in Peru, um, and uh, for and for sure when I've been in Ica in Peru and I've seen the skulls, I could, I could, I could tell that there were mostly humans trying to imitate them, but there were two of them that uh, they were from Luduk. They, I, not only by seeing the skull, but also by feeling. The way in which I remember them is because I used to be one of them, and I remember how it was to be one of them since I was a kid. Um, I remember them from a planet that we used to call Luduk, and there were three main different races of our people. We were, um, that my race was like two meters and a half uh, high, and there were other ones that were smaller, and 
but the main characteristic was that we had three brains uh, two to balance the reality in the third dimensional worlds and the other one uh, to connect with the uh, realities um, beyond the third dimension like the fourth and fifth dimension the, the brain that we had allowed us to vibrate the information so we were not much people that used to talk uh, not talkative people at all this took us to be one of the species from Sirius uh, or close by Sirius that went to every one of the planets that we're trying to evolve that we're in the process of evolution and we were the ones seeding like the information like the seeders of the of the projects that would become those worlds so this is why some people in this planet used to call these species like gods uh, that came from the skies other ones like the masters other ones like the architects uh, because we came here to to teach could these architects have come to teach not only from Sirius but from other star systems is it possible there is a link between all of these locations and the elongated skulls that have been found all the pyramids in the world are aligned and they work for different kind of constellations if you see the pyramids of China the pyramids of Egypt and the pyramids of Peru what you will find is that the earth is reflecting the portals of Pleiades, Orion and Sirius if you see the sky you will find that if you see the three stars of Orion's portal at your left you will have the stars of Sirius at your right you will find the stars of Pleiades so when you see this this structure when I was born in the colony of Atlantis I this structure and you print it into the earth you will find China pyramids Egypt pyramids and Peruvian pyramids so the whole planet can hold the frequency of the biggest portal toward the spiritual self in China towards the biggest portal of every dimension in Egypt and then in Peru the order of the being and the order of the confederation I knew that my people would go and come constantly to this planet to make the settlements to make the uh, the download of the information uh, through pyramids mainly uh, for us that kind of architecture represented the seats represented the, the, the seats of uh, all the dimensions together so this is why uh, these species used to be all along this planet because for us this planet was an opportunity uh, like a greenhouse where we could put all the seeds together were beings from the Sirius star system and other star systems an ancient progenitor race that helped to seed and guide humanity is it possible 
These beings have been deities worshipped by ancient civilizations all over the world. The desire for people of the old world to ritualistically bind the skulls of their young may point to this possibility. Ongoing research into anomalous DNA sampled from elongated skulls, excavated from ancient sites the world over, continues to this day, suggesting there could have been intermingling of Homo sapiens sapiens and these beings. But these elongated skulls provide some answers to humanity's ongoing search for our origins on this planet. Well, well. Okay, now we have our final piece here tonight. This is... um, This is with our sister, Regina Meredith. Breaking down the heart wall. Okay. Okay. Um, Giving and receiving love depends on the flow of energy from our heart which is the seat of the soul. Energy Mm. healer and author of the book, The Emotion Code, Dr. Bradley Nelson, explains why negative emotions from the past can affect our physical body and how releasing these emotions can empower us with forgiveness and opens the emotional heart, the heart wall, that blocks us from expressing love. Coming out of isolation, we may have more emotional baggage now than we had in the past. As we open our hearts, we reconnect to the people around us and we heal ourselves and our communities through feeling and practicing unconditional love. I resembled that remark. Mm. <laughs> Let's see what Regina Meredith has to say with her her guest here, Dr. Bradley Nelson. Here we go. between the age of 18 to 25 have seriously contemplated suicide. We're not designed to be isolated. We're designed to be together. 93% of people have this heart wall phenomenon where the heart can feel like it's in danger. When that wall is taken down, we've seen suicidally depressed people get well in days. What we have to get back to really is... Dr. Bradley Nelson, creator of the Emotion Code and the Body Code, is with us once again to have a much-needed discussion. The world has been through so much of late between the pandemic and world events, all of which are leaving a highway of depression in its wake. Let's see how we can begin to eliminate our or overwrite those programs lodged in our subconscious. And 
gosh, it all comes down to that subconscious, that pesky thing that's kind of like a little bag of garbage on our back, but also potential. And so, you know, I think most people don't really understand just how much our lives are run by the subconscious. And we're going to get into that in a little bit. But first of all, I wanted to talk to you about some really kind of troubling news that has has surfaced recently. And I think a lot of it has to do with young people who whose world has become deconstructed. They're not going to class. Uh, a lot of them, they're, they're not interacting with each other. And this was what came up. One in four Americans between the age of 18 to 25 and a recent study have seriously contemplated suicide. That's not, those are not normal numbers. But here we are, and you have a massive clientele, Motion Co. does globally. Mm-hmm. So first of all, I wanted to find out from you, what kind of urgency or shift have your practitioners, what, about 5,000 of them now? We've got 7,000. 7,000, I'm behind. That was last time we talked. <laughs> okay. Um, have, have you been getting, you've been getting feedback for, um, as a center of all of it. What has happened since the world's events have changed and, and the pandemic began? Well, I think that, uh, of course, what's happening with people is that they're, they're being forced into, uh, more isolation. Than they've ever experienced before, and we're not designed to be isolated. We're designed to be together. We're not designed to be apart. And so, what that's doing is it's creating a lot of emotional baggage for a lot of people. And of course, when you experience intense emotions, uh, those emotions sometimes, if they're too powerful, or if you have a tendency to bury those emotions and not want to feel them, and those energies can become trapped in the body. Right. And of course, those are trapped emotions. Yeah, we're going to get into that. Yeah. Hmm. What we find is that um, there are more people now that that seem to be forming what we call a heart wall. Interesting. Explain that. Um, We talked about it in another show, but now that it's Mm -hmm. becoming so prominent, let's give it center stage for a bit. Well, what happens, uh, of course, the heart itself is the seat of the soul and the source of love and creativity and romance, everything the ancient peoples believed it to be, Mm -hmm. right? And, um, in modern science, they're starting to show now that the heart really truly is a brain. It's mostly nervous tissue. Most of the messages um, between the brain and the heart are going from the heart to the brain. Yes. Instead of they thought it would be the opposite. Yes. And so what happens to us is that when we when we feel like our heart is going to break or when things are really difficult or we're very um, we're in a very insecure sort of situation and things are going on like what we've been seeing over the last year or so, then it's. Uh, it's a situation where the heart can feel like it's in danger. And especially this happens if you feel like your heart is breaking, like if you're going through a breakup or if you are really deeply grieved or deeply hurt, you can feel those physical sensations like your heart is actually going to break. When that's going on, uh, the heart will put up a wall around itself. I believe the heart is actually the seat of the subconscious, really. And it will put up a wall around itself made of layers of your emotional baggage. Mm-hmm. And that's a protection to protect the, the deepest core of who you are, right? And the problem with that, though, is that even though it might be great in the short term, you know, when the bombs are falling, it's kind of like moving your heart into a bunker. But the problem is when things start to normalize, uh, now your heart is still living in this bunker Mm -hmm. and you've got this wall around your heart and you see when people feel love or affection for each other 
there's an energy that travels from their heart to that other person's heart. Mm-hmm. And the problem is when you have a heart wall, that energy, the, the passage of that energy is interfered with. And so it makes it much harder for you to give and receive love, harder to really create the perfect creation that I think is in the heart and that subconscious mind. And so when that wall is taken down, we've seen suicidally depressed people get well in days from having that wall taken down. I believe it's the most important thing that people can do for themselves. I think that what we have to get back to really is love and unconditional love. And unconditional love basically says that you know, when you're feeling it, you don't really care whether somebody is broke or homeless or whether they have a different political view than you or whether they have a different gender than you. It's all about loving people unconditionally. And I think that that is what it ultimately is going to save the world and, and what we need to move towards all of us. The fascinating thing about taking down the, the wall around the heart is that oftentimes people fall in love, uh, even at advanced ages, that never thought they would. Uh, people find that um, uh, they can feel the love of the creator, the higher power for them when they could never feel it before. And um, in fact, I've got a, I have a story I can share with you really quickly that oh, someone sent in. Um, this is um, a man named uh, Giacomo Rivelli in London. He said, after my heart wall was released, my life completely changed. I became far more open to the divine, and I started lucid dreaming. It's cool. After a few months, I entered into my first long-term relationship with an amazing partner in which I am very happy. At first, I thought I wanted to pursue a completely different profession, but after one month, my resolve for my current passion strengthened, and I am achieving better results than ever in it. I'm so grateful that I discovered the heart wall and had it released. 93% of people in this world have this phenomenon going on, this heart wall phenomenon. Now, let's go into this because we now have all this stuff, this whole new body of of challenge kind of that's been inculcated into our fear base and into into the deep memory, the subconscious and so forth. Let's talk about how you start working with people when we have this kind of mass mental trauma and someone comes to you and says, I can't talk to my family anymore. I am so depressed. Where do you begin with them now? Well, think about a glass. Okay, but we'll use this cup. And let's imagine that this cup is your being, okay, your energy body, your physical body. And let's imagine that that cup has emotional baggage in it. And that emotional baggage, some of it is from uh, when you were a kid and you used to cry yourself to sleep at night. Some of it is from when your parents were arguing when you were young. Some of it is the breakup you had in junior high and high school. Some of it is the divorce that you went through. Um, some of it is the bad work situation that you went through and so on. And so what happens is most people have a cup that is most of the way full already with emotional baggage. And then a pandemic comes along, (laughs) right? And then all this political intrigue and everything comes along. And the problem is there's no place for that emotional baggage now to really go. And so it starts to overflow and people then can't deal with life. And so what we do is we start to remove uh, their emotional baggage so that Instead of their cup running over all the time, now they're creating room so that they can deal with the new emotional stuff that's coming on. And of course, in the emotion code, also in the last chapter, we teach people how how to deal with emotional stuff so that they're not so prone to develop new emotional baggage. 
Well, why don't we talk about that for just a moment, then mm-hmm. we'll get into the nuts and bolts of fixing it once you've let it get in there. Okay. You want to talk about that last mm-hmm. chapter for a minute? Well, absolutely. Um, we talk about love in that chapter, and we talk about the importance of feeling love and how important it is to and how, how shifting it can be for your own energy to just tell people that you love them. And when you tell someone that you love them, really from your heart, and anyone can do this, um, even if you're not saying it out loud, their heart, your heart sends that energy to them. Their heart picks that up and it understands that on a, on a subconscious level. Practical example. Um, recently, my wife and I were shopping at Costco and, um, you could you could feel the panic and everybody. I don't know. I think it was uh, and the there was something going on. Up the car yeah, at nine o'clock in the morning. Uh. <laughs> right. Exactly. And I I could feel the panic. Yeah. Everybody. People are zooming around faster than I've ever seen them go in their carts, and and it started to be you know it's an energy that everybody's giving off, and I'm starting to absorb that, and I'm starting to feel it too. And I thought, wait a minute, I don't want to I don't want to go there. So what I did is I just started to tell people. People that I have no idea uh, who they are, I have no connection at all. I just started telling them. I just look at it for a moment and say, "I love you," just silently. Yeah, I love you. And I'm telling you, um, within ten people, I was—I'm sure I was the highest vibration person in the whole place. Yeah. Right? <laughs> Anybody can do this, and yeah. it's amazing how powerful it is, and how how easily and how quickly it can shift your energy. Absolutely. So, so that's a great technique. One of the other things that we talk about in the book uh, at the very end is forgiveness. Because, you know, when people do things that hurt others or when people do things that hurt us, the natural human tendency is to withhold forgiveness because we want to get even with that person. And we're only hurting ourselves. You know, Lewis Smead said that... um, Forgiveness is like letting the prisoner go free, only to find out that the prisoner was you, you. right? And so if there are people in your life that you need to forgive, you need to forgive them. Let let it go. And, And I know that some people believe that it's enough to just become indifferent to what they did to you or indifferent to them. But I don't believe that. I think that you really, truly, to really have peace in your own life, You'll never have it until you forgive. And sometimes you need to forgive yourself. Mm-hmm. And that's the person that needs it the most sometimes. Very true. And as, as you're speaking these words, I've always had an odd relationship. And I know my husband's called me on it. He said, you don't believe in forgiveness? And I said, I don't in the classic sense of the word because the way my being works mm-hmm. is what I do instead is I go into and try to walk in their shoes emotionally and understand, really try to understand what the factors are in their life that would take them to that point to do the thing that was hurtful or painful or whatever. And I find that no forgiveness is needed if you can understand why someone was motivated to do what they do. And I think to take the time to really understand another person or the classic you know, walk a mile in someone else's shoes Mm -hmm. is really critical. And it almost eliminates the need to even have to go through any forgiveness. It's understood. Yeah. It's understanding. That's a great point. And, and, and everyone has to decide how they want to deal with it. Because a lot of times forgiveness is I'm holding this over you, but I forgive you. There's this 
there's a, there's something missing in that for me. Yeah. I would rather understand a person. I think that's absolutely important because if you can understand what caused them to do the things that they did. Yeah. Then compassion can, comes out. Well, exactly. Yeah. You know, sometimes we need help to forgive. I mean, sometimes I had a situation in my life where I was, uh, I felt very wronged mm-hmm. by some people uh, that were close to me. And uh, I didn't feel like I would ever be able to associate with them again. Mm-hmm. And uh, and I just, I felt like it was beyond my ability to be able to forgive. And so what I did is I, I gave it back to the higher power and I said, uh, I said, God, if you want me to be able to work with these people in the future, you're going to need to help me to forgive them because I'm not... I'm not able to do it on my own. I couldn't do it. And um, it was a fascinating thing. I offered that prayer about three times. And on the morning of the third day, I woke up and it was all gone. God had just taken it out of my Well, being. there you go. And that's yeah. grace. Because mm-hmm. to continue this thought, there are things people do that are self-motivated. And just pure greed, for example. People sure. will screw each other out uh, over for greedy purposes, mm-hmm. which is not acceptable. I mean, there's no way to kind of look at that and justify it. You could say, okay, maybe you didn't have enough growing up. And I mean, I, what, I'm kind of contradicting myself now here. And then beyond that, if you think, God, I've looked at this every way. That's just greed and that's not fair. And then the way I'd go about it is say, I want to talk to that person and reconcile this. you know. And you can't always get reconciliation because that person may not feel that they're necessarily operating out of greed or selfishness or whatnot so they're not they're not going to see it in themselves and you're not going to have a a reasonable conversation and that's where my my way of doing things absolutely fails because you can't truly understand why someone would do these things so then you that's where yours comes in as very beautiful and offering grace into the situation when understanding is impossible well you know the reality of it is we all need to be forgiven Right. Yeah, we all have our stuff. Don't we? We all do things that, looking back, that we regret. We all do things that that now we wouldn't even think of doing, but that we did when we were younger, right? We all have things that we need forgiveness for. And so, um, I mean, to me, that's that's what helps me to motivate. I, you know, I mean, there but for the grace of God go I, right? Mm -hmm. I I should forgive anybody and everybody uh, in my life Mm -hmm. because I need that myself. Right. And we all do. We all need that grace. We all need that grace where we've lied to ourselves, for example, and we've winked ourselves and, and justified things in our own name. Yes. So this is, thank you for bringing this last chapter of the book up. I think it's really important we have this little conversation. It's a good chapter. <laughs> good. Okay, now let's go on to working, working with the heart wall in particular right now. What happens and how one starts that process and what one can expect to see, and sometimes when it doesn't work so well, what is going on there? Well, um, first of all, of course, we have a network of practitioners that work remotely and mm-hmm. live and in person in 80 countries around the world. And so you can go to our website and you can find somebody to work with you, or you can do this yourself. And um, and that's one of the beautiful things about it, and that's what we really encourage people to do is um, – Get the book. It's it's not expensive. You know the emotion yeah, is available everywhere. It. Absolutely. Start working with it. Learn learn the fundamentals of it, and then you can start to remove your own emotional baggage and clear the heart wall from your own self. And families do that. It changes the family dynamics entirely. Mm-hmm. Um, 
teams of creative people do this and it changes the ability of the team to create synergistically and they're able to create more than they otherwise would have been able to. Um, but it's a, um, it's just a process. Getting rid of emotional baggage is, um, is something that we can all do. In fact, it's so simple that kids can learn how to do it and, and they are and they're having really good success around the world. Well, okay, so give us an idea what that looks like as a, as a little kid. Give us the kid version of it and what they would do in this process. Well, for example... Um, Say so-and-so stole your stuff and you popped him one. Okay, well... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, as a kid. <laughs> okay, well, basically, we use muscle testing. Yeah. Okay, and so um, so if you were another child mm-hmm. and... Uh, and I'm mad because you stole my stuff. Yeah, okay. Yeah. Well, we might have to reconcile that first, <laughs> right. okay? Then maybe clear clear the emotional baggage yeah. later. Yeah. Um, but, um, but let's say, for example, that... Uh, well, a, a great example. I'm not sure if I told this story on one of the other shows, but um, uh, there was a woman who told me the story that she... Um, uh, she she got the emotion code and started reading it, and her son started reading it and listening to it. And he started practicing practicing with his friends, and she didn't pay too much attention. But a couple of weeks went by, and one day the phone rings, and she picks up the phone, and there's a woman on the other end of the phone line who identifies herself as the mother of one of her son's friends. Mm-hmm. And she says, listen, your son's been doing this emotional thing uh, with the other boys. And she said, I thought it was kind of cute, but she said, I have to tell you something. She said, my son has a severe phobia of water. You can have a phobia to anything. Mm-hmm. She said, this has been very disruptive to our life and his life, and uh, we've tried everything, taken him to everybody. Nothing has ever fixed this. She said, right now I'm at the community pool. My son's out playing in the water with the other boys for the first time in his whole life. She said, what is your son doing? How is this even possible? Your son did this, right? Those two boys are only 11 years old. So what it would look like basically in a case like that yeah. is um, is uh, we'll say that you're the boy with the phobia. Well, uh, the other boy might have might have said, um, "Hold out your arm," mm-hmm. and then he might have said, "Do you have a trapped emotion that we can release that's contributing to your phobia or that's causing your phobia of water?" And if the answer was strong for yes, then um, he would have had the emotion code chart, and he would mm-hmm. have asked, "Okay, is, is this?" A, and there's 60 emotions in the charts, two columns, six rows, and he would have said, "Is the emotion in column A? Maybe it was in column B. Is it in one of the odd rows? Maybe no." Okay, maybe it's in, you know, row two, row four. Okay, well, is it this or this? Oh, okay, it's panic. So then, do we need to know more about this? No. Sometimes you have to figure out a little more, but um, then it's just a matter of swiping with a hand or a magnet down the back, down the governing meridian, and that's probably about all it took. Interesting. Yeah, I mean, that is really simple. Okay, so something else is coming up here. Um uh, this is based on personal experience I had years ago when I was doing uh, some hypnotherapy years ago. And um, I was working with a client, and they were looking for enhanced performance in uh, the world of saber fencing. Mm-hmm. They were ranked 60th, 66th in the country or something in the 40s and over division, mm-hmm. and they wanted to go for it. And so anyway, I started doing sessions. This person trusted me, and I said, do you mind if we do it silently? Same thing you're talking about, basically, because mm-hmm. we're using idiomotor response. Mm-hmm. But like you talked about projecting love to people in Costco, mm-hmm. is it possible that we can do exactly what you're talking about if we have the, the book and the page in front of us and saying, if you trust me on this, right. and then just you ask the question of their mm-hmm. them mind to mind, and that way it can bypass any preconceived notions yes. they have. You can totally do that. You Absolutely. can. That yeah. would be that. I'd love to play with that. 
mm-hmm. and see what kind of results. This guy did great. He went to sixth in the country. Yeah, you know, fantastic. On a couple of these silent sessions, it was so mm-hmm. powerful because yeah. his mind was never involved in it. Yeah, yeah, and that's fine, and you, you can do that as well. Um, you can ask questions vocally. You can ask them non-vocally. Doesn't matter. Works at a distance. Works at any distance. Doesn't matter. I love it. Yeah. That's yeah. That's just so direct. Yeah. So um, now, what happens if you're a practitioner working with a person at home? Are they doing their own muscle testing or using another divination device? Or no, basically how do they the way. Do it? Yeah. Good question. The way that it works is um, the human body has this amazing ability that's built right into it to set aside its own needs act on behalf of someone else. And so we call this acting uh, or working by proxy. Uh-huh. A proxy is somebody that acts or stands in for someone else, right? Uh-huh. And so the human body has this ability. And so uh, so essentially what happens is if I were working on you, for example, okay, and let's say that you're in you're in Budapest, right. okay, um, what I would do is uh, we don't have to be on the phone, for example, okay? But as long as I have your permission to uh-huh. work on you, uh, at some point I could simply... Uh, usually how I do it is I'll just offer a short prayer just to ask for help, for divine mm-hmm. help, to help me, to help you. And then uh, then I'll just ask if I can act as proxy right. for you, and I'll muscle test myself. If I get a yes on that, great. In fact, what's so interesting is that normally, um, of course, strength is yes and weakness is mm-hmm. no in muscle testing, the way we teach it. Um, and normally if I were to say my name is Brad, my name is Brad, that would be strong. But when the proxy connection gets made, it's a wireless connection that is so profound that if I say at that point when, when the connection is made, if I say my name is Regina, it's strong, and my name is Brad, that would be weak. Okay? Mm-hmm. And then at that point what I can do is I can go ahead, since I'm acting on your behalf, I'll ask questions, I'll get answers, and I can use the body code or the emotion code to find whatever imbalances are going on and clear those on myself, and they clear from you. And then when we're done, we just break the connection, and that's how it's done. Easy. Well, we know historically, even though it can be a little messier and less less understood and not even have protocols around it, we know that people have, um, have impacted people at a distance in healing. I mean, this has yeah. historically always been true, remote healing. Absolutely. So this is just a, a type of remote healing that is very specific where you can go through uh, layers of it. Mm-hmm. And so you know you can target what the pinpoint under un- underlying factors are or with Another remote healing, you might get a call. Somebody's just, you know, fallen from the, uh, the second story and they're on the ground and just do something. You know, it's not very specific. So this is really beautiful in its specificity. Well, it is. And, you know, what we what we tell our, our um, students is um, the first time that you're on the phone with somebody and they're several states or several countries away or on the other side of the planet and uh, you release something from them using the body code or the emotion code, and their pain level goes from a nine to a zero in, in a heartbeat, mm-hmm. then in that moment, your life changes because yeah. you realize that, um, yeah, this actually does work. And it's all about quantum physics, really. It is. And it's and all quantum about quantum entanglement. Exactly. It's about entanglement and collapsing the wave function yep. and all of those things. But it's just the practical application of all that. Thank goodness we understand it now. Exactly. Because I'm sure a number of years ago when you first got going, you had a lot of explaining to do. Exactly. <laughs> you don't have to explain so much to this audience. We are, we're up to speed on that one, I think. Now we just have to use it, validate it for ourselves. Yeah. You were saying earlier, people can have an allergy to almost anything. And we were yes. talking off camera. And you said there was one lady who had an allergy to making money. Do you want yes. to share that story with us? Because I'm sure there are a lot of people right That's now that can relate. Yeah, this is a great story. Um, 
This is from a woman named Anne Hessian from Rhode Island. She said, before I started working with the body code, I had been self-employed for many years. I had created some success, but I just kept bumping up against an income barrier that I could never seem to get past. That ring a bell for anybody? <laughs> Using the body code, I decided to see if it could help me finally break through in this area of my life. I was immediately led to an idea allergy. You can be allergic to anything, including ideas, we have found. And with a little testing, I was able to figure out that this idea allergy boiled down to a subconscious belief that if I made a lot of money, it would ruin my marriage. I cleared that idea allergy with three quick swipes. Okay, so just like this, Mm -hmm. a, a magnet or her hand. I had no idea how quickly I would see the results of removing that one block. In less than a month, my income more than doubled. And I finally achieved and went over a monthly income goal I had been chasing and never hitting for years. And what's more, in the six months since then, my monthly income has not once gone down below that goal I had chased for so long. Meanwhile, I just celebrated my 25th wedding anniversary where my awesome husband and I renewed our vows. It's extraordinary the difference it made in my life using the the body code on that abundance block. Um, Anne Hessian, Rhode Island. That's wonderful. Okay, now how do you distinguish an idea allergy to just a kind of corrupt, firmly held kind of subconscious belief? Well, we let the subconscious mind figure that out. We let let the subconscious mind do all the heavy lifting. Yeah. So with the body code, what we have is, if you can imagine, a, a hierarchical mind map that actually runs in your phone. And the beauty of it is because the subconscious mind is immersed in and is fully connected to the database of universal intelligence, Mm -hmm. the subconscious mind of every person knows exactly what is in the, in the body code. Mm -hmm. So when we're trying to find an imbalance with somebody, like let's say for example, that you're, you're stuck in abundance and you're trying to create more whatever. Um, What we would do is using the body code, we would simply ask your subconscious mind uh, with this chart in mind, okay, this it's kind of a massive database, we would ask, is there an underlying reason why you're blocked about this? And then we simply ask using muscle testing, uh, is the imbalance on the right side of the chart or on the left side of the chart? And then we very rapidly can drill down to what it is. And it could be a trapped emotion. It could be some kind of a trauma. It could be an idea allergy. There's lots of things it could be. But the, the beauty of it is, you see, is that your subconscious mind, the subconscious mind of every single person, knows with a perfect understanding what is really going on in them and what's really going on with them and what's really blocking them, what their real deficiencies are as far as vitamins and minerals. The subconscious knows. The subconscious knows what uh, what emotional baggage you have. It knows if you've got a parasite. It knows if you've got viruses. It knows about everything with a perfect comprehension. So all we do is we just use this mapping system to ask these questions and drill down and then delete and remove things or add things that might need to be added. Mm -hmm. So in the quantum field, exactly. You just brought this up a bit ago. We were talking about data. Okay. So your other uh, profession was in the computer industry, right? right? And so here we're looking at a computer metaphor. And so Mm -hmm. how, how does our subconscious and mind work in a sense as a cloud and, and sort through this massive amount of data and then pinpoint the data point that needs to be reflected back to us? Well, what I've learned is to just trust it mm-hmm. because the subconscious mind is this computer that we can't really comprehend. Uh, and like I said before, it, it knows everything that we need. 
And that's how in my practice I was able to help people uh, who had been told that there was no cure for them. And so if you can imagine, uh, for 10 years, I was primarily working with people that had been told there was no hope at all. And yet I knew I had a secret weapon because I could ask their subconscious mind. And I believe that this is the future of healing. Oh, I do too. It really is. Absolutely. Because every single person has this massive database. And as a computer programmer, when I went to chiropractic school, I can remember sitting in my classes and my instructors would say things like, the brain is the most amazing computer, you know, that we know of. And I would, and I, I can remember sitting there thinking, wow, well, will we ever be able to actually tap into it? What if we could, what if we could tap in and then access all that data? And that's exactly what we do now with the body code and with the emotion code too. But the body code, the emotion code in, is included in the body code. The body code is the system that I put together. There are really six different kinds of imbalances that we suffer from that create all of our mental and physical and emotional problems. Mm-hmm. And uh, so what you can do is you can simply ask, and then if you just trust it, it will take you right to whatever it is, and then you release it or address that you know, however you need to. And all the instructions are all in there. And, and this is in uh, the forthcoming book, uh, The yeah. Body Code. The body, Yeah, The Body Code book is coming out this yes. fall sometime. Yeah. And um, it's going to be an overview of The Body Code. The body code system itself, mm-hmm. um, if we were to publish it in a book, it would be about this thick. Right. Well, but you also developed an app that has all that in it. That's the app that, that has, yeah, that it's all interfaces digital. with it. Yes, yeah, so exactly. you've got that. So people can interface with it whichever way they wish. Yeah. And so you've just clearly defined these six categories you're talking about. And I want to get into one of them about healing. Mm-hmm. Uh, okay. We were just talking for a brief moment off camera, which is you had an experience Mm-hmm. around viruses and that matters right now because yeah. i think for the first time uh humanity at large is reading about viruses <laughs> since <Yeah>. the pandemic <laughs> and since we have so many so much access to information and we have a lot of information misinformation mm-hmm. we don't understand what we're reading a lot of times so what was your experience with viruses that can help clarify this well this was something that was totally unexpected um but um you know, uh, of course, uh, I studied viruses in biology and went through chiropractic school and everything else, like so many other people. So one day, I've been in practice for a while, and a woman came into me and she said, "I've been diagnosed with Epstein Barr virus, mm-hmm. and um, and so I want you to help me." So I started thinking about it, and and I I was in the habit of asking for help mm-hmm. from the divine, from God, however you refer to it, uh, with each person that I saw. And it was a totally private, totally personal habit. Before mm-hmm. I'd go to work on somebody, right. I would just take a moment and just say, yeah, I need some help here. Right. And so, so I started thinking about this. And, uh, and, and I just offered this prayer and I said, Father, if there's a better way to deal with this, will you please help me to understand it? And all of a sudden, I, got, I had this download, that um, this understanding that kind of poured into me. And here's what it was. It, it it basically said, okay, if you think of a virus, you can think of a virus as little organisms, um, like in traditional biology. Or another way to think of a virus is to think of it as just pure energy, like a cloud of energy, which is also valid. It's valid on both sides of that, right? Just as we are. Yeah, just as we are. Exactly right. And if you can think of a virus as a cloud of energy, then it frees your mind to be able to manipulate that uh, cloud of energy like you'd remove a trapped emotion or anything else. So I was able to help that lady. And then I had another interesting thing that happened to me that taught me about this 
This woman came into me one day and her complaint was she had a, a cough. And when she would breathe in deep, she'd start coughing uncontrollably. And so I tested her and found she had uh, a, a virus that is settling into her lungs. It was a common cold virus. And so I released it from her, just thinking this way, right? Removing it as an energy. And I said, okay, try it now. And she took a deep breath and it was totally fine. She couldn't believe it. She was just raving. It was like a miracle, right? So uh, anyway, uh, I walk out with her out to the front desk and she's so happy and she says goodbye. And, and then I walked back down the hall and into my treatment room. And as I walked through the door, something entered my body. I felt something come into my body. And I thought, I oh, no. Coughing. And I took a deep breath and I started coughing uncontrollably. Oh, no. Now, listen, in terms of Western medicine and biology, that makes no sense at right. all, right? Because a virus has to hijack the machinery of the cell and take over and reproduce more viruses. But what I learned was it's really all just energy. And so I was able to release that from myself and I was fine. So, I mean, immediately. Um, but that taught me another powerful lesson about, you know, our world and the, the reality of our existence is that we are beings of pure energy and everything else is energy, too, including viruses. And so um, I think that you can you can at least weaken um, a viral energy that is in your body. But viewing things in this way. Um, is really a higher order, a higher or level of thinking. Or even the virus to work in companionship and harmony with you. You can even try that. And try it. What the heck? I mean, <laughs> yeah. so much of this, the mind. Exactly. The mind. I mean, I we are not, I don't think, anywhere near the stage of understanding the incredible power of each and every thought that passes through us. I couldn't agree more. And its impact on ourselves and the entire universe. Yep. So, let's talk about it in terms of, let's talk about placebo. How much if a person comes to you and they, you're the guy, mm -hmm. you're the one that created this, they're coming to you, they're expecting, how much of it is the expectation being met because they're open to it and the mind is ready to receive this shift now? Well, you know, that's a great question. When I was in practice, I tried to screen for people who really truly believed that they couldn't get well. Yes. Because a lot of my patients were people that have been told that they were never going to get better, that they were going to be sick for the rest of their so lives. So they had a firmly held belief. The people who really truly uh, incorporated that belief, mm -hmm. uh, it seemed that no matter what I did, they wouldn't get better. Right. Uh, so, and I think that really um, just about any doctor will tell you that a person has to have some level of belief in order for things to work. Just a little openness to say it's possible. Exactly. Sometimes that's all you need. Right. It's interesting because, you know, in, in the Bible, uh, in the New Testament, I've always liked this story where Jesus is out, you know, changing water to wine, and giving sight back to people and healing the lepers and so on. But he goes back to his hometown and it says that he can't do any miracles there because they they didn't believe that he's he just was. just a guy. Yeah, he's just, oh, that's the kid that broke my window. Yeah. Right. With, yeah, yeah, yeah. with his baseball. Right. Whatever. And so in spite of how powerful he was, he couldn't do any miracles there, which I've always thought was interesting, interesting, right? Okay, so here's one of the big questions. We have this perfect mechanism. We have this powerful, powerful mind. Mm -hmm. We have a body and a subconscious that is able to diagnose and contend with almost anything. It can find the truth and the data for us. Mm -hmm. We have a higher mind that can set an intention in motion that's capable of fixing pretty much anything, what we call miracles. All of it's there. We, mm -hmm. we possess all of it. And a body set up to self-heal. Mm -hmm. 
And you look how sick we are, okay? <laughs> so why is this information kind of so remote and seemingly hidden from us? Well, I think that, I think that we, we've, in the same way that we've kind of become disconnected from each other, uh, especially over the last year or so, um, many people are disconnected from the higher power. Many people are also, um, how can we say this? The, the problem is there are all of these vested interests, right? And the old saying of, about conventional wisdom yeah. is that if it's conventional wisdom, it's probably been bought and paid for. Right. Right. And so the things that most people tend to believe as being true, um, if, if they were to actually analyze those beliefs to see where those have, have really come from uh-huh. and who was funding those beliefs, uh-huh. then, um, then I think that that is a place to start where we need to shift our, our systems of absorbing knowledge. And I think that we need to, uh, I think we need to start really looking inward and trusting our own intuition. Absolutely. As the highest and the best, um, guidance that we can get. For example, the, the, uh, the story that I just told about the, um, uh, asking about asking for help mm-hmm. to understand viruses. And that mm-hmm. information came to me. If I hadn't asked for that help, I would have lived my entire life and I would, never probably would have understood that really. Right. But um, so I think that if we ask, we receive. And Absolutely. That's what I find when it comes yeah. to higher guidance. Yeah. A lot of times, my biggest mistake is I forget to ask. I'll go years without yeah. asking something. Sure. Even if I'm curious about it, never think to me to just ask. And then when I ask, it's like, right. oh my God, that was, thank you. That was easy. Why didn't I ask a few years ago? There's another We're human. There's an, I know, silly, silly things. Ninny muggins. <laughs> um, there's something else. And it's something that I personally observe and I have noticed. And I certainly noticed in my own life. And that is as long as we have desire, Mm -hmm. as long as we have desire that leads toward, and I don't mean desire like, you know, I want to pop another beer or have another cookie. I mean a desire that's coming from somewhere else Mm -hmm. um, and we follow it. And it it can be something simple like, you know what, I'm going to go see my grandma today. You know, that makes Mm -hmm. me happy to think of making her happy. Or it's like, for me, I have this fierce um, desire to help uncover truth wherever I can, anywhere mm-hmm. and everywhere I can. And that keeps me going in my career. Yes. Because even if I'm getting, you know, tired on some level or, or have been doing the same job for a long time, that spark of desire doesn't change. Even simple desires to just I have some people over for dinner. I think I'll make a beautiful dish for them. As long as we have desire, it seems to me that that's the kind of thing that refreshes the spirit and allows for these other things to continue working well together. And once right. our desire goes, once the joy goes, mm-hmm. once the flame goes down, none of these other systems that really seem to work that well, and we get old. Mm-hmm. I think so. Well, you know, we are uh, we are children of the divine, mm-hmm. and the divine is all about creation, right? And creativity. So, yeah, creativity. Yes. And so what happens to people if they retire and they stop creating – well, they wither away. They do. And they die. And so, so yes, I think that that's really an absolutely powerful key to maintaining your sanity, but also to, uh, to developing your, your own happiness and joy. 
is to keep creating. And and you're right. It can just be little things. It doesn't have to be huge things. Right. But you don't want to stop Very creating. Very regularly. Little yeah. things. Little things. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, you know, you mentioned something about having that little thought to do something mm-hmm. um, creative or to, to serve someone in some yeah. way. And it's important for us now, especially to to be open to those, to listen to those, and to get those answers. You know, it's interesting because in the work that we do, um, when we when we teach people how to do muscle testing and so on, what we teach them is when you're doing this work with the emotion go to the body code, it won't take long and you'll have an experience where suddenly a moment before you get the answer on muscle testing, you'll know the answer right. in your heart. Because you've already put the intention out. And that's your intuition. Yeah. Yeah. And if you feed that, you can get to a point where you really don't need muscle testing. Right. You can just do it all by intuition. You know. Yeah. And I, just, then you're in a state of knowing. Yeah, exactly. And right. then you get enough validation and you understand to trust that place of knowing. Yeah. And so I think that that's a big part of why we're here is to learn how to trust that little inner voice, the Absolutely. voice that comes from the light. And if we continue to follow that, you know, we, we gradually ascend and get to higher and higher planes. And, Couldn't and, agree more. We're on the <laughs> same page. Okay. I have a big question here for you. Okay. If you were going to start based on all this, a movement that would benefit the most people on the planet, I know this is kind of near and dear to you. What um, would that be? What would that look like? Well, it's, it's, it's the movement that we're doing right now. It's, it's opening people's minds. Uh, it's opening people's hearts. It's giving back to every man, woman, and child on this planet the healing birthright that belongs to them because everyone has the ability to heal, to heal themselves, to heal their family members, their loved ones. And there's never been anything as simple as the emotion code and the body code, never been anything as comprehensive as the body code that anyone can learn how to use. And that's exactly what we're doing is giving people back that birthright. And so that's a great question, though. But that is exactly what we're doing. And I'm so grateful to to be doing what I believe I'm really supposed to be doing. Well, and obviously your energy is clean and clear. Um, you're very you're very focused and you're very passionate and very committed to what you do. Um, I sit across from a lot of people and a lot of people have an idea um, and, and intellectually uh, can propagate information. But they, they don't they're not all in. Know what I mean? Yeah. You can tell by someone's energy when they're all in. And you're all in. I can tell. <laughs> you too. <laughs> so any final words you want to share with us? Um, it's been a really interesting and fun discussion. Yeah, it has been. Well, I think that we're, I think that it's always important for everybody to remember that there's the yin and the yang, you know, the yin-yang symbol. As things seem to get darker, Somewhere things are getting lighter because the light and the dark always stay in a state of balance. And so, so don't get too worried. If you, if you're looking too much at the darkness, if the darkness seems to be going up, look for the light because it's increasing too. And I think we're moving into a marvelous age where things are going to happen faster and more powerfully than they've ever happened before. I think it's going to blow all of our minds how easy it becomes to get answers from above. And to see miracles happen, I think it's just uh, going to be a really fun time. So there's a lot to look forward to. Thank you so much, Bradley. I loved it. Thank you, Regina. Me too. It was fun. We could all use a little bit of help these days, I'm absolutely sure. To connect with the Emotion Code, you can buy the book. Uh, the Body Code app is also available. And you can also reach out to Bradley via discoverhealing.com. You can also do a little binging if you want to watch my previous interview with Bradley. Until next time, thank you for joining us here on Open Minds. 
And if you can hear us, Brother Doug, we could, um, we would enjoy getting Rainbird on the horn here in a moment. Rama will send you a little message in case you didn't hear that. Um, so let's join here a little with our sister Caroline and the message that she gave us from the uh, collective. Ascended Masters, Galactics, Earth Elementals, Fairy Elders, Angelic Legions, and Archangels known as the Collective. Let's see what they have to tell us today. Greetings, dear ones. We are very pleased to have this opportunity to speak with you again today. Let us walk together for a moment. Oh, I was just wondering. Oh, I, I, I don't know if I want to. That's okay. Max Kaiser House has plenty of interesting things to say, but we'll let him go tonight. So let us walk together for a moment amidst the beauty of our favorite scene. That may be the seaside, walking on a sandy beach next to gentle waves. Or a beautiful, great green forest, full of quiet nature sounds and gentle breezes. Or it may be a desert or a mountaintop. Choose a place on Lady Gaia that is meaningful to us. Even as it is a special place, we travel to inwardly, in inner earth, as we meditate, we will join you there. And in this place of beauty, there is a sense of oneness, of the completion and perfection of all things. As we have placed ourselves out in space somewhere, flying amongst the planets and the stars, do we see the symmetry of a movement, the interchange amidst each planetary being as they move along their elliptical or, traje- elliptical or trajectory? See as we can hear the music of the spheres, so yet growing more distinct and more colorful in its harmonies. See as we can feel the light flowing to planet Earth now and the shift of consciousness of all living beings there. Be aware that as we sit or move quietly in any of these or other peaceful scenes, we are resonating beautifully with the vibration of that place. We may wonder, how do I shift my current life and its challenges, which have only increased over the past year or more by simply thinking or feeling to be elsewhere. Isn't it best to just sit in whatever situation I am in and accept it without trying to escape inwardly? And we would say, 
most assuredly accepting what is holds its own amazing presence and power. We encourage all to accept the present moment without struggle or resistance, as resistance only more fully embeds the energies of what we push against. Sounds like uh, the weaving of the tapestry of what we just were listening to, don't, doesn't it? What we image all of you doing is connecting inwardly with images and experiences that offer us the immediacy of peace and well-being. Yes, thank you, Rama, for that beautiful song earlier. From there, John Denver, yeah. From there, we can approach the circumstances of our lives and the world's with a renewed sense of calm, with our energetic sensor registering at a frequency that is centered and tranquil. From this place of reassurance, we then look upon whatever feels burdensome to us as we move through our day and realize that this outer condition really has no power over us. Of course, we may feel that the unanswered questions, the uncertain future, the current struggles to understand what is happening, let alone solve it, that all of this has very real power to influence how we feel at any moment. And this would be so, yet it stands a far smaller chance of taking us out of our center as we first establish peacefulness as our dominant vibration. One that is part of who we are and therefore natural to us. The more often we spend actual physical time in nature with our heart-mind quiet, taking in the calm scenes around us and the more time we meditate on calm scenes where there is a steady and unbroken sense of well-being. The more that vibration becomes natural to us, then that then becomes our norm. Thank you, brother. Thank you. Our default position and not the tumultuous vibration of the shadow world. So, and we're queued up for the last things. How much time is that? The two of them. Um, We do not view the world as being in shadow. Yet, like you, we are aware of a shadow world. And what we mean by that is that version of the world demonstrated in some of its current situations that transmits the vibration of fear, uncertainty, loss, shame, and other forms of density. These images and emotions cannot carry us to experience our higher good. They may even cause us even to doubt the existence, its existence some days. That 
is their function, to carry us away from a vibration of solidity and calm and into a broken and dissonant vibration. And then there's uh, a little picture here of Albert Einstein and one of his quotes. He says, the only real valuable thing is intuition. Oh, my. In those moments, we are not who we truly are. Rather, a being who has momentarily lost their center and been taken in by outer appearance and the energies it projects. That is the shadow world, the representation of earth, life, that is not an ongoing presentation of open possibilities, each moving higher than the last in its expression. Rather, a representation of life as an ongoing struggle that slowly yet surely spirals downward. We may be thinking that that is the world we see as we watch or read about the daily news or watch certain videos on the Internet, regardless of whether they come from the old established channels of information or some of the newer ones many of which promise to be the only truthful ones. We would be extremely careful at this time regarding what information we allow ourselves to take in, for this is not simply information, rather an energy stream. Some of it will connect us directly to the shadowy shadow world, which is a tool and a resource used for the purposes of lowering our vibration and bringing us to an emotional and psychological state that lowers our overall etheric vibration and therefore the trajectory of our inner and outer path. These tolls were created for the purposes of gathering humanity's energies to further a far darker agenda than we would ever support were we to understand fully what we were partaking in, be aware that these news programs and information outlets do not come in any special color or have any identifying marks except for their vibration. Most have the appearance of respectability and present information in ways we have been trained to accept without question, yet offer much that is not trustworthy. The only distinguishing mark is their vibration as it registers with us as we watch or listen. And so we encourage everyone to turn off that which pulls our energy down or seems to be pulling our energy into it. It is possible to be basically aware of what is happening in the world and to send light to all difficult situations occurring now without dwelling on details to where we feel hopeless or sad or where we must run from one internet spiritual message to another for reassurance that all is not lost. As we protect and honor our vibration, 
we listen more to those messages and realizations that bring us feelings of peacefulness, not distress. These are messages that tend to come from within, not from without. I'll turn the page here. Hold on a second here. All right, here we go. Take those quiet moments each morning, whether in meditation or out in nature or both. Whether we will center ourselves, where we will center ourselves in the well-being of that which is naturally ours. Note that the presence of our beautiful, resilient spirit desires to become stronger now than we have ever experienced it. How can that be, you ask, as the world feels to be in a more precarious place than ever? As my own life holds so many questions and what-ifs, and we would say we have never been a collection of ideas or information or outer situations. These are holographic projections and not our true life. We have only ever been a bundle of powerful light and love with visions of an ascended earth and an ascended humanity. We are intrinsically a great sun that pours out a living vibration to all around it. There is much that our rays touch and give life to that we are not even fully aware of yet. That means yet. Leave the old training behind, dear ones, for it cannot serve us any longer. Decide now what constitutes joy and peaceful reality to us, the love that sustains within all situations, and rely on that alone. For this we came. Namaste, dear ones. We are with you always. Carolina Oceana Ryan and the Collective. And with that, I pass this talking stick again with fairies, feathers, angels, rainbows, and crystals. And extra hobbits tonight (laughs) to my sister Rainbird. Here it comes. All right, it's coming back. (laughs) (laughs) Oh my gosh, what a fun day. So much gratitude. Lots of fun stuff. So, thank you. Yeah. Yeah. We met a new listener tonight. We met a new listener. Oh, good. Yeah, we got a new listener. Well, I think he might not be so new, but at least he said hello tonight. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I'm glad he said hello and <clears throat> and and made himself welcome. That's good. And uh, <laughs> yeah, so a lot of fun. I really enjoyed the day. I think I speak for many of us on that. It was fun. So <laughs> thank you, and may all your blessings come this week that you're looking for. And I pass this talking stick over to you, Rama. Here it comes. It's got, it's got hobbits on it. <laughs> it's got hobbits on it, Rama. 
only because when you look for your own mind, that is to say, your own particularized center of being, which is separate from everything else, you won't be able to find it. The only way you'll know it isn't there is if you look for it hard enough to find out that it isn't there. So everybody says, all right, know yourself, look within, find out who you are. Because the harder you look, you won't be able to find it. Then you'll realize that it isn't there at all. There isn't a separate you. Your mind is what there is. Everything. <laughs> okay, we're all pixelated now. <laughs> so, join us tomorrow and Monday evening. About 10 minutes of 6 Pacific, 10 minutes of 9 Eastern. And our sister Cheryl will take us on a journey about three hours each evening. And the number there is 425-436-6260. And the PIN code is 946-7441-POUND. And so, this is a very amazing time and this day has been... Uh, surreal, I think, is a good word. It shows up in the astrology, too. It's a, a, a metamorphosis of some sort going on. So stay in the good vibration of your heart, your high heart, everyone, until we meet again. And Sat Nam. Sat Nam Deep. On 13 thank yous, honey, in the heart, no evil, live long and prosper. Namaste. See you on the bridge and in your dreams, everyone. Mahalo Nui Loa. Namaste.